I have such respect for women. I cherish women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie several- O'Donnell. I love the women that faint when I speak. Those are the ones that love me. No, go ahead, Donald. No, I'm a gentleman, Hillary. Go ahead. What I say is what I say. And honestly, Megan, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I've been very nice to you, although I could probably maybe not be based on the way you have treated me, but I wouldn't do that. You brag that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? No, I didn't say that at all. I don't think you understood what was said. This was locker room talk. Every woman lied when they came forward to hurt my campaign. Believe me, she would not be my first choice that I can tell you. You take a look. Look at her. Look at her words. You tell me what you think. I don't think so. I don't think All of these liars will be sued after the election is over. I'm going to take such good care of women's health care issues, you won't even believe it. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a principle? Uh, The answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. Such a nasty woman. I have tremendous respect for women. Have you ever done those things? have respect for me. But I'm surging with women. I think Hillary would be a terrible president. Well, I think the only card she has is the woman's card. She's got nothing else going. And frankly... If Hillary Clinton were a man, I don't think she'd get 5% of the vote. She's a world-class liar. Just look at her pathetic email server statements. She's crooked Hillary. Don't you understand that? This is one of the most crooked politicians in history. This is the legacy of Hillary Clinton. Death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. She's the devil. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. I was going to say... Something extremely rough to Hillary, to her family. And I said to myself, I can't do it. I just can't do it. If you look at uh, Bill Clinton, far worse, minor words, and his was action. His was what he's done to women. There's never been anybody in the history of politics in this nation that's been so abusive to women. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton. She has tremendous hate in her heart. Wouldn't that be embarrassing to lose to crooked Hillary Clinton? That would be terrible. Is there anybody you'd like to apologize to right now yourself? Uh, No. No? (laughs) I think I would probably get along very well with Putin. Russia, if you're listening... I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Hillary likes to play tough with Russia. Uh, Putin looks at her and he laughs, okay? He laughs. He'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It- I know nothing about Russia. Talking about Gitmo, right? Guantanamo Bay. Which, by the way, which, by the way, we are keeping open. Which we are keeping open. And we're going to load it up with some bad dudes, believe me. We're going to load it up. Would I approve waterboarding? You bet your ass I'd approve it. You bet your ass. In a heartbeat. And I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? If that's okay. Because they are recruiting by the thousands. They're leaving our country. And then when they come back, we take them back. Oh, come on back. Where were you? I was fighting for ISIS. Oh, come on back. Go home. Enjoy yourself. 
I will absolutely take database on the people coming in from Syria if we can't stop it, but we're going to. I've made it known. If I win, they're going back. ISIS is honoring President Obama. ISIS is honoring President Obama. Do you believe that? I don't know. President Trump said it, so it has to be true. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Figured I would open with four minutes of Trump on the campaign trail in the 2016 campaign since they're having impeachment hearings, so why not? I am your host, Todd Jandruff Wittellis. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on November 15th, 2019. The time right now, 8.57 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we have a free roll tonight. It's going to be $78. You still have plenty of time to get in because it hasn't started yet. And you have 25 minutes of late registration with a full stack. No day two registration here. No day two registration. You can't even register more than 25 minutes late. The prizes given out this week, 35 for first, 20 for second, 13 for third, 10 for fourth, 35, 20, 13, and 10. This is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. Make sure you follow the rules and understand how it all works by going to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll to read all about it. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, and you can understand how the free roll works and what will make you eligible for the free money? That is real cash money. I will pay you in various ways. Your choice. Zelle, Cash App, a bank transfer if our banks are compatible with that, Bitcoin, or even one other method that is a very old school method to send money around on the internet, if you can think of it. Been around for about 20 years. You can PM me on the forum if you win, Dan Space Druff. You can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. And you can also text me, 775-372-8355, to claim your prize if you are eligible. This week, five different people came together to donate the $78. Heartache gave $10. Keaton gave $13. Donk Crusher gave 10 SMI Florida, a frequent contributor, gave 20 And an even more frequent contributor as of late, Eric Pansamokin, $25. Thank you to all of you. $78 this week for the free roll, which we have funded by listeners each week. And I appreciate that very much. 9.15 p.m. is the start time. You have till 9.40 to late register. Never a big field. Most of the listenership of the show is not live. So you can win it if you play live without having to beat a whole lot of people. Probably the best value free roll there is out there. When you compare the amount of money being paid versus the number of people entering. I don't know that for sure. That's just a guess. If you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston is near Las Vegas. It's about 45 minutes away by car. It's about 30 degrees cooler there than Las Vegas year-round. It's an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of that mountain in a cabin there. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the number for the Mount Charleston line. You can also text the show at our main phone number, 775-372-8355. Text me any time of the day or night. I don't care. And I probably will respond to you. And I may read your text on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of the text. If you text me during the show live, then there's a good chance I'll read it on the air. The call to listen line is something you can use to listen to the show. Does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet. All it needs is a phone that can dial. 
605-313-0736 is the number, 605-313-0736, or the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. Either one of those will work, typically, and it will never buffer. You'll never get a busy signal, and it'll never buffer. You'll just get right through, and you'll hear the show playing. If we're live, and if we're not live, you'll hear a rerun playing that is just picked randomly from our archives of more than 300 shows since we began seven and a half years ago. Remember, we do have a chat room if you're listening live. You can go in there. You need a Flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads. But if you have Flash on your device, like a computer, you can go into the chat room. You need a form account in good standing to get into the chat room. That's only for the live listeners, of course. And various ways to listen to the show... Live, you can listen by either going to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, and there are various links there. If it doesn't auto-start playing, you can click on one of the links if it's just not starting up by itself, depending on your device. You can also use the TuneIn app to listen live. We have two Poker Fraud Alert entries on there, one's live and one of the archives, so the live one, you can listen to the live show. And Amazon Alexa, you can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it will play the live show. Someone's calling in. Should I take this? I'm interrupting the agenda. I don't know. I'll take it anyway. Caller, you're on the air. Great call. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for that call. I'm glad you interrupted the agenda. I'm glad I took your call. Very rewarding to receive calls like that. Okay, anyway, going on. You can listen on Amazon Alexa. Say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Say Poker Fraud... Let me start again this. See, this call screwed me up. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it will play the live show or the streaming reruns. And that's about it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's also the podcast format. If you want to hear the last full episode we recorded, it's a Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast, and it will play that full episode from the start. In the archives, you can listen through that Alexa method, or you can use iTunes, you can use the Stitcher app, you can use the TuneIn app, you can use the Bullhorn app, you can even download or play the MP3 of the show directly from PokerFraudAlert.com. A lot of different ways to listen. Just go to the radio tab to have links to all of these things, and you'll also see all the phone numbers on the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com. All the info you will need is up there. Except I think it's erroneously saying the show's on Wednesday. I think that's the only thing that's wrong in the radio tab that I will have to fix. We seem to be on Friday these days. That's just the day it keeps landing. So that's our regular day for now. And I'm going to connect our regular host, Trader Ruski. And then we will give the agenda. And then we'll get going. I see we're back to this sound effect. It didn't used to do this. The previous version of Skype didn't have this... What's happening, Jeff? It, it, yeah, it's doing the Skype ringing again, which I hate. Like they they did away with it, and now it's back. I wanna I wanna go back to the previous one that didn't have that problem. It just they must have just forced updated on me. It's annoying. But anyway, welcome Trader Ruski. Glad to have you back here this week. And you Thank know you. when I was looking for topics to talk about each week, you guys you have to understand here. I don't just do this off the top of my head. I I go through the topics in poker and gambling of the week and and see what I can find that I think will be of interest. 
and and I can't just copy headlines from poker news sites because most of the stuff is boring that I wouldn't want to talk about and you guys wouldn't want to listen to. So I, I have to search for stories that I think will be interesting for this show that will fit in with the general theme of this show. And this week, I only came up with a few of them. I go, crap, I don't know what I'm going to do this week. But it took care of itself. I was able to scratch together 10 topics to talk about this week and 10 interesting topics. And we're actually going to have a rebuttal this week. I've said many times on this show that if you are talked about here, that you have a right to come on and respond to me. You don't have that actual right, but I'm giving you that right. I'm, I'm inviting anybody I talk about to come on the show and give a rebuttal. And usually people don't take me up on this, usually because they don't want whatever unflattering thing I was saying coming back again another week. And usually if held up to scrutiny on a live broadcast, they'll sound really stupid or really bad. So most people don't want to come on and respond to me, even if they're aware of what I'm talking about. Because I'll tell you. When I talk about people on here, unless they're really famous, they tend to hear about it and they tend to go listen to the segment, even if they don't usually listen to the show. So I'm not going to say everybody I talk about listens to the show, but people go report it to them. Hey, guess guess what? Dandruff talked about you this week. And then they go listen to the segment. I make it really easy for them, too, because I put timestamps in the archives of each segment and exactly where you can find it in the archives. So it's, it's very easy for someone to go find the portion where they appear or where their name appears. And I finally had somebody come to me and say, I want to come on and respond. Last week, I made fun of the investment plan of the Free Rolls Poker Club. And it wasn't a really serious segment. It was something that was brought to me and said, hey, look at this. It's kind of funny. And I, I went and looked at it. They go, oh, yeah, they'll be great for radio. It's even got a little video you can play with a cartoon character narrating. It was, it was like perfect for this show. Okay, so I was I was being honest about my opinion of it, but I will also admit I didn't do a lot of research on the Free Rolls Poker Club or their investment plan. I was just going by what was in front of my face and what I heard on the video, and I was giving you my opinion as I was reading through it and playing the video, which is fine. That's, that's sometimes what I do here. I just play things on the fly, and we, we talk about it. So the I, I think the owner or one of the owners of the Free Roll Poker Club contacted me. This is a, one of those private poker clubs in Texas which is all they can have over there. You can't have a regular card room there. He contacted me and said he wants to come on and give a rebuttal. Now, he claims it will be a friendly rebuttal. He says he's not looking to argue with me or be confrontational, that uh, he wants to make some corrections to what I said. Now, I want everybody to understand, we, we are going to have him on tonight. But I want everyone to understand he's not a sponsor. That does not mean I endorse the Free Rolls Poker Club. That does not mean I'm suggesting you invest in it. I'm simply giving somebody a chance that I talked about, or I talked about his company, or not really him, to come on here and respond. And then I will have responses to the response, and we'll see where it goes. So that'll be our second topic tonight. Our first topic is a continuation of last week's Daniel Negreanu Player of the Year topic. Remember, Negreanu was awarded Player of the Year, and then it was taken away when it was found that he had been awarded points for an online World Series event that he actually did not play. So once that was corrected, then he was no longer the Player of the Year, and the Player of the Year was actually someone who was a fairly unknown, a guy named Robert Campbell. And Sean Deeb could have been the player of the year had he known this because he could have actually folded to ninth place in the very final event at uh, 
Razvedov, or I Razvedov, I don't know how you say it, uh, in, in Europe, the WSOP Europe, the very final event, he was uh, third out of 11th in chips. He could have folded to ninth place and been guaranteed the title, but believing he had to get to fifth place, he had to gamble a bit and ended up busting in 11th and ended up, what he thought was in third, ended up really in second, but he could have easily folded to first. So he's really pissed, and he was accusing Negranu of cheating by saying that Negranu was very aware of the fact that he was awarded those extra points and didn't speak up about it. So we're going to discuss that specifically. We had Kessler on last week who gave the reasons he felt that Negranu uh, did not know and that this accusation was out of line. But this week, Doug Polk, who you knew was going to say something about it because he hates Negranu, he decided to troll Negranu and had something to say about that entire situation. So we're going to talk about that again. I'll, I'll read you Polk's tweet. I'll read you Mike Matisau's response to Polk's tweet. And I'll tell you part of the reason why Matisau responded that way. And then once again, I'll give my opinion. Trader Risk will give his opinion. And then we'll close that topic for now. Then we will have our Free Rolls Poker Club interview with uh, Trent Daniel, who I believe is an owner of the Free Rolls, Free Rolls Poker Club. The Cirque du Soleil founder and known high-stakes poker fish, Guy Le Liberté. I wish he were on the show, but he's not going to be on. But we are going to talk about him. He's welcome to come on, too, if he wants to rebut this. But it's been reported that he's been arrested in Tahiti for uh, growing cannabis. Oh, boy. Michael Borovitz, another person who's been arrested. The airport scammer. He has been on this show before. Just... Goes around to airports around the nation and constantly runs this small-time scam on people and keeps getting caught and keeps reoffending over and over and over again. He has pled guilty in his latest arrest from his latest airport scam. I'll tell you a bit about that. I think we're going to be playing that sound effect a lot tonight. Liv Bory and Igor Kurganov are a couple, and they're splitting up, but they're not splitting up with each other. They are splitting up from Poker Stars. They're no longer Poker Stars pros. We'll talk about them being pros on Poker Stars and if this is the fate that all Poker Stars pros are going to have sooner or later. And also, I'll talk a bit about Liv Bory herself. I have a few opinions about her. Caesars Rewards, also known as Total Rewards, has introduced two new diamond levels in 2020 that will actually have separate cards, where if you achieve these levels, it'll say Diamond Plus or Diamond Elite. I'll explain what these two new levels are and what you get for them when we get to that segment. Run it once poker. Phil Galfon's site. We kind of stopped talking about this. We, we were talking about it a lot, and then Mike Possel happened, and we just we kind of forgot about Run It Once Poker. I kind of forgot that Phil Galfon has a fail site. But yeah, Phil Galfon has a fail site. He does. And we're going to talk about that again. I made a discovery, something that actually just happened yesterday on November 14th. It looks like Run It Once was taken off of Poker Scout, and you can no longer see the traffic on Run It Once. And I have a feeling this wasn't Poker Scout's voluntary decision. I'm the only one to my knowledge who have noticed this. Well, I posted it on 2 Plus 2 and Poker Fraud Alert, so others see it now too. But I, I don't believe anyone else had noticed before me because I noticed like right after it happened. Bovada and Ignition have made a software change 
to fight what's known as table campers. I'll explain what that is, and I'll also explain why this might be a mistake and why it might deaden the cash games there. But there's many people who don't agree with me. I'll give both sides of it when we get to that segment. Speaking of online poker sites, what should you do if you log on to a poker site and you get that dreaded message that your account is frozen, locked, or suspended? What should you do at that point? Obviously, it's a very crappy feeling, especially if you have a lot of money on there. I once found myself suspended on Bovada with 56K on the site. That was really unnerving, where I really believed that there was a chance they were going to keep my 56K. I also once had Cake Poker. Remember them back in 2007? I had them suspending my account uh, with a similar amount of money, I think like like 46K. Uh, in both cases, I got out of it and got my money. In both cases, I was innocent of any wrongdoing, but... I did have that moment of panic, and I did have to decide how I'm going to handle it. And I think you should know this if you play online poker, so I will explain to you the best way to approach that and also to understand what rights you have and what rights you don't have. And I'll give you a bit of a preview. You don't have many rights. A Florida man killed someone who beat him in a poker game. A guy had beaten him at a $3,500 in poker over a period of a week. And the loser of those poker matches decided to respond by killing the winner. I'll tell you about that disturbing story. It's always this type of stuff out of Florida. There's that Florida man meme. But even before that appeared, I was just noticing so many things were were happening from Florida. A lot of really brutal and senseless crimes seem to happen in Florida. And people say, oh, it's just they're they're just putting the focus on it being from Florida. And there's been a lot of excuses for Florida, man. But I believe it's real. I believe it's a real phenomenon. I believe I believe it really happens there more often per capita than it does elsewhere. I have no data supporting that, but I just believe it. He didn't have base eight. Um, He might have. He might have. Maybe that was I know. Maybe that maybe that was the final hand he won. That was what gave him the idea. Okay, so we're gonna get going. Remember the free roll? It's starting in one minute. We actually finished the agenda before the free roll starts, which is like a record for us. I want to talk about the Negranu Player of the Year situation again, but from a bit of a different angle and kind of a, more of a narrow focus. Very, very quickly, as I just said before, Negranu Crown Player of the Year. A few days later, it was found by someone that he should not have been Player of the Year because he was awarded points back in July that he didn't deserve. It was clearly an error on the World Series part. We found out later that the World Series actually manually transfers the data over from World Series of Poker events into the Player of the Year system instead of having some automated uh, program doing it, which is insane in 2019, but that's the way they were doing it. And uh, in that process, an error occurred, which gave Negreanu 200-something extra points, which really changed the race because it was very close between him, Robert Campbell, and Sean Deeb. And this ended up taking away the title from Negreanu, rightfully, because those weren't points he had really earned. And Robert Campbell got it, unexpectedly for him. And Sean Deeb was really furious because he could have gotten it had he known the true point totals because he got down to the final 11, only needing ninth place, it turned out, to clinch player of the year. But he believed he needed fifth, had to gamble a bit more, got unlucky and busted. And there's no way he would have done that if he only had to get down to ninth. He could have just folded to ninth place and been crowned player of the year. For all three of these guys, player of the year was important, especially to Negreanu and Deeb, who spent a lot of time and money chasing it. So a lot of controversy about that. There, there's no solution to this that could have been fair to everyone. 
everyone basically got screwed in some way. We talked about it last week. We had a pretty big segment about this last week, so I'm not going to rehash that whole thing. If you want to hear it, go back and listen to last week. I'm going to co- to cover the new development which occurred here and focus upon what was being said in a particular tweet by none other than Doug Polk. Now, you have to understand, Doug Polk detests Daniel Negreanu, and Daniel Negreanu absolutely detests Doug Polk. It goes two ways. They hate each other. Now, I will say that Doug Polk has been the aggressor. Doug Polk, uh, the two of them didn't get along going back like 10 years, and some people don't know this. You've probably seen Doug Polk trolling Negreanu for like the last three to four years, but not 10 years, right? Well, if you, I found some old poker broadcast. I, I wish I remember what it was, but I saw an old broadcast from 2009. I think it's on YouTube somewhere. You might be able to find it, where the two of them were playing each other and, and sniping at each other. They, they clearly didn't like each other all the way like 10 years ago. And Doug Polk, as he got more well-known and as he had that rapidly growing channel in the mid-2010s, he decided something he was going to do was start attacking Daniel Negreanu and find any reason he can to criticize Negreanu. Some of the stuff he criticized Negreanu for was fair. Some of it was exaggerated. Some of it was just straight-up trolling. But some people believe that Polk just picked on Negreanu out of nowhere just because it was a convenient victim, uh, just someone he felt he could troll and, and, and basically cyberbully. That's really not what happened. Polk already didn't like him. They already had history. Not, not terrible history, but this was just someone Polk did not like, and they hadn't gotten along. And so when the opportunity came up and Polk knew this could get views to his channel, then he started relentlessly trolling Negreanu, especially as the public sentiment was turning against Negreanu because of that supernova elite fiasco that was going on at PokerStars, and Negreanu somewhat mishandled that. Though, though again, I felt that Negreanu didn't mishandle it as badly as many people feel. I actually felt Negreanu was nice about it at the beginning, was trying to help where he didn't have to. And then after that, when he couldn't help, he, he mishandled it from that point. So I, I actually don't think as badly of him regarding that situation as most do. I'm actually more pro-Negranu on that than probably a lot of you are. And it's important to understand that these two just don't like each other, and it's just getting worse and worse with time. If you asked Daniel Negranu. Who in this world do you hate the most? He'd say Doug Polk. 100%. Especially if you asked him who in the world do you hate of people he actually knows. I, I don't mean like Donald Trump, who I know he hates, or, or some serial killer he hates. I, I mean like someone he's actually, he actually knows that he hates the most. He'd say Doug Polk. And if you asked Doug Polk who do you hate the most of people you know, he'd probably say Daniel Negreanu. So they, they really hate each other. So you know with this whole thing going down, that if there's a way to slam Negranu, that Polk's going to jump on it. Now, we read Negranu's full tilt or full, con- full contact poker blog. That's on it. Fullcontactpoker.com is Daniel's blog. He doesn't blog very often anymore, but he blogged about this, about the player of the year fiasco. And, and it was a good blog. He did a good job on it. He, he came off as uh, very gracious about the whole thing, not bitter. Uh, made some good suggestions for changing player of the year in the future. It was a good blog. I know Trader Ruski was very impressed with it. Most people thought the blog was good. But I had a feeling that Polk was going to find a way to come after him. And there was one area where Negreanu was vulnerable here. You can't blame Negreanu for the mistake occurring. This was the World Series mistake, not his. But there has been the question, did Negreanu know that he had extra points that he didn't deserve? 
And was he just keeping his mouth shut? Because he figured, hey, might as well keep these extra points and win my player of the year that I want so badly. And hey, if they discover it, I'll go, wow, I didn't know that was here. Well, my goodness. Well, then take those away. So was this a don't ask, don't tell situation where he just noticed it but wasn't going to ask, wasn't going to tell anyone, and if it got caught, he would feign ignorance? Was that the case, or did Negreanu just simply not know until everyone else found out as well? Now, we don't have a definitive answer there, and that's important. We do not have a definitive answer as to whether or not Negreanu knew. But here's what Doug Polk tweeted. This is on November 8th. At 5.39 p.m., I guess technically we could have talked about this last week on last week's show, but I hadn't seen it until this week. There is a serious chance Daniel knew what, knew he was benefiting from the Player of the Year error and didn't say anything. What is the chance someone completely obsessed with the Player of the Year race didn't realize they were getting a bunch of points incorrectly? Doesn't make sense to me that he wouldn't notice. Okay, so I on the surface that sounds very reasonable. And when you think about it from the standpoint that Doug Polk is presenting it, yeah, this looks pretty bad for Negreanu. For sure, Negreanu was obsessed with Player of the Year. And how could someone so obsessed with winning Player of the Year not notice that he got these extra points? Wasn't he counting his points? Wasn't he looking at his World Series results? Wouldn't he have seen this? Well, Mike Matisal responded, this is the Doug Polk, I already knew you were a scumbag lowlife, but you should never be allowed to play poker in a poker room again or create lying bullshit poker content just to make yourself look good. Wow. Harsh words for Doug Polk there in defense of Daniel. Now, remember, a few weeks ago I had a private phone conversation with Mike Matisau. It is a conversation in which I really wish that I could reveal a lot of what was said to me about a lot of different topics. We talked about a lot of different topics and some of them I really wish I could talk about out here, but I can't. But one thing I can reveal, which I don't know if I've talked about on a previous show, but uh, I'll I'll reveal is that Matisau and Negranu were not friends for a while. They went from being good friends to not being friends because of Donald Trump. Mike Matisau is a big Trump supporter. Daniel Negranu hates Trump. And like many in the Trump era, Donald Trump actually separated friendships and people who were once friends were no longer because of political disagreement, which, which I think is stupid. I think that's really stupid. And I, I did not judge anyone based upon how they voted. And I, I don't think anyone should. In fact, I just had a Twitter discussion with Andrew Barber about that just uh, this week. I think that's foolish to do. But... This affected them. I don't know who it was. I think it was actually on Negranu's side that uh, he didn't want anything to do with Matisau anymore because of Matisau's Trump support. But they've made up, and they are friends again. There's more to that story on how they made up and why, and I can't reveal that, unfortunately. But uh, they made up, and they they are friends, and uh, so... Mattisau saw this, and Mattisau also was irritated with Doug Polk because Doug Polk uh, gave him a hard time about the interview he did with Possel, where Mike Mattisau had Possel on there, and Polk was critical of that, and Mattisau didn't like that. So they were already arguing on Twitter, and then it seemed like they smoothed it over. 
But this really enraged Mattisau again, especially in defense of Negreanu, who he feels close to now. So this is basically Mattisau defending a friend who wasn't a friend for a while and is now once again close to him. So uh, that's why Mattisau jumped on that, in case you're wondering. But getting back to Doug Polk and what he wrote, obviously he wrote this, and he might really believe this, but it's because it's about Daniel Negreanu that he tweeted this, and it's uh, I, I would have been shocked if he took a pro-Negreanu stance. Like, if he really believed that Negreanu didn't know and didn't uh, and really just was surprised by it like we were, then Polk would just say nothing. I think Polk believes what he's writing, but I think it's a lot easier to believe because he hates Daniel. And that's human nature. If there's someone you really dislike, whenever you hear something that's possibly negative about them, you think the worst. And if it's something you like, if someone you like, then you try to your brain tries to go in the direction of thinking better of the person than they probably deserve. And that's the extreme version of this is like when when, when someone commits an obvious murder and you see the mother on TV saying, oh, "He's such a nice boy. He has to be innocent. The police have to be framing him." And there's like every piece of evidence that's that's so clear that he's uh, he's guilty. So that's the extreme version of that, where like the, the the mom can't ever believe her son's guilty, but it happens with friends too, and I think, and it happens with enemies, where the reverse occurs, where you someone you don't like, you find something that you can criticize, you're not sure they did it, but you're going to believe they did it because you want to believe they did it. So I think when Doug Polk heard about this, he's like, okay, well, there's a reason to believe that Daniel could have known this, and. That was enough justification in his subconscious mind to think, okay, Daniel's pulling a fast one here. And they said, okay, i got to say something. And then he put it out there. There have been uh, 345 responses to Doug Polk, who has a big following on Twitter, and uh, 516 likes. So a lot of people saw this. But what is the truth? We, we won't know the truth, only if we were in Daniel Negreanu's head or if for some reason he told someone about it if he did know and it got out then that's the only way we'll find out for sure otherwise it'll just be speculation and to me that's actually a big piece of it in that it is speculation and I don't think it's fair in a case like this where it could really go either way that you just assume someone's guilty of what was in their mind like you you don't know what Negranu noticed you don't know what Negranu was thinking is it possible that he noticed and said nothing? Yes. Is it possible he did not know? Yes. Both are possible. I actually think it's more likely that he didn't know, but I will concede that there's a reasonable possibility that Negranu knew. But we don't and we never will have evidence either way. So I think it's unfair to come out there and say, oh, I, Negranu had to have known. And then kind of frame him as a cheater, frame him as someone who's unethical and trying to win an award he didn't deserve. Now, if he really did know and kept quiet, then yes, he was trying to win an award he didn't deserve and he was unethical, Okay, if that were the case. But we don't know. So that's why I don't think it's fair to assume that about him. Now, if it were really obvious in some way, then yes, it's fair to assume it. But it's not obvious. I've gotten texts about this, and I've had some people telling me they're sure he knew. I've had people telling me that they think there's about like a two-thirds chance that he knew. I have others telling me that they don't think he knew. People are all over the spectrum on this one. And I can understand why. There's there's really a reasonable argument on both sides. On one, hey, look, the World Series has never made this mistake before. 
there's no reason to believe prior to this that they were manually entering anything. It seemed like an automatic process. Why would a computer miscalculate something? Why would a computer give someone credit for events they didn't enter? Like, why would you even go back and check on that? Because it's assumed prior to this mess that it was going to be fine. And I'm sure everyone assumed it was going to be fine. So why would anyone go and double-check that? So that's, that's one argument of why Daniel just wouldn't have known, why he would have trusted the numbers he was given. The argument as to why he did know would be that just all he had to do was take a look at a list of his caches on HendonMob or on, on WSOP.com and see there's one right there of an event he simply didn't play. Either didn't play or didn't cache. And, and I, I think Negreanu does remember each event he played this year where he cached. Even though he plays a lot of events, I bet, it, I bet you could go through a list of every event he played and he could tell you quickly cached or not cached. Especially an online event where there aren't that many of these. So if, if he if he saw that it gave him points for an online event that he didn't really cash in, I'm sure he would have noticed immediately. So the question is, did he go back at any point and look at his Hendon mob or look at his player of the year or not player, his, his WSOP.com profile and scroll through it and look at event by event? Like total points a little bit different because total points is easy to lose track of. But if he went through the list of events, he would have seen this and said, what the hell is this? And he would have noticed. That is, if he, if he looked semi-carefully, at least. Not if he just glanced really fast. But if he, if he looked semi-carefully, he would have noticed it. The problem is we don't know. Maybe he went back and looked. Maybe he didn't. I go back and look, not because I'm vying for play over the year. I just, I just will go back and look and say, oh, let's, let's see my hand in mug. Like, I'll just kind of go take a look at uh, just really for no reason other than just to uh, look at it. Like, no, I played, no, I cashed on some things, and uh, just see if it's up there. I assumed it would be. I, not, not so much like thinking the World Series made a mistake, but the, the Hendon mob occasionally makes mistakes, which that doesn't really play into this. The Hendon mob didn't calculate the points here, but I, I really look kind of just to see how it looks and also just to make sure the Hendon mob didn't make mistakes. Is that There was one time they made a mistake in their database, and I had to send an email correcting them. So, yeah, I look at my handed mob. So the question is, does Daniel look at his handed mob? Does he look at his WSOP.com profile? He might. He also might not. Who knows? There's no way to tell. It's not obvious he would. It's not obvious he wouldn't. So you can't say he did it. It's just not fair. I'm not saying that you can't think maybe he knew, or you can't discuss it, or you can't even bring up, hey, you know, there's a possibility he knew, but... To phrase it in a way like, oh, he had to know, or I, I can't see how he wouldn't know, I, I just don't think that's fair to him. And I, I believe that Doug Polk is doing this just because he doesn't like him. He probably really believes what he's saying, but I think that this is just another topic that Polk can criticize Negreanu on. And and by the way, I'm not being a Negreanu fanboy here, and if you've listened to this show, you know that. You know that uh, I've criticized him plenty. You know that I've criticized his wife Amanda plenty. You know that Negreanu probably doesn't like me very much anymore where he, he used to talk to me when he saw me this year when i played with him at the 10k limit hold'em event and even played with him in some hands he didn't speak a word to me he, he acted like i wasn't there he didn't say anything nasty or do anything nasty he didn't do anything passive aggressive like he didn't do anything problematic but he acted like i wasn't there and you know fine like i wasn't insulted but i kind of got the idea that 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 he's pissed and i i've heard some things that he's aware of some of the stuff we've said about Amanda and and is uh, is pissed, and like, I wasn't even saying the stuff about about Amanda in a, like a mean way. I was just being honest with my opinion of the situation and about her. 
and I didn't feel we should not say these things when, you know, just because she's marrying Daniel, that shouldn't change anything. But I have a feeling he's not very happy with me about it, even though I didn't do it in a mean-spirited way. And I've gotten signs he's not happy with me about it. And I've also publicly criticized him on Twitter for things that he's written there. So for all these reasons, you know, he has kind of a thin skin. I, I, if you asked him how he felt about me, I think you'd hear something that's kind of like semi-negative at this point. Whereas before it was kind of between neutral and semi-positive. But look, I, I'm going to be fair. And regardless of what he might think of me now, I, I have to say this is not being fair to him. And I think there's a greater chance that he didn't know than did know. And whatever the case, it's inconclusive and we shouldn't be accusing him of this. And this wasn't his fault it happened. He didn't cause this to happen in any way. So it's something that happened, he either knew or did not know. We will never know the truth, so let's not vilify him for it. That's that's my opinion of that matter. And I guess... If there's one thing we learned here is that is that uh, Madison is a loyal friend. I've said I've said this before. I've said this on the show before that Negra- that uh, not, that Madison is a loyal friend. I've seen this with other people. I knew someone personally, not not anyone of you guys know, but uh, a limit hold'em grinder who fell upon hard times in the mid 2000s and went busto, and Negranu put him in some. I keep saying Negranu. Madison put him in some. WSOP events, he staked him in some cash games, he really kept the guy in action for some time, and not even necessarily believing the guy was going to return any real uh, profits to him. He did it to be nice. And I've known of other stories where Mattisau has done nice things for people he was friends with. So he is like a, a loyal and good friend, and that's what he was doing here. And I'm not saying Mattisau doesn't have his faults. He definitely does. But as far as how he treats his friends, it's he treats them very well. And that's that's what this was here. This was... I see Doug attacking Daniel and fuck him, and I'm kind of pissed with Doug anyway, so I'm going to go at him hard. That's the way Mattisau reacted. And that that had another, like, 177 responses to it and 269 likes. likes. So because Mattisau has a big following, too. A lot of uh, battling back and forth here. A lot of poker drama here, as usual. Whenever Doug Polk and Negrana go at it, it, it does cause a lot of fireworks because both have very big followings. Both have a lot of people who really like them and both have people who dislike them. Doug is actually responsible for a lot of Negranu's current haters. Like, Negreanu really didn't have very many haters before. Before Polk started coming after him, you'd hear a few people saying things like, oh, I bet Negreanu's a closet gay and stuff like that. But you'd hear little things like that, but there wasn't any kind of real hate for Negreanu. In general, he was liked. And nowadays, you you hear Negreanu's name, people go, oh, Negreanu, he thinks more rake is better. Like, like Polk really, really got that into people's heads. And Polk really painted him as a heartless corporate shill for poker stars as they were screwing the poker grinders and that he tried to convince people more rake is better, which is an oversimplification of what really happened. And that's not really a, a fair assessment, but at the same time, Negranu 
did and said some stupid things involving the situation. And that video, that the more wreck is better video, while it's taken a little bit out of context, uh, Negrana's excuse that he was taken completely out of context is, is not true. Negrana really did do a video trying to com- convince the viewer that when PokerStars raises its rake, it can benefit the pros because other pros will leave the game and the games will become softer, so paying more rake will actually make you more money overall, which is not true, by the way. And that's that's what Polk was mocking. So he, he didn't directly say more rake is better, but he did make a similar argument to that regarding PokerStars raising the rake, so that wasn't out of context. But did he deserve the level of hate he got for it? No. Did he deserve some criticism and some mocking? Yes, but not to the degree that, that Polk went after him. But that's how social media is. That's that's how poker drama goes. And that's what happens when you have people that just don't like you and have an opportunity to attack you. And when when I do things that are open to criticism, there's people who don't like me that will attack me the same way. I have people who who look for anything to jump on me for, and I've had people do it before, where there's something that looks like it could potentially be something to criticize me for, and certain people who don't like me will jump on it because they're getting pleasure out of attacking me, and they they feel they've found something to use to do it. So that's how it goes with Polk and Negreanu. Anyway, not much more to say there. I just wanted to give you that little update about Polk chiming in and with all the people texting me about how they felt about whether Negreanu knew or not, I thought I'd give my opinion. Traderski, I think I know, but but how do you feel about that? I, I can't imagine if he saw the mistake, he wouldn't report it. I'm sure he wouldn't want to li- win like that, and I just think it's bullshit. Yeah, and, and, and you know, he's won it before. He's won the Player of the Year, uh, of course, multiple times. So to, to win it this way... Uh, yes, you could say he, he could get better sponsorship opportunities, but really how much better? He, he's already won it in, in both recent times and also like back in 04. Uh, how much more does he need to get the sponsorship? I don't think it's going to help him that much. So, someone like Robert Campbell, that, that he'd get a lot of help out of it because he was kind of an unknown prior to 2019. But Negreanu doesn't need it that badly. Sean Deeb, uh, he needs it more than Negreanu, but he's a, a, big, a big name at this point. He doesn't need it as badly either. This is kind of just a vanity thing, and yeah, it, it does take away from the prestige, even in your own mind, if you know secretly that you didn't really deserve it, that you really should have finished second or third, and that you were awarded bullshit points. Even if you didn't arrange for that to happen, if you if you don't really qualify as the winner, and you know this in your mind, like... How proud can you really be? And I, that's one of the reasons also why I, I agree that he probably didn't know. Maybe. And do you, do you think Sean Deeb or the, I guess the other guy, Campbell, do you think they went through and looked over each one of their caches? Uh, probably not. And how many points they got? And yes, if yeah, they I, did do it, wouldn't they look at the others? I, well, I don't necessarily, you know, sometimes people just kind of look at their own, just kind of like, Oh, I just I want to see what my Hendon mob looks like, and they don't really. It's not so much to double check the work, so that's why it's more likely they would have looked at their own and not others. But yeah, I, I see the point you're bringing up. If you're looking to double check that the points are all correct, they would be checking themselves and anyone else is close. Yeah, because if they were so close and they were taking the time to do that, then I, I mean, I don't know. 
probably me. Well, whoa, what did this guy do? Which ones did he win? How am I compared to him? Yeah, you know, that's... especially too, since those points are assigned in such a random way, you know, with how they weight them for different tournaments and that type of thing. Now, I mean, would they even caught it if this random guy didn't look? Yeah, would well, it have ever have been caught? Now, now, I will say that if they did look, there's a chance they wouldn't have noticed because they don't know Negreanu's results as well as he knows his results. So that's, it's possible this would have gotten by them and they would have just thought he did cash in an online tournament and they just didn't see it before. Like, who would really think that it's just wrongly reported on, on WSOP.com? It's just something no one would think of until, until now. Now everyone's going to be worried about this, but <laughs> uh, prior to this happening, like, who would think of this? So, anyway, I, I want to quickly read a text about a completely different subject. And I'm going to give my opinion. I just got this during the show from the 651. This person wrote, something really irked me, and I was wondering what your opinion was on it. The poker room at Oaks Casino in Tuolumne, California, is taking a promotional dollar drop for every hand on every day and only running promotions on certain days. Is this even legal? I've never heard of this in any card room before. This is at the Black Oaks Casino, not the Oaks Casino. All right. Well, I believe it's legal. Uh... I don't know. California, first of all, this is probably an Indian casino. I don't know the Black Oaks Casino. This is this is like Central California, but uh, I don't know this casino. It's probably an Indian casino. They can do what they want. So that's, that answers that about the legality. In Nevada, I don't know if this would be legal or not. I think this has come up before, but I'm forgetting what answer we came to. In general, if promotional money is collected from like a rake, anything that is player-funded. The only hard and fast rule I know of is just it has to be returned to the players in some way at some point. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same way. It can, like, you can collect it in cash games and return it through a tournament. So I think this probably would be legal in Nevada, is my guess. And in California at an Indian casino, I'm sure it is. It does suck that they would be taking a promotional dollar drop, which makes the rake higher, of course, and then you have 0.0 chance to win that promotion on that day. And they they shouldn't do that, but they are. I agree that you should be pissed here, because I've never played under those, under those circumstances where I've never had a, a dollar taken for a jackpot of any kind where I don't have an immediate chance to win that jackpot. So that's kind of BS. <laughs> They're just taking it and you have absolutely no shot to win it while you're playing. By the way, I've never won a jackpot ever in my life at a poker table. Have you, Trader Risky? I have. I hit one. I had the low end of commerce one time, I think in 4080. Wow. And then I think I hit two at a hustler. So, so, so how much? Actually, it's one table share and one. One small one. So I think the commerce one was bigger. I think it was about 2900 I got for my piece. And the guy almost mucked his hand because he had just come in from New Jersey and he didn't <laughs> know the rule. And I'm like, turn your cards over. <laughs> when he saw I had quads and I think he had aces full. So, he, yeah, he had the losing hand. I was just discussing and then, this. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just discussing this at Commerce. I was at Commerce recently. I was just discussing this at the table. 
because the sixty-one twenty limit hold'em game, they have a dollar drop every hand, and the the big blind has to pay it. The big blind has to put out sixty-one dollars, of which one dollar is taken and dropped, and that's for the jackpot. Otherwise, it's a time charge the game, and. I was just commenting how I hate these jackpot drops. It just eats money. It's basically a dollar out of every pot is taken. So every pot I win, I'm shorted a dollar. And I've never won one in my life. And yeah, I know I've just kind of run bad with never winning one ever or even even a table share. But it's just kind of it's something I don't want. I don't need it. I'm, I'm just there to grind profits. I'm not there to at this little chance of, of hitting a jackpot. Where every time a dollar is taken from the pot, I don't need it. And of course, they make a profit on that too. So it's not even like a, a zero EV thing. Now, if if you're playing a lower stakes game and you can hit some big jackpot that's life-changing money, that's that's wonderful. But for me, if I hit a jackpot, I'd be happy, but this wouldn't change anything for me. This wouldn't be life-changing money or anywhere near that. So it's just kind of an annoyance that they're just dropping a dollar every time and I'm just never hitting it, never hitting any part of it. I, I just I don't like jackpot drops. It annoys me. I wish it didn't exist. Okay, moving on. We're going to try to contact this guy, uh, Trent Daniel. I'm going to ask him if he's here just to make sure. Pretty sure he will be because I know he really wants to come on. I'm going to tell you what he texted me. Hello, my name is Trent Daniel from Free Rolls Entertainment. I heard your podcast the other day. Well, it certainly wasn't pro-free rolls, which I respected. It was very well-produced and entertaining. I don't know about the well-produced part, but I'm glad he found it entertaining. However, there were some factual inaccuracies that I would love to come on and interview with you to address those uh, and any other questions you may want to explore. While I'm not interested in having any conflict-based dialogue, I'm totally open to a productive and informative one if you're open to that. I have an extensive background in media and truly appreciated your approach to the story. So obviously he's coming to me in in a very friendly fashion and uh, wants to come on and discuss this. And I I was mentioning to people about this and they said, oh, well, yeah, obviously he just wants to come on and give more publicity to his his poker room and and his investment plan. And, you know, you're you're being manipulated here. I said, no, no, no. Of course he wants publicity here. But I said – that he has a right, he and anybody else I talk about here, have a right to come on and give a rebuttal or clarification regarding anything I said about them or their business. And it doesn't matter if they get additional gains from exposure or anything else. That's a, once I choose to talk about them, I am giving them exposure. And even if it's negative exposure, then uh, uh, if, if, if they think I treated them unfairly or said things I, that were incorrect, of course they should be able to come on. So we're going to have him on. I, I was sent some questions. I don't know much about this Free Rolls Poker Club. I don't live in Texas. I, I know in general how the whole thing works, which before I call him, I'm just going to let you guys know how it works in Texas, and that is there's no legal casinos there, and there's no such thing as a legal card room. So in order to get around that law, there's these clubs where you're basically paying some sort of membership fee or in some cases a, a, a table seat fee or whatever. They find some sort of flat fee you're paying, and then the game is rake-free because it has to be. If they take a rake, they're in direct violation of the law. So that's the way these poker rooms can operate in kind of a, a gray area in the law. And it really is a gray area. Some of these rooms got busted. Not this one, but some of them got busted last year or earlier this year, actually, and then that got uh, reversed because there's some corruption involved in the uh, – at the DA's office, but 
the point is here, there's all these little rooms there that operate this way where you, you have to pay some fee to get in and some other fee. and then it, There's all these fees that, that add up to where these places can stay in business and at the same time they're not taking a rake. So that's what this is. And I wasn't criticizing it on these grounds because if you if you want to run a card room in Texas, it has to be like that. They're all like this. So I'm not saying that free rolls is doing anything wrong by doing this. This is just what you have to do if you want to run a card room in Texas. And I understand why there's these attempts. And I understand people want to play poker there. So whatever. That's I, I'm not against that. I, I, I hear people saying, oh, these are legal. No, it's, it's kind of quasi-legal. It, it, it's really not that well defined at the moment. And it's kind of teetering on the brink of legal and illegal. But whatever. That I never came at it from that standpoint. I was more coming at it from the solicitation for investment, which they had up on some investment site. And it, they had kind of a funny cartoon introducing it. But when you get past the cartoon stuff, I just was critical that it seems like they've been losing money. And they lost like over 600000 in 2018. And they're, they're asking for more money. And I also was critical of their plan to put uh, ads, like video ads, at each seat at the poker table in that I thought players would find it annoying. So th- those were my real criticisms that I had levied during that segment. But I, I know little about free rolls itself. I There's been some other criticism that others have levied upon them, those who have actually played there or know people who have played there or live in Texas, and I'm I'm none of those things. So I'm not an expert on the free rolls poker club, but... Uh, there's been some questions sent to me by various people after hearing that uh, segment I did, people from Texas who sent me some questions. So he, he offered I can ask him these questions, I will ask him these questions. But these are these are other people's questions, not mine. I I don't really know any of this stuff, and I haven't researched it. So I'm just going to put that out there honestly. But what we're going to do, we're going to call up uh, Trent right now, and we will first let him explain what he felt was incorrect about the segment, which you can go back last week and hear in the archives. And then from that point, uh, this will make more sense to you. Unless you already heard it last week, then you can go listen right now. But if you haven't heard it and you're listening to the archives, I suggest you stop right now and go listen to last week's portion, at least like the half-hour segment we did on this. Otherwise, this won't make much sense. Look at this, I'm getting Skype working on the first try. I'm going to pat myself on the back for this. This is not easy these days. Hello. Hello, is this Trent Daniel? Hey, how are you? Hi, so uh, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and uh, I don't know if you've been listening, but... Is is that me in the background, or is it uh, something else, right? Say again? Are, Are you somewhere where it's noisy in the background? Uh, yeah, let me let me walk away. I'll, okay, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if it was my own show or what. So, were you listening to what I was saying before I called you, or no? Uh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't in the area where I could listen. Okay, no problem. Well, as I was saying to the audience here, I, I always offer that people who I talk about on here or businesses I talk about that people can come on and rebut it or, or clarify things that they feel I got wrong. And I will admit, I don't know that much about your business. I, I only have heard yeah. third-hand things. I don't live in Texas. I've never played there. I, I actually, I'll confess something else. I've actually never been to 
I, actually, no, I've been to Texas once. I, I had not been to Texas till I was 36 years old. I was there once, okay. and that was it. My, my entire experience with Texas. So I, I, and I've never played in one of these Texas poker clubs. I do understand how they work and the, 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 what has to be done to get around the law there, and, and that, that part's fine. That's just the way the situation is there legally. Uh, but uh, what, what did you feel that I had incorrect in the segment that I did about uh, Free Rolls Poker Room. But before you answer that, actually, what is your position with Free Rolls Poker Room? Uh, I'm one of the founders, and I also uh, am the business development director. Okay. So so what did you feel, in, in your from what you remember of what I said, what do you feel I got incorrect in my assessment of, of Free Rolls and the investment scheme that was being pitched? Okay. Well, first of all, it's, it's not really a matter of what was just totally incorrect. It was just some things that are a little inaccurate. Um, and the reason that uh, my team and I decided to go ahead and reach out to you is that, you know, we, we certainly respect and appreciate any opinions that anybody has in different because this is an offering, an investment offering that we're actually doing in the public uh, sphere. So, of course, there's going to be questions and things like that. So we just felt like it was a good time to come on and answer those. So the biggest um, inaccuracy, what I would first of all state, is just on some of the specifics. Now, as you saw on that offering, we're very detailed uh, with information about the, the, the financial statement for the company, uh, specifically for the last of uh, the prior two years, and then the information for the revenues this year. So specifically, I wanted to start off with the um, one of the things that you had brought up there is the drop in revenues in, um, I think it was between September, uh, August and September. So yes, August yes. was a high number. I think we were in the 225,000 range. And then September's numbers was 160. And um, what what you had stated on there, and again, I think it's just an inaccuracy, not something where you're just blatantly wrong, but it was because we had another location that was open under the free rolls banner, and that location took customers from us, and that actually wasn't the case. Uh, the situation was that there was another club called Prime Social, which had been closed down because the two, the, that and another club had been raided. Um, and then, so that customer base from Prime migrated out to our club. Well, uh, uh, let's just say a large number of customers from Prime over the time they were closed migrated out to our free rolls location. And then once Prime reopened after all the charges and everything were dropped against the club, uh, then that audience migrated back. So maybe our, uh, clarification of that on the website was or our explanation of that on the website was not as clear but that's actually the situation it wasn't because another free rolls location was open it's because another competing club opened and their customers that we got from that actually went back there or at least a lot of them did okay so so but what this would sound like to me then if i'm understanding correctly I, and i remember the the prime social busts and that other one that got busted too that that would sound yeah. more like that uh, you got kind of a temporary surge in income that wasn't likely to continue because those reopened and people came back to, to what uh, what was running before. Exactly. Yeah, we had totally unusual growth in the month of August, and even though Prime closed down in May, that that uh, uh, you know that influx of business didn't happen overnight. It really kind of trickled over time. But as more and more time went on, getting into June. In July, then we started to really see a large influx. Um, now, the reasons being, typically, I think a lot of people just felt like Prime was not going to reopen at all. 
Um, and so that's what we saw. So it was unusual for us to break 200,000 like we did in that month. So once Prime opened and we started losing the business, then, then it, was, it was pretty clear that that was the, the direct uh, reason for us, A, getting so much business in August and then losing the business in September. I see. Well, that makes sense. That, that's uh, that, that wasn't even a major point. I was just that was one of the things I was reading through your in, investment offering, and I was uh, that, I I ran into that, and I, I'm looking at it right now again, and I see how this was a little confusing the way it was worded. But okay, I mean that's that's I, I guess I, I believe that there's not uh, there's not much to debate about that one. So what anything else that you'd like to point out here that was uh, inaccurate or inconsistent? Um, one of the things was the uh, the debt um, on the book. So in the in the video, and and you and you played the video, and I was actually glad that you actually played the video because we were able to kind of go point by point. But in the video, as far as the debt was concerned in the business, um, it was most of that debt, as we said in the video, came from the expenses to, to actually construct the club. Um, it didn't come from us putting on any events or anything like that, like the WPT or anything like that. That's actually debt that was incurred while we were doing the construction. So one of the reasons that we made the decision to actually do an online crowdfund, that is, by the way, registered with the SEC. So it's not like we just said, hey, let's go jump online and get a bunch of people start doing, giving us money. That's actually a Reg CF offering. So it requires a registration um, uh, with the SEC um, in order to even do that. And what we funder is, is one of the, one of, if not the most popular and heavily populated, uh, crowdfunding platforms out there. So when we actually made the decision to go out and do that, it specifically was to focus on the retirement of debt as, as part of the, the fundraise. And then the other was toward development of the software system, as of course we'll talk about, and then also, uh, taking the company public. So the key is raise capital, retire debt, develop our in, in-house internal, uh, in closed circuit advertising system, and then focus on getting the ticker symbol. And, uh, it actually is relatively easy to get a ticker symbol and to go public by doing it as a direct offering going into the OTC marketplace. Um, it, it's pretty simple to do. Um, it's really a matter of paying the money in order to do the filings and make sure you meet all the disclosure requirements that the SEC has. And then once that's done, then um, the, the ticker symbol is issued and then you get registered with FINRA and then, uh, you know, it's pretty much off to the races there. Now, if we were trying to list to NASDAQ or the uh, New York Stock Exchange, then it's a whole different story. But going directly to the OTC is not really a matter of anything that presents a big challenge. Okay, so let's uh, let's ignore right now the initial uh, cost of, of building the club, which which I understand can be su- substantial. But right now, the last uh, several months, has it been operating at a profit or a loss? We actually hit profitability uh, in, in the June time frame. I think that was the first, first month that the club was actually profitable. And then we were in profitability for the next couple of months after that. Then going into October, we dipped back down into a little bit of a deficit, of course, and then now we're on track. It looks like the club is going to do in the 155 to 170,000 range this month. So we've actually bounced from the business that we lost um, when primary opened. So we will be uh, in, in profit. We should be. If things continue as they are this month, we should be profitable this month. Not by a great margin like we were in um August, but still definitely achieving profitability. 
Okay, and so I want to talk about these uh, these poker tables because it seems like uh, it seems like these poker tables with the ads on it that's that seems to be the the gimmick to this whole thing of, of where you guys can separate yourselves from these other uh, these other clubs or, or the reason that you you feel this company can be a lot more profitable is because of this innovation rather than just being another uh, Texas poker club is that is that an accurate statement? Uh, that's that's partially accurate. That's one component of it. But yes, that that is is a component of our business model is integration of the advertising through the tablets and also some interactivity later on down the road. But so it it is part of our growth plan. Okay. So so about these tables, and you, I'm sure you heard what I had to say about them during last week. Mm-hmm. But I, and I've thought about it some yeah. more. And, and after you contacted me, I actually went back and listened to the segment again so I could remember things that I said and and bring them back yeah. up here. Because I really just kind of did that on the fly. So some people, someone sent uh-huh. me a message, oh, this is funny, take a look at this. And I said, oh, this is funny, I'm going to, I'm going to do it on the show. And we do this type of thing all the yeah. time. Uh, but yeah. regarding those tables, I was, I really was thinking, well, is this a great idea or is this something that's going to be really annoying to the player? And I kept thinking about it, you know, with, with nine different screens there uh, on the mm-hmm. table – isn't this going? First of all, it's going to be like video, like moving and flashing, right? Like, what won't this? No, there's no, there's static ads because they would be distracting if they were video. They're static ads. Okay, so so, and but how often do they change? Uh, typically, it's set to change every twenty seconds. Now, you could have a dynamic where you know an advertiser actually wants to buy an entire minute block or a, a forty second block, but typically, we found that. It doesn't become distracting if it's not changing like every five seconds. So we found the sweet spot to be in there where we maximize on revenues and also the advertiser gets a good amount of exposure to be 20 seconds. So on average, they would, they would rotate every 20 seconds. Yeah. Now, has, have you thought that maybe also in addition to possibly being distracting or just bothersome to have this in your face the entire time, have you thought about maybe that the, these also take up room to where people can't put their chips there and they, they can't, they like the, they can't have their cards there. It just, it takes up some real estate on the table where, especially if it's a full table, uh, people, it can make the table feel crowded. Have you considered that possible yeah, issue? That's actually, a, that's actually a great question. And when we came up with this concept back in 2018, None of this was proven. So it was a total, you know, a total risk scenario where we felt like the idea made sense. But at the end of the day, would we see a rejection from the marketplace and the players actually doing that? Now, one of the things we did to compensate for the space that was taken up on the tables was to make the the prototypes that we developed actually nine handed. So each player was actually sitting in between the tablets and the tablets were not sitting directly in front of them as if they would on a 10-handed table where typically the cup holders would be. So we moved the table, we set it up on a nine-handed platform and actually moved the, the tablets just over to the left of the player. So they had plenty of space in between those tablets for their chips or, you know, their their tip money or whatever, cell phones, whatever, whatever be it. Now, once we actually came up with the idea of, okay, how do we want to integrate these into the table, then it became a scenario of, okay, how do we, you know, are the, are the players going to reject it? And so literally, well, speaking what we did, we had a local uh, table builder here in Houston build uh, 16 tables for us that actually, well, actually he took some old tables and he, he retrofitted them and inserted the tablets at the nine player stations. And we just tried it out. We opened up our previous location, tried it out. And one of the interesting things that we found is that the players, first of all, they'd be like, well, what is this for? And we just, oh, that's, that's just an advertising screen, and screen, you know, that different ads will show. 
surprisingly enough, very, very few people said, oh, I'm not going to like that. That's going to be distracting. But if they did, they actually did sit down and play poker. And then afterwards, they were like, okay, that didn't bother us at all. It was actually pretty cool. And they found themselves actually looking at the ads that came up. So we had 16 of those tables. We did a, a big tournament, uh, the very, the opening uh, day of the club, and all of the tablets were up and running. We literally had zero complaints about those tablets running ads in. And now we did have a lot of questions about, well, what's this for? But surprisingly enough, the biggest set of questions that we got once people got used to it was, how can I advertise on this? This is a good idea. So, you know, that was kind of our risk of maybe this is just a stupid idea that nobody's going to like and they're going to hate it. But fortunately, once we actually put the prototypes in an actual playing environment, the players adapted to it really, really quickly. And then it became a matter of, you know, when they come back to the club, they're looking at what new ads are there. So it, it ultimately we were able to prove the model with real-world scenarios with poker players actually at the table. So it wasn't just our idea. We actually did test the model. Now, are you trying to sell these tables to rooms around the country or just trying to run them yourselves or within Texas? No, conceptually speaking, um, what our, our goal is is to develop and, and push out to the market an internal closed-circuit advertising system, okay? So, for example, let's just say, uh, let's just throw a name out there. Let's say the Borgata, okay? Well, we would go to the Borgata with these tables and actually approach them to put the tables in the casino for them. We would decorate the felt however they wanted. They'd be very nice premium tables with the uh, phone chargers on them, spare no expense on the table. We'll place those in there, and as those tables are placed in different casinos and card rooms across the country, and, and actually could be across the world, but let's just say realistically speaking in, in, the, in the USA, um, it's a scenario where that creates more distribution for advertising. Now, right now, we're in the Katy location. You're only going to be talking about local advertising. We're not going to pick up any advertising from a Walmart or a, you know, a, a Target or a Ford or a Chevy. You're not going to pick up that kind of advertising. But as we're able to expand these tables out into the market, then that creates more of a footprint for the ads to be distributed by, um, by us. Okay. Now, ultimately speaking, the question is why would a casino take these tables? Well, the first of all, because we actually, part of our model is to actually give the tables to the casino. Now, Borgata, we would not give them 80 or 90 tables. There may be 10 of those tables, okay? But as we're able to do that, 60% of the advertising inventory on those tables will belong to us, and then 40% will belong to the casino, okay? So not only is it a scenario where we're able to further monetize through regional and national advertising because we're actually placing the tables in multiple locations across the country, but it's an incentive for the casinos because they're actually able to sell their own advertising or they can engage us to actually sell the advertising slots for them for their 40%. So number one, they're getting brand new, nice, beautiful tables. Number two, they're getting another revenue stream. Now, at the end of the day, all of these things have to be proven, but because of the, the, the success thus far of the concept, we believe it's something that can be viable going out in the marketplace. Okay. Now, doesn't well, mean it's going to happen overnight. We're going to have to work it. We're going to have to build these relationships and actually test these in other markets. But we're pretty confident that we've got something that, that's going to make sense across the board. Okay, well, I've got a question. I, uh, this is something else I thought of here, and that is when you have these ads on the table, it's not just a matter of the players kind of tolerating it and go, okay, well, this isn't that bothersome. I'll deal with it. Uh, 
wouldn't there be a concern that since the players aren't getting anything out of this, and I mentioned this last week too, since the players aren't getting anything directly out of this, they're just at best going along with it being there. Uh, wouldn't there be a possibility that players would say, hey, you know what, I'd rather play at this other card room where there's not ads in my face. Even if it's not a horrible thing, it's just it's just a little thing I appreciate better in this other room. Might this drive traffic to other rooms from uh, from your room or any other room that runs these to competitors' rooms that don't have it? Well, you know what, that's, that, that, that's a very good question because that is one of the things that we also consider, you know, is like, listen, you know, we've got competitors in this town, and if people really don't like this, um, then, you know, there's an issue where you're going to have to turn this thing off or we're going to have to, you know, do away with it. What we found is that we did not lose any players. And when I say any, I literally mean we did not have anybody who said, I don't like this, I'm not coming back. And as you can see by the growth chart, on the uh, on the website, we continuously achieved higher levels once my partner and I actually took over the club itself. We had some previous managers that we had to get rid of based on some, some theft and some fraud and things like that. So we got them out of the club. And then once we took over, the club continuously started to grow. So as of the market testing that we did here, we did not find any people saying, I don't want this, so I'm going to go here. Okay. Typically, the players play because they like the environment, they like the action, so forth and so on. So, yes, that is an inherent risk as we push this out in the marketplace, but that's something we'll, we'll learn really, really quickly. Yeah, at that really time, can, you know, it, we would look at an adjustment in the model. It really can be because it's, it really is something where if, if people think the rooms are relatively equal, this could be the, a deciding factor where – they say, well, I could go either way with this one. Uh, it'll go to the one without the ads. So I, you, you, you'll have to see it when, when it's running. I agree that this is something where you can sometimes overestimate, overestimate or underestimate the player's negative reaction to it. But uh, let me move on to something else here. Uh, you mentioned yeah. in the uh, in, on, on the investment page about 4,000 customers in nine months. And mm-hmm. then I, I thought about this as I was doing the segment last week, and I go, wait a minute. That sounds good until you think about it. You go, wait a minute. Nine months is, is already getting close to, like, that's, you're not getting that much more than 10 per day. So is, are you really? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So the question is here, what is this 4,000? Is it 4,000 unique people that have come in or is it really you're averaging about 10, like, like 13 customers a day? No, 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 no. That isn't, that is an aggregate of, uh, aggregate of the total number of unique customers that actually are members of this club. Okay. It's not anywhere. On average, um, when we, let's just take baselines. Okay. So when the club was just starting off, we were seeing anywhere from 20 to 30 customers per day. And that's when we first opened. Uh, well, I mean, there were even times where we were only seeing 10 customers a day. We actually had a, $54 night that I'll never forget once we first opened. I thought we were in big trouble, but that didn't last long. So, you know, tw- we were seeing, you know, 20 to 30 customers when we were in our early growth stage. As we started to really come along, we start seeing, you know, 35 to 45 unique players per day. Not necessarily they were all there at the same time. Now we're seeing on average anywhere from 75 to 100 and, you know, 15 customers per day. Um, taking, um, you know, from open at 11 a.m. until 3 a.m. So, no, it's not a matter of 10 or 13. It's not a total of 4,000 customers have played here, you know, on a, on a singular basis. It's on an aggregate. We, we've developed over 4,000 customers. But on average right now, on the low side, you know, you could say we're doing 70 players 
Um, and on the high side, you know, we can do uh, easily over 100. How many, how many tables are in the place? How many poker tables? We actually have 16 uh, tables that we call on our active floor. Now, we could put 22 uh, tables up there because when we did the, did the build-out on this space, we actually set up uh, electricity um, jacks underneath each table station for specifically for the advertising tablets. So we can put 22 tablets, uh, 22 tables up there, but right now we carry 16. We just decided to move some off the floor. It gives a little bit more room. Um, but the previous managers that I mentioned that we actually, you know, had to get rid of, they really did a great job in helping us set up the layout of, of the floor. Uh, they had casino experience. And so, you know, as far as, the particular spacing of the tables and everything, they did a great job on that. So we carry 16 tables at any one time, but we can expand that up to 22. Okay. Regarding the legality, which I know you don't have control over this, but uh, and I know this is a yeah. problem all the clubs in Texas deal with, but, but someone investing here, wouldn't they be at risk that all of a sudden the law could change in Texas that makes it very difficult? And I, I mentioned last week uh, some possibilities of what could be done to make it very difficult for clubs like yours to operate, to, to say say that uh, the exemption for home games, that's only for up to one table now. You, you can't have more than one poker table running in any in any uh, location anymore. Or, or, you can't char- yeah. or you can't charge any membership fee or any kind of fee that, that the only way you can run a poker game is if anyone can sit down for absolutely no fee of any kind and play. Like if they change the law to say things like this, which is possible, then I would think this would be very bad news for your club and every other club like yours in Texas, and this would be a problem Absolutely. for the investor. Absolutely. Very, very, very good point. Very good question. And, yes, that, that question is asked all the time. And here's the deal, okay? Um, another reason why we did an SEC-registered offering in order to raise this capital is specifically because we are required by law, because we're doing this offering, to be full disclosure especially when it comes to risks of investing, okay? Typically, if you look at any other poker club or really any other business that is not doing this type of offering, you know, there really is not a legal requirement to lay out all of these risk factors. Well, one of the things that the SEC looks for in any type of registered offering or anything that's going to be out of the public, especially these red CF, is you have to do what are called risk disclosures, okay? Now, those could be risks from... We're located on the second floor, so someone could be fall, could fall down the steps to we serve alcohol, so someone could get drunk and they could drive off and kill somebody to what if the law changes. So we actually did address that. And actually, once I listened to your broadcast, um, me and my team sat down and looked at that answer. Um, and specifically, the answer to your question is 100% yes. The laws could change. They could do whatever they wanted to do in order to make it impossible for us to operate this type of business in the state of Texas. But one of the reasons that we actually opened our club, and this is very important, and a lot of times people miss this, and, and like I said, because we're doing a, a Rick CF offering, we're pretty much an open book. So back way in the day when I was a young man, I, I got into a little bit of legal trouble, okay? So, well, it wasn't legal. I got a little bit. I got into legal trouble. So here we are, fast forward 20 years later. Well, the key is, number one, staying out of jail is very, very important for us. And one of the things that my partners and I made sure we focused on is that we were not going to open the doors unless we could actually speak to law enforcement themselves, specifically. Not a lawyer, not uh, you know, a, a lawyer for the city or anything. I'm actually talking about uniform, active-duty law enforcement. And we were able to accomplish that. So we were in two sessions of sitting down with local law enforcement, we went over this entire business model, and specifically we followed 
their rules and that were laid out based on what those law enforcement officers who actually investigate vice crimes, and this would fall under a vice crime. So once we were able to get clear, clear understanding from law enforcement, active duty law enforcement, of what we needed to do to stay legal, that's when we actually developed our business model and opened our doors. Now, the laws could change. Absolutely 100%. And if that happened, then the poker room concept is, is, is null and void. It's not going to work. But as far as our expansion concept is concerned, none of that is contingent and based on poker being played in Texas. And that's why we really developed this business in three phases. Number one, build a poker club. Number two, start the advertising distribution system. And number three, actually develop this into a bigger model of taking tournaments to other casinos and car rooms in places where it's legal under the free by to- poker tour banner, which we did a, a free entry $50,000 tournament earlier, uh, well, later, th- or, well, a couple of months ago. And so there's actually three phases to the growth of free rolls entertainment. So it's not just poker. So the, the short answer to your question, yes, you're absolutely right. The laws could change and then poker could be done in Texas. I see. Okay, so now I have some uh, some tougher questions here that that are not for me. These uh, I've gotten uh, listeners who sent me questions when I announced that uh, you're going to be on here, and, yeah. uh, and so so here here come the tougher questions. And Absolutely. So here is here is the first one. Why was the prize pool short at the WBT event you did there? Okay, and we and we we've we've explained this ad nauseum, and so I'll I'll, I'll give a. Uh, I'll give an explanation without taking 45 minutes to explain this, okay? So simply put, we had a, I'm going to say tournament director, but we had someone in charge, okay, of the tournament. And unfortunately, the security aspect of that event was not followed as it was laid out that it should be followed. Now, at the end of the day, everybody is to blame, okay? I'm not going to sit here and point fingers at one person or another. We all failed miserably in really, really making sure that things were done. But specifically, here's how that happened. There was a scenario where when players did a reentry into the tournament, whether it was on purpose or on accident, we're going to focus more on that. It, it kind of felt like it was on purpose. But reentry tickets off of the Poker Atlas system were not being invalidated. So literally speaking, you walk up, you reenter into the tournament, you keep the receipt in your pocket, you go over to where you get your chips, you get your chips, you go get in the tournament, and then guess what? You get busted out, and you walk in, and then you just bring the same receipt back, and you get more chips issued. So that's specifically, specifically what happened in this situation. Now, of course, there's always the, you know, there's always the, the conspiracy theorists, oh, you know, free rolls did this in order to steal money from players and everything, and that's just not the case what happened. It was an absolute breakdown in the security um, measures that well, I, were put in place that were taken, and it just and that's what calls. Well, that, okay? I'm, not, so, I'm not really understanding uh, this though. This is a see something similar actually happened at the World Series of Poker in 2007. In fact, it affected me because I was uh, I finished tenth in that event, so I got less money than I should have. Mm-hmm. But 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 the, yeah. the, the rebuys and add-ons there were actually done informally, where you just say to a floor man walking by, "Hey, I want to rebuy." You'd hand him a thousand dollars, he'd hand you chips, or "Hey, I want to add on." You hand him a thousand dollars, he hand you chips. Well. Guess what was happening? They, they were just pocketing chips and and uh, or, yeah. po- not po- pocketing uh, money, and then uh, hoping that they through color ups they could kind of cover this up of, of uh, why there were extra chips there. And th- this definitely happened. 
And uh, I heard there were people fired over it. Unfortunately, nobody was ever arrested as far as I know. Anyway. Yeah. This sounds semi, uh, sort of similar, uh, but but the way you're describing it, it does sound like still people are reaching in their pocket and pulling out money to rebuy. And it's not it, – so it should be somewhere. The only way the money could not be in the prize pool would be if somebody just decides, well, since there's no record of this occurring, I'm just going to pocket it, much like what happened at the World Series. So is that what you're saying well, happened? No, no. It's actually a scenario. So let's just say you're in a tournament and you do a rebuy. They give you a, a, a receipt, right? You go to where the chips are given out. You get your chips, okay? And if that receipt is not invalidated – you literally can walk back up there later on and get more chips, okay, and you didn't do a rebuy. So it's a scenario where the number of chips in the tournament doesn't match oh, up to the actual you're cash so, so, you're, put so, you're, in. so you're saying so that, that people, were, were just, uh, people were doing fake rebuys without having uh, actually put the money in, that they just keep uh, bringing up the same receipt and saying, hey, give me chips. Yes, absolutely. And again, it took us a long time to really go through and investigate this and look at exactly what happened. And unfortunately, you know, we, 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 we do not know it to a certainty, but we do have some relative assurance that people that we actually ended up hiring to work for this club, um, from that event were actually involved in some of that. Now, whether again it was intentional or not, that's, you know, we don't know. And, but at the end of the day, like I said, is that we as the company had to take responsibility for that because it never should have happened. It was a complete breakdown in protocol. It was a breakdown in procedure. And honestly, the last thing in the world we expected was have 452 players, you know, come in this thing and, and, and everybody was overwhelmed. That's not an excuse. That's just a reality of doing an event where there's a hundred thousand guarantee and then you end up with a seven hundred ninety thousand dollar prize pool. Well, so what happened? So, um, what what now, happened regarding the money that was short? Uh, what what happened? Did you guys cover it, or what what happened? What was the final? Result? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately speaking, the club had to cover it, and that's exactly what we did. Um, you know, and now, and I do have to say this. Fortunately, um, you know, we had some very gracious players. Um, you know, that kind of understood what 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 happened and what went on. And, and, you know, when those questions were asked, we answered them. But, yeah, I mean, it's not a situation where, you know, somebody actually didn't get their money um, from that. So, you know, it, it took some time, and we had to actually work with some of those, those uh, a couple of those players, and really the bigger ones. But eventually we got it all worked out, and so everything was fine. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's just one of those things where, man, you just hope you just don't screw up like that ever again. Um, and you understand what procedures to put in place to make sure it didn't happen. Part of it was a failure in quality control as far as some of the people that we recruited to work in that event. Um, you know, we had a situation where uh, a tournament director was just basically thrown in. He really didn't have the experience and stuff like that. He just got a phone call and said, hey, I want you to be the tournament director. So these are some things that at the end of the day, they were decisions made by people who were put in place to do these jobs. But at the end of the day, hey, it was a pre-rolls entertainment event, and we had to take responsibility for it. So, yeah, we eventually were able to get everything taken care of and make things right or at least get it to get it on the path of being right. So we screwed up, and it was, that was a really tough period because it was really embarrassing, um, and we hated that happen. But, you know, we were able to uh, ultimately remedy the situation. There were some accusations regarding that event that uh, that some seats were simply just given away uh, by, by free yeah, rolls. That's, that's- yeah, that, that's just a lie. I mean, that, that's just, you know, and, and, you know, that's kind of one of those things where, you know, people tend to kind of pile on. Uh, I'll give you an example. There was this rumor that, 
you know, we stole all of the uh, money from the dealers. Okay, you know, we did this big event. We put ourselves out there. We did national advertising for it, partnered with the World Poker Tour, and then we decided to steal, you know, uh, uh, money from the staff. That was just insane. But, you know, there's nothing you can do about the rumors and the rumor mill um, and those who choose to listen to them and, and believe them. You're not going to change their mind anyway. But Ultimately speaking, what we focus on is, guess what? We've got all the paperwork. We've got all the documentation. If there were ever any seats that were awarded, it's because they actually won those seats through satellite tournaments and stuff like that. So, you know, it's not a scenario where a seat was given away. Now, for example, I do have a personal friend that I gave him the money to actually get in the tournament. So, you know, if you want to call that being a seat given away, but the actual cash was put in. So it's not a situation where we went and got you know, friends, families, cousins, and, and nieces and nephews and decided to put them all in the tournament for free uh, to play. That That's, that's, just, that's just a blatant lie. Okay. The, the debt that you guys have, uh, yeah. is, is this a, a serviceable debt, like, like a banknote, or, or is it it's just that you guys owe multiple contractors and companies? Well, actually, if you look on the website, and again, that's one of the great things about this Reg CF offering, is it really forces us, and and we would anyway, but it really we really have to be the biggest thing about an an offering like that is that disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. So if you look on there, we actually list out the debts that we have. Okay, um, so there's. There is some debt from contractors. There are people that gave the company loans while we were doing construction on the club. There's people who actually worked for the club that, that they accrued some debt and things like that. So it is all serviceable debt. Now, one of the things I can say is a lion's share of that debt comes from two or three either individuals or companies, okay? They're very friendly to the company. We've been able to negotiate, renegotiate, and work out terms that didn't uh, bottleneck the company financially and didn't didn't create a financial hardship as the company was developing out, and we still have great relationships with those people today. So none of that debt is anything that you would call toxic debt. There's no convertible note features, um, no con- no convertible notes with any of that debt, and so it's a scenario where while yes, it is debt, it's not any type of debt where you're talking about that is putting a stranglehold on the company. Yeah, I, I actually found where you're talking about. For some reason, I missed this the first time. Uh, I, yeah, I, uh-huh. I found it under outstanding debts, and there's a number of things listed. Uh, and yes. uh, most of these things I'm seeing here, the debt is uh, it's, it's mostly unpaid from from the original amount. In fact, for some, I guess from the interest, there's some that are actually higher, where it says amount like 150,000, outstanding 160,000. Is that from the interest? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, in fact, well, you know, if you want to call it interest, we really call it kind of like a fee that he charged just in order to give us the money because, um, and, and again, very friendly to the company and, and has no interest in hurting the company and just, you know, they see the growth and so they're comfortable with the fact that, okay, when the company gets to the point where it can either pay this debt off or service it, then they'll do that. But that was, you know, a really good, uh, uh, payback amount on top of the money that was given to us. Some of them, the interest rates are a little high, but, you know, at the end of the day, when you need the money, you need the money. You basically have to take, you know, the, the deal that's there in order to get where you need to get. But, again, our thing is preferably before we get the ticker symbol, we would like to have the debt paid off completely. Now, it's not where we can't do any of that if we don't zero out the debt, but we certainly want to be in a position where we're really, really effectively servicing that debt. And and, and, no, and the investors, they won't see any uh, return until all this debt is paid. Is that correct? Uh, no, that's not that's not true at all. Because ultimately speaking, once the company has its ticker symbol and the stock starts trading, 
those investors, we're actually going to register those shares. And this, this is very important for people to understand that when we do the registration, uh, when we actually file to get the ticker symbol, there's what's called a registration statement. Now, in that registration statement, we are actually going to register the shares that were issued to investors through our offering, okay? So they will be able to go out in the open market and sell that stock just like anything else. So, no, it's not a situation where all the debt has to be completely zeroed out before anybody can get a return on their investment. Now, as far as dividends are concerned, should the CFO and we decide to actually pay out dividends, then, yes, we would want to make a substantial dent in that debt or completely eliminate it before we started paying out dividends because that just wouldn't be smart business to start paying out dividends and, you know, you're carrying $600,000 in debt on the books. But at the end of the day, that's another reason why we're actually going this process because we could have just done a registration statement to file and go to the OTC. We didn't need to go through this Reg CF offering. We've done very well raising capital, and we can still raise it that way. But what our concept was is let's go the route of the most disclosure because we had the debacle with the WPT. We had some things that, you know, were not perfect and that went wrong throughout the course of the business. We actually had two people that worked for the business that were stealing from the business. They were stealing internal information. They were hacking into emails and doing all that. So we just felt like from the standpoint of really making investors feel comfortable, there's two things we want to do. Number one, we want to make it a very low threshold for them to invest. That's why it starts off at $300, okay? Number two, we want to go the path of the most disclosure. There is not any poker club in the state of Texas that is as transparent as we are because we have to be because we're actually doing an SEC-registered um, uh, uh, we're doing actually doing a fundraise that had that we had to file with the SEC before we did it. Okay, so at the end of the day, anybody who makes the decision to invest, whether it be three hundred dollars or three hundred thousand, they're going to know everything. All the disclosures are out there. I mean, we even had to put the names of the people that had funded um, into the business, so it wasn't like person A and person B. You know, we didn't like that we had to be that transparent because some people don't want their information out there like that, but. You know, one of the things that you'll find with free rolls is that we are absolutely transparent when it comes to informing the investors before they make a decision. Now, one very good thing that you pointed out, well, one very good point that you made, hey, this isn't for everybody. There's some people who think this concept is absolutely stupid. It's not going to work. The club's not going to work. We messed up with the WPT thing, which was over a year ago. We're never going to recover. We're going to fail no matter what we try. And there's some people who are of that mindset and that belief, that's fine. But as you can look at the uh, the, the fundraising website, we raised $50,000 in a very short amount of time. So not everybody believes that. So for those who want to invest, the information is there. And by all means, do your due diligence, do your research, do your homework, ask questions before you invest. If you don't think it's going to work, then it, it's not for you. Okay. Let me ask you another uh, – you mentioned about uh, two people were uh, fired for stealing, so that will bring me to my next question. Uh, apparently there's been uh, three or four general managers in a, in a short time period. So uh, th- does that include the, the people who stole? Were there two of the general managers thieves? Or w- what's the story? Why have there been so many general managers in a short time period? Okay, well, specifically speaking, there have only been three general – well, two general managers, okay? The first general – and, and you know what? I said we got rid of them. Ultimately speaking, it was a matter of that we created an environment where it forced them out, okay? We needed them to leave, and at the end of the day, we were able to make that happen. Um, 
and then there was so there was one general manager and then there was a female partner of his so she really acted but she wasn't the final decision making it was that gentleman then after that we brought on some interim managers that were not there long term they were just coming in to fill in the gap until we actually found a, a manager and the lady that we actually have in place right now who is absolutely phenomenal she actually worked with me in another business um and she was responsible for over a million dollar contract that we actually had with Walmart um and she handled all the logistics and everything like that so once we got to a certain point where we really knew the business was viable and it was successful, we brought on that one manager. So actually, there's only been two general managers, but once um, the other, the first crew left, then myself and my partner, Charles Potter, um, we took over and we basically ran things until we were able to find a general manager that we could really put a lot of trust into. Okay, and of those general managers who are not there anymore, uh, there's a rumor that uh, you still owe – when I say you, I mean the business, I still owe them money. Is that true? Uh, actually, that is 1,000% true. And specifically speaking, if you go look at the uh, – I'm actually going to radio interview. Um, if you go look at the um, um, look at the webpage, you will actually see, and I'm not going to say her name, but that young lady, her name is on there, and there's, a, there's a, a, an amount of money right next to her what we owe. So this is not anything where we have not – treated them fairly or anything like that. Now, let me, let me just explain this real quick because this is very important because one of the things that this, this, this gentleman and lady have done, they really try to focus on a smear campaign, okay? It's all conjecture and, and, and not verifiable in this and this, but that's just how they operate, and that's really one of the reasons why they were so successful in stealing when they were here at the club. So they were hired to specifically manage the club. Okay. Now, as part of managers working at the club to help get the club up and going, they actually did work on the club just like we all did. We hung some wires, we hung TVs, we put in, you know, toilets. We all pitched in, and as, as all people who wanted this thing to open and be successful, we all pitched in and did it. So we had an agreement with them where we were going to, they wanted $15,000 a month, and the company just was not in a position to pay them 15000 a month. So what we did, we actually issued shares of stock to the gentleman and his, uh, I guess, fiance, girlfriend, wife, or his partner. They got paid. Well, he had access to the bank accounts, and then all of a sudden he just decided to start writing himself $5,000 checks that he wasn't authorized to get. Totally out of our agreement, and those shares were actually rescinded based on fraudulent representations on his part. So... Once that started happen, then we said, okay, you know what? We're not gonna we're not gonna get rid of you. We want to try to make this relationship work. So you go ahead and you guys take fifteen thousand a month, okay? So that was fine. But then it started these scenarios where checks were being written by those people to themselves that were not authorized to be written. And so the CFO had to actually issue a letter stating that, hey guys, listen, no checks over five hundred dollars are to be written without authority of the permission from the CFO. Guess what? Still writing checks, okay? So it came to a situation where we knew we had to create a dynamic where they were going to leave, and that's exactly what we did. But ultimately speaking, the money that we owed them was because they came down, they volunteered, and they did work, and they did the same thing that myself and my other two partners did. We did not take paychecks if it meant that we needed to pay rent or pay payroll because we had to pay our people first. So 
so we all deferred our salaries or we deferred payments. So when they left, they actually left with money owed to them based on deferred payments and also money that they paid in to help uh, help us um, <clears throat> try to revive our relationship with the world purgatory. Now, this is very important. <clears throat> Instead of them, once they left, going down and getting an attorney and filing whatever that they needed to do <clears throat> in order to protect their interests, this gentleman actually went and filed a fraudulent lien with Harris County. And what I mean by a fraudulent lien is that he actually had a false affidavit written up, notarized that affidavit that was completely full of perjury, okay? And what he said in that lien is that the company actually hired him as a general contractor for the club. Not that we hired them to be a manager, but that we hired him to be a general contractor. So the blatant dishonesty of this person and his partners to just make up a false contract that never existed, and we even dragged his ass into court, excuse me, we dragged him into court, and he even admitted on the stand that, well, he did. The, the, my lawyer asked him, well, do you have a contract with Free Rolls Entertainment as a general contractor? Well, um, it may be in an email. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think so. The bottom line is he knows it's a lie. So not only did this guy steal from us, not only did he lie, but then he actually went and committed perjury by filing a false affidavit saying that and putting a lien on the building. Now, specifically the reason that he put the lien on the building at first, because he had tried to get the landlord to terminate our lease by getting one of our other contractors that we owed some money to, to file a lien. Well, that contractor decided not to do that because we actually had a relationship with him and he wasn't going to try to make up something in order to hurt the club. So this gentleman actually went down and filed his own fake lien in order to try to get the landlord to terminate our lease. The landlord contacted him and he told him, you better get that lien off of my building. The next day the lien was amended and then it was specifically on the suite that we occupy. So this guy is, is really a manipulative liar. Okay. And his whole way of doing business is try to divide and conquer people. So at the end of the day, yes, we owe them money. We have no problem paying them money. But number one, they've got to admit to how much money they stole. And that has to be deducted from that amount. And then we'll, we'll settle this out and we're good to go. But we're not just going to give away money because they say that, that this is the amount they just can't pull it out of their butt somewhere. We're just not going to do that. A lot of drama here, but okay. Let's uh, let's uh, a whole lot of drama. Let, let me let me get back to the thing with uh, WPT because I was I was sent another question. Uh, so, someone said that they were present during the WPT, and they actually watched uh, somebody bust go to the cage and actually give your wife a thousand dollars to to re-enter, and then saw that the number of entrants didn't change. And then when asked about why that happened, they were told that uh, they were only ent- adding entrants for the number of unique entrants. So uh, okay. what, what's your response yeah, that, to that? that? Yeah, that's a total lie. Now, and, and, and let, let me explain why, okay? And this is one of the things that, you know, um, we're, we're a lot smarter than people think we are sometimes. So number one, um, yes, my wife did work, work in the cage. I, I did work in the cage area just as my partner's wife worked there. there. Number one, because they're the people that we trust the absolute most. They're not going to steal a thing, okay? Now, that's a specific scenario where it's not a case of where someone brought money up, took the money and said, we're only entering unique entries. That's not the case at all. The issue was Poker Atlas, the software, was having all kinds of technical issues because Poker Atlas is a program that runs off of 
internal Wi-Fi, okay? So what would happen is, literally speaking, we were having problems getting people registered into the tournament. So someone could come up and do a rebuy. We scan their ID. We can't even get the ID scanned, okay? So it's a scenario where we went to a manual processing system to take people's payment, give them a receipt for that payment, log that receipt in a receipt book, which we actually have to this day, and then once Poker App was back up and running, then those entries are put in. So, But again, see, this is just how people take one thing and then they want to pile on and spin it into a bunch of crap. And let me tell you something, there is nobody in there that saw my wife stealing, and they wouldn't have had law enforcement there right away because there are enough people pissed off at us because we were even able to get that event done. So at the end of the day, that did not happen at all, pure and simple. Okay. Well, that's, that's the end of the questions I have. So uh, th- thank you for being uh, open and detailed about this. I think uh, the listeners can decide for themselves of uh, what, what they feel about the whole thing. Is there anything else you'd like to say or any other kind of statement you'd like to make before we uh, end the interview? Uh, you know what? Really, to be honest with you, I just want to thank you for, um, you know, talking about this on your show. And again, like I said in the email is that, you know, you're in media and I've, I've been in media a long time. And sometimes there's going to be different opinions, people who like stuff, who don't like stuff. And that's fine. But you took a very fair approach to it. It, it was actually kind of funny, some of the things that you said, but you took a very fair approach. And literally speaking, um, like I explained to my team, because there were some people on the team who were upset about it. I said, guys, listen, at the end of the day, all press is good press if you can have an honest conversation about it. And what you did on your broadcast is that you really brought out the honest conversation. That's why I was willing to come on and, and talk to you more about that. And literally speaking, we did have two people who heard your show, and you brought up some questions in their mind. And they contacted us, and we were able to answer those questions. One of them invested $5,000. That's why you saw the number jump from like forty. 2000 or something like that up to 47 because that person invested $5,000. So uh, what your show did is that it brought awareness to the situation. Um, I did appreciate the fact that, you know what, you, you asked a question. I figured you'd ask tough questions tonight. But at the end of the day, all we can do is give honest answers, and then people make their own decisions and go from there. But, you know, I really do appreciate it, like, when there's well-produced media out there like you did that is able to present you know, a, a different side of the story than maybe we agree with. But at the end of the day, it was legitimate, it was honest, and I'm glad we were able to talk about it and clarify it and then kind of let people go from there. Well, you know, if, if someone uh, listens to the show and invested $5,000, I, th- I think Poker Fraud Alert deserves a commission here. You know what? If the SEC, if the SEC allowed us to pay commission <laughs> on money that was brought in, I'd, I'd actually be calling you and tell you to where do I need to send the check to. But, again, that's another thing about the way we're doing this is that there's some very strict rules that we have to follow. And, like I said, you will not find another Texas poker club that has actually done anything where they actually registered with the federal government to do it. So, uh, But that is one of the rules that we can't pay any commissions or anything like that on that. But, uh, hey, I, I'll tell you what, I certainly, if you're ever in, in, in Katy, Texas, you can come play some poker and hang out with us a little bit. We'll give you some free drinks. How's that okay, okay. Well, uh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad hey, you came wait, on here. Jeff, let me ask you a question. Oh, that, that, that's, that's my, uh, my, that's my uh, uh, hey. co-host here. Oh, hey, how are you? I just had a question. So- Good. How you doing? Good. Um, hey, is this, so is there any IP that's been like patented or anything around <clears throat> the, the ad distribution system for the poker tables? Uh, there's not anything that actually has a patent issued yet because we're actually still in the development of the framework. But, yes, there will be two components of this distribution system that will be um, specific, uh, uh, unique 
technology that we're integrating in. Um, you know, we've hired some great programmers. Um, one of them actually crazy enough with all this stuff going on right now with, uh, with the president is from Ukraine and actually, uh, has been in the country for quite a while. But, um, we are developing some new, um, uh, technology for this that we will be filing, um, um, for, uh, patents and things like that on. Um, but at this time, basically, initially what we did is we just pulled together other components of systems out there to exist to push the ads to tables and see what kind of response we were going to get to test the market. So so regarding that Ukraine developer, has he ever worked with uh, Donald Trump or Hunter Hunter Biden before? (laughs) Uh, Let let me say uh, no. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, again, th- thank you for coming on here. I always open this up to people who want to respond. Uh, the-, the segment I did last week, it was uh, kind of like a semi-serious segment. It was uh, more for entertainment purposes. Uh, whenever I find some video I can play and uh, and kind of laugh at it, I always uh, will do that on this show because the audience enjoys it and I enjoy doing it. That's that's really what that was more about last week, but it actually turned into yeah. a, a more serious segment this week. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's how they go sometimes. And uh, – um, I don't have any kind of uh, dog in this fight. I, I know very little about the whole subject, and I've never been to any of these Texas card rooms. And uh, just it, it, the subject was brought to me, and uh, I always look for things to talk about because we do like a six-hour show here. So uh, the more to talk about, the better. But uh, thank you for coming on. I thought it was interesting, and uh, the listeners can now decide for themselves what they uh, would like to do. Well, we totally appreciate you taking the time, and we do appreciate you uh, and, and all you do for the community and stuff like that. And congratulations, you guys, and keep up the good work. Okay. Thank you, Trent. Good Thanks. Out. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was interesting. We uh, got to hear a lot about the Free Rolls Poker Club and, and the tough questions. See, we, we came with the tough questions. I started off with the easier ones. The, these were my questions, the easier ones at the beginning. And then there were the listener questions of people who uh, were familiar with it and knew of some uh, controversies who are more in tune with what's going on there in Texas and sent me the tougher questions, and I asked those too. So no, no softballs here. But uh, we got answers to them all. And, I might uh, put in another 5K. Yeah, you, <laughs> I was, you trade a risky. Oh, wow, I, I wish you had told me. Okay, well, let's move on here to another story. And this one is not about Texas, but it's about Tahiti. Begins with a T also. Cirque du Soleil founder and known high-stakes poker fish Guy La Liberté has been arrested for growing marijuana on his property there. So uh, Guy La Liberté has a history in poker. And that's what makes this story of dual interest to this show. Number one, it's a Las Vegas story because of Cirque's presence in Las Vegas. You've probably seen a Cirque show if you've gone to Vegas more than a few times. And also, he was a poker player. He was also an online poker player. And he famously lost many millions of dollars on full tilt. And in fact, in 2014, long after Black Friday and Full Tilt going down and then back up and having all its problems and getting bought out by poker stars because they were broke and stolen all the money, after all that was done, Gila Liberté said that he thought that he was actually cheated back in the day on Full Tilt, that all those many millions he lost, that there was some form of cheating against him. But the current story involves nothing having to do with poker or gambling but something he was doing on his own property in Tahiti. 
Guy is a very, very rich man, as you might guess. And he has an interesting history. This was not someone who you would have thought would end up as successful as he was, or as rich as he was, from where he began. Guy Le Liberté began as a street performer. That's all he was, was a street performer. And he was in college at one point, but had dropped out. So at that point of his life, no longer in college, didn't have a degree, was a street performer. The chance that he would end up a billionaire was pretty damn low. However, he he took his uh, street act and then developed a kind of a stylish circus from it and then eventually created a show around it and then the show expanded, expanded and uh, there was a lot of good press around Cirque du Soleil and then eventually it expanded into an entertainment empire with uh, many different shows, many different performances in different cities, a big presence in Las Vegas and he made a fortune. Eventually, he sold the company for $1.5 billion. So he doesn't own Cirque anymore, but he cashed out $1.5 billion from it. Very, very impressive for a college dropout street performer. But like many guys who are rich and or famous, he kind of got the poker bug too in the 2000s. And something about poker, it really draws people in. And people can really get excited and passionate about it, even if the money doesn't mean all that much to them. So you had people like Jerry Buss, owner of the Lakers, who got so into poker that I actually watched him playing a $1,000 buy-in small field limit hold'em tournament and concentrating completely on that and ignoring the Lakers playoff game that was up on the monitor in the same room. This is really true. I saw this with my own eyes because I was in that tournament too. He he was obsessed with poker in the last few years of his life and only had limited care for the Lakers, which is crazy to think about. You've had uh, various celebrities that have really gotten into playing poker. You had one celebrity who got into playing poker and became good, and because of his celebrity and getting invited to high-stakes home games and his deep bankroll from his uh, from his Hollywood life, was able to parlay that into huge winnings, perhaps one of the biggest poker winners of all time, and Trader Risky, who do you think I'm talking about here? Um, I have no idea. Let's see if the chat room knows who I'm talking about here. This is a little offshoot of the story, but this is... Uh, let's see if the chat room knows who I'm referring to. Might be the biggest winner in poker of all time, and if not one of the biggest winners, but you won't find much about... I mean, not Jamie Gold. No, not Jamie Gold. This is an actor. An actor who uh, made a ton of money in poker, mainly in these private games. Private, very, very high-stakes games that you have to be invited to. Oh, is it uh, Spider-Man? Yes, Tobey Maguire. Tobey Maguire, who I, I watched coming up in poker, playing at the 1020 No Limit at Bellagio, and then the 2550 No Limit at Bellagio. He just learned. He played a ton of hours, a ton of hours. I watched him day after day after day just doing nothing but playing poker. And he got better and better, and then he went to these home games he was invited to, these very high-stakes home games with businessmen who didn't want to invite poker pros. And he got the invite because he was Spider-Man. 
but he was as good as the poker pros, or almost as good, and he crushed those games and just won a fortune. So that's uh, that was a good story for. And there there was a version of him in Molly's game. I hear. I still haven't seen this, but I heard there was a version of him that was portrayed. So there's a lot of different actors who've gotten into poker a lot. Of course, James Woods, another one. Uh, we had Ben Affleck, and he actually had to stop it because it was part of his whole uh, addiction that he was trying to kick. He's had a number of addictions, and gambling was one of them. He recently fell off the wagon, as we reported on a recent show. Uh, Rene Angelil, I think that's how you say his name, that was uh, Celine Dion's husband, who has since passed away. He played high-stakes poker at Bellagio. In fact, I knew someone who got a call from the floor man whenever Rene showed up because he was not as good as the other high-stakes pros, and they were happy to see him there. So they would get a call whenever he was there and rush down, and the floor man would get a fat tip for doing that. A lot of people who are rich and famous. And, and Phil Locke's girl. Oh, yeah, 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 of course, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Tilly. Jennifer Tilly, yeah, who who made a lot of money acting and a lot more money being uh, the ex-wife of Sam Simon, one of the creators of The Simpsons. So uh, Probably the greatest gambling movie of all time. What, The Simpsons? <laughs> no, 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 the, uh, uh, the one with Richard Dreyfuss, the horse movie. Let it ride. Okay, okay. So we... we uh, there's a lot of people who have gotten into poker that not just have played while famous, but that actually really, really got into the game, sometimes forgetting much else going on in their life. And you'd think, oh, a celebrity, you know, they're not going to care that much about poker. No, a lot of them do. It, it, it captivates people the same way it does uh, for, for regular folks. Anyway, one of those people was Guy Le Liberté, a guy who had more money than he could ever make in poker to where... It would matter. Even if he made like the Tobey Maguire money, it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, the guy sold Cirque for $1.5 billion. You can't ever make money in poker, even these super high-stakes games that would come close to making a difference for, to someone who, who had $1.5 billion. I wonder what his net worth is. I didn't look that up. Let me look that up right now. What is Guy Liberté's net worth? It's, it's, it is currently $1.1 billion. I guess it's gone down. I don't know if he got the entire $1.5 billion that he sold. He had to put taxes on it. So, um, Actually, it's claiming – I've seen two different sources. I'm seeing uh, $1.1 billion and $1.37 billion. Whatever. It's over a billion. So what interest would he have in poker? Well, it's a challenge. And that's the same reason Jerry Buss, who had a net worth in the hundreds of millions, he, he wanted that same challenge. That's why he played – Cash games at, at uh, Commerce or even more meaningless, the uh, the $1,000 buy-in 60-person field tournament of Limit Hold'em. Well, what's he going to win there? 30 k or something at most? Like it's, That's going to do nothing for, for Jerry Buss back when he was alive. So these people play for the challenge and not for the money. And, of course, they want to play as high stakes as they can play, partially because they want to play the best players and partially because they're, they're used to dealing with such large sums of money. They, they at least want to say, okay, I, I won this much money. I won millions, not, not I won 2000 That's not going to impress them. So even if it's not life-changing money, at least they can say, well, it's still millions of dollars. Whereas if, if you have a billion and let's say even win 10000 it's that's not going to even be slightly exciting. So It's like you're playing one cent, two cent. How could it even 
I right. don't even care. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like a regular person playing one cent, two cent. You just go, okay, whatever. You know, the, the money is totally meaningless. So Guy was playing on full tilt poker a lot in the 2000s and the early 2010s, uh, up until when Black Friday came and the site went down. And he lost a fortune. He would play these nosebleed stakes, no-limit games for the most part. And he would just keep getting crushed. And then he would call them and say, I want to change screen names. I don't want people seeing I'm losing. So they'd say, okay, Guy, whatever you want. So, of course, a lot of people beating him were, were, were some of the pros there. So they did whatever Guy wanted. It was technically against the rules there to, to have different accounts. But for Guy, they made an exception. And whenever he wanted a new screen name, they gave it to him. But it didn't take long because there weren't very many unknown nosebleed stakes players. And one would show up and one would clearly not be as good as the regulars on there. You'd know who it was. So it was pretty clear, especially given how, how much he'd reload and how much he'd lose. Like it, it wasn't just like a guy taking a shot for 100K and losing and disappearing. Like it, the, the account would show up and lose millions and then disappear. Another one would show up and lose millions. It was pretty clear who it was. And this is not a rumor. He admitted this in 2014 that, that he was a lot of these accounts. He didn't name them all, but he, was, uh, he, he made it very clear he lost a lot of money there, millions and millions of dollars. And he felt actually that he had been cheated. Now, I don't believe he was cheated. I think he was just a fish. As critical as I am of Full Tilt, I don't believe they were cheating Guy in any way. I think this is just an excuse because he lost a ton of money there and probably because the site had a lot of scandal from stealing all the money and, and everything else that happened there. Of course, he thinks, oh, well, that's why I was losing so many millions there. It's because they were all cheating me. The truth is he just wasn't as good. There was a, a gigantic skill gap between him and the typical player who was uh, facing him on there. Herala Bob Volgaris said at the time, the guy was basically a huge loser the first week he started playing full tilt. These guys weren't playing with imaginary, imaginary limitless money. They were playing for the most part with, with Guy's money, and his opponent's bankrolls kept going up and up and up the more he played. See, one of his, one of his accusations was that uh, these people weren't only... Uh, cheating him in some way, but that they were also just uh, given unlimited reloads with money they didn't have with the expectation they would win. So basically that, that full tilt would just let, him, let them just reload, reload, reload it to where his big bankroll was not an edge because it was assumed that they were more skilled than he was. So even if they really went busto against him, full tilt would just loan them whatever they needed to keep playing him, assuming that they're going to beat him eventually. And Haralabov saying that that was not true. What was happening over time is just these players were getting richer and richer because he kept losing to them. He said that he said Guy never had any uh, upswings when playing live or online. The gap between him and the players he was playing against was that big. He was drawing dead, and I believe it. This this was back in 2014. This whole thing came up. Uh, what Guy said at the time was, "I should have remembered that I am a dinosaur compared to to the this the internet." The story of Full Tilt is clear. I got scammed squarely by people I know personally who, who use unlimited bank paying no money. It is easy to go in all the time when it's not your own money. They printed money to play against me. Then they put uh, they put two, three, I was stupid. Uh, so the, they put two, three was referring to collusion. It didn't seem like he was alleging like super using, but that these high stakes players were, were when they would play multi-way would collude against him. But he didn't provide any evidence that he colluded against and didn't name anybody that he felt colluded. So this was really just a sore loser. This is not too different than Leon Sukernik, 
when he lost uh, playing Aussie Matt Heads Up and took a loan from Aussie Matt Heads Up and then lost millions of dollars and then didn't want to pay him and claimed he was being cheated. It, it was really just about I'm really rich and I got beat by poker pros and I'm a sore loser. I don't want to admit they beat me. Not that I can't afford to pay them. I just I don't want to admit they beat me. And the only way I can get around admitting that is by saying they cheated me. So it was very similar. Except in this case, he did this years after the fact and the money was gone. So that's uh, really his main poker history. He has played some live tournaments. I don't even know if he's cashed in any. Let me see. Let me see if he has a hinted mom. I didn't bother even look at that. Let's see. I know. I know he played like some very high stakes events. He does have a Hendon mob, so he's got to cash in something. He's actually cashed uh, more than me in tournaments, two point five million. I've cashed nine hundred seventy four thousand. I guess that makes me a, an inferior player to Gila Liberté. However, um, it looks like uh, this was from two results total: six hundred ninety six thousand, finishing fourth at the. 25k WPT in 07 and five years later in 2012 in the million dollar big one for one drop he somehow managed to finish fifth forgot about that so so he 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 cashed 1.834 million but he put in a million to enter but speaking of that uh Guy was also a big figure with the one drop the one drop is actually his charity and he was putting in a lot of the pros into the one drop who couldn't afford the one million dollars. Uh, he started the one drop foundation. They th- this is a charity which provides safe drinking water and uh, and hygiene assistance to th- third world countries. And the one drop tournament raises money for the one drop foundation, and that's fine. The charity has a good reputation. I don't think the charity is a scam or anything. I think it's a legitimate charity, and it's nice that he's doing that. But uh, that's that's the reason for the one-drop event is because of Guy, and he would put in a lot of the pros who were entering, especially the million-dollar buy-in. It alternates a million one year, a thousand, hundred thousand the next year, a million one year, a hundred thousand the next year. Then there's the quote little one for one-drop, which is a uh, eleven hundred eleven dollars that is every year. So the, the million-dollar one, he would befriend certain pros and, and put them in. Then there was the rumor of what happened with Chino Ream, that he put in Chino Ream in the 100K event and stupidly gave Chino Ream the $100,000 to go buy in with. And I bet you know what happened to that $100,000. <laughs> it did not make it to the cage. It did not make it to become a buy-in. It just disappeared. And uh, reportedly, Guy just shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, well, that's Chino, and." Figured he's just not going to buy him in again. <laughs> so Chino just, the rumor is just basically stole 100000 from Guy. But uh, everybody else that uh, Guy was buying, like a lot of those people at the one drop, you see them playing, you go, how do these pros enter for a million bucks? Like, are they really risking a million bucks in one tournament? The answer was, for a lot of them, no. A lot of them either sold off a lot of pieces or Guy put them in or both. So uh, this was more something Guy just wanted for publicity. And he didn't mind buying large pieces of a lot of people in the field. So there's a lot of a lot of poker history with Guy. And getting back to the current situation with Guy. So 
he admits that he was growing cannabis in Tahiti. That's not in question. He's claiming that he bought it for his personal use and that he was only going to use it at his residence there in Tahiti and he was not going to sell it or give it away to anybody outside of the outside of the residence he was going to take it out of the country nothing like that he just uh, just growing it for use at home and apparently that's not enough because reports out of Tahiti claim that a judicial inquiry was opened for drug trafficking and that uh, consumption, cultivation, and transportation of cannabis is prohibited in French Polynesia. So basically he was breaking the law. It, it doesn't matter if he's just doing this for himself, that you're not supposed to do this there. He is reportedly cooperating with authorities, and according to a press release, categori- categorically denies and disassociates, disassociates himself completely from any rumors implicating him in the sale or traffic of controlled substances. That's the statement he's made. Notice what it doesn't say. Sometimes you got to read and figure out what it doesn't say and, and understand what's really going on here. And that is he's not denying that he grew it or that he used it, just that he was not selling it, which I believe. You think a guy who's worth a billion dollars is growing pot there and – People are showing up for baggies of marijuana. There's no way. There's no way he's a drug dealer there. He's uh, He probably was growing it for himself, but the, the problem is that uh, that's apparently still illegal there. The law says that it uh, can't be consumed or uh, cultivated or transported. So it sounds like he did two of the three. The only thing he probably didn't do is transport. And he actually has a... Uh, a portion of the island open for guests through Airbnb, would you believe? You can actually rent his place on Airbnb if you're willing to put up one million dollars. Yeah, he actually put a million dollar listing on Airbnb which is still active. And it says Nuku Tepipi Nuku Tepipi, that all sounds dirty. That's the name of it. Nuku Tepipi. Secluded from the world, surrounded by the vast Pacific Ocean, this private island feels like paradise on Earth. Soothe your body and mind in this fi- in the five-star spa facilities and plunge into the luminous waves. Embark on bicycle trips around the island and play sports and games in the delicious sea-kissed air. Lounge by the infinity pool and sip cool drinks in the shade on a rustic lanai. Climb to the observation desk deck. Experience the sunset and overwhelming majesty of the starry sky. All this luxury starting at $900,000 for seven nights. Wait, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. I got not $900,000, 900,000 euros, which is about a million dollars for seven nights. Now, yes, what he is renting out here is worth more than a million bucks. But I would think if you want to uh, have a nice place in Tahiti – you can just spend a million dollars and buy something. It won't be quite what's being rented here, but it's insane that to, to rent something for a million bucks for a week. They claim this has 21 bedrooms, 25 baths, and 52 guests possible. But still, like break that down per guest. It's still like it's still like 20k per guest. It's insane. 
I don't know if this has ever been rented, but it's up on Airbnb. But it's not clear what's going to happen regarding this. Uh, he obviously is very rich and can not only afford the best representation, but they it's not a very big island there. And it's kind of weird that he got in this trouble in the first place. He's not just some average dude who was caught carrying around pot there. This is someone who's very well known there and contributes a lot to the island's economy. So uh, why they're going after him here, it's, there's some belief that perhaps he pissed off the wrong person in some way. And then they decided to clamp down on this. A lot of people were surprised it's even illegal there in the first place. John Commode, who both listens to radio and posts on the forum, wrote, Interesting, I was there 40 years ago and everything seemed so loosey-goosey when it came to things like sex and substance use. Police presence outside of the cities was virtually non-existent. Maybe they developed a gang culture and a more serious drug trade. I wonder if this kind of conviction might make him inadmissible for entry into the United States. That's a good question. Someone else said uh, he should have greased the local politicians, police, etc. He would have never been touched. So the question is, were they just overlooking this for a long time and then did he get them angry? Or was this perhaps some kind of shakedown that someone is guessing it might be on the forum? Saying that if you're a, a very rich white Westerner doing illegal stuff, that maybe they will enforce this to shake you down for money. So is that possible? They're just aggressively enforcing this and then he can buy his way out of it. The island of Nukatapipi, by the way, is actually a private island. It's not just a a section of Tahiti. It's actually a a private island. In fact, someone posted a picture of it on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. I guess you're renting an island. But still, a million bucks for a week is insane. And apparently he spent about $130 million on Nukutipipi, $110 million buying it, and $20 million in renovation and employees. I still don't know if anyone has rented it. But isn't it amazing what you can do with your money when you go from a street performer to a, a billionaire? But it is a weird story. This is just not what you'd expect it's not like he was committing some real crime there. It's not like he molested uh, kids or or was uh, or, or or was dealing drugs from there. It really appears he was just growing marijuana for himself there, which is technically against the law. But are they really going to crack down on this? I don't know. Maybe it is a some kind of shakedown. Maybe there's some kind of corruption there where the one shaking him down get to pocket some of the money to make this go away. A lot of times when you're much richer than everybody else around there, especially those that work in law enforcement, you can be a victim. And look at what happened to Five Dimes Tony, where two corrupt police officers pulled him over and then he was kidnapped. So you can't even trust the police very much in places like that if there's enough money involved. Under French law, which is what uh, Tahiti is under, you can face up to 10 years in prison for possession and cultivation of narcotics. 
it's very unlikely he or anyone else would get that type of sentence for growing for what appears to be personal use with no evidence that he was selling it or transporting it. But that's the, the maximum penalty. I still don't think he's going to be ending up with a prison sentence. I think he's going to have to pay some stiff fine, and that's going to be it. It's still kind of a weird story. Trader Risky, any impressions about this one? Oh, sorry. Fuck. Uh, it definitely seems weird. I don't know if he had been paying them off for a while and then just, well, you know, thought he was getting extorted and stopped. But I agree. He probably pissed the wrong person off. Yeah, very weird. I mean, I can't imagine he couldn't buy himself, buy his way out of anything. That's what I was thinking. I was like, um, I guess if the person arresting you is just a stickler for the law over there and just says, I don't care how much money you you try to bribe me or, or want to buy your way out of, you're, you know, you're going to be facing the charges like anybody else, but you, you would just think he's established a presence there enough to where they just aren't going to screw with him unless he really does something major. And this, obviously being a, a victimless crime, uh, you, you would think they'd look past this. So it's, I'd love to know the true story behind this. Anyway, uh, before I move on here, I want to talk about something that's sad that I've just informed of in the chat room. I Am Greek said that his wife is in the hospital right now with many clots in her lungs and said that she almost passed away this morning. He said, not ready, ready to lose my lady. I Am Greek's wife has actually donated prizes to this show in the past. She had some certificates for uh, Paris, Las Vegas that we gave away at one point. And she had received these as a promotion and actually, my, my girlfriend received these, too, uh, at some point. Uh, I didn't give those away. We, we actually used them. But she, uh, I saw the same certificates, which you get from playing a certain amount. You receive a uh, certificate from Caesars that is transferable. So I Am Greek's wife was nice enough to actually just send it to us to just give away as a prize. And, and we did. So that was... Very nice of them, and I Am Greek has always been a, a supporter of the show. He's been a longtime listener. He has donated to the free roll a number of times. I'm not sure if his wife actually listens. Uh, obviously, she's aware of the show because she donated her hotel room as one of our prizes. I'm sure she's heard some of it, and and that's very sad. I, I don't know how old I Am Greek is. I know he's older than me, but I, I didn't get the impression that he was really old, and uh, this... It's really sad. It sounds like this is something that just kind of came up with, without much warning. And uh, she has clots in her lungs, and she uh, was barely survived this morning. And as, uh, you know, hopefully she recovers here. That's that's really too bad. And I I feel really bad when I, when I read he wrote "Not ready to lose my lady." That's just uh, really sad to read. So I, I hope she ends up okay. And that just shows you that at any time things can happen. So you got to appreciate the time you have here and appreciate the people you're with, especially as you get older. And uh, I hope that we'll get good news on this over the next week and that uh, she'll be okay. So that's, that's unfortunate. I didn't like reading that. And, uh, 
I'm guessing I am Greek is listening to the show to kind of take his mind off of it. Which, uh, you know, I, I had a, a friend who I saw playing poker at some card room the day after his mom died. And uh, and he was not old at this point. When I, when I saw him playing poker, he was probably late 20s. So this, it's not like the guy was 60 years old and said, okay, well, my mom's really elderly. She's got to pass at some point soon. This was, you know, he lost his mom fairly young. And uh, he was playing poker the next day. And he said the reason he was there, he said, I know it looks strange that I'm here playing poker. But uh, I've just got to do something to get my mind off of it. I just can't sit there and, and think about uh, what just happened to my mom. So I, I have to assume that's why I'm Greek is, is listening tonight. And uh, I hope she'll be okay. It's very sad. All right. So so moving on here. And I am Greek. If you've got good news to share with us during the broadcast, you can post it in the chat room. Though I have to imagine that you probably won't get such good news for uh, a little while since you just posted this. Hope you do, but uh, we'll be watching this. I want to talk about uh, Michael Borowitz, who's been on this show before, who is a career scammer. And he was on this show to talk about the scams that he pulled. He came on and candidly talked about the scams that he had pulled. It's, I, I don't know if we've ever had anything like that before or since on this show. The interesting thing was that Michael Borowitz was best known prior to that, almost immediately prior to that, for exposing somebody else's scam. He used to post on 2 Plus 2 as like PSU Mike 1999, something like that. And he brought to light a very real scam that was going on at the Rio where one of the employees, an, an older guy who probably still thought this was old Vegas and he could pull things like this, who was refusing to run sit-and-goes at the World Series unless people bribed him. So everyone would be sitting for the table not starting. Everyone would be waiting going, hey, uh, we got nine people. Why isn't the sit-and-go starting? And he'd actually start singing. I like Greece. Greece is my friend. I like Greece. Greece is my friend. And he was trying to tell them very directly, pay me. Give me a tip for me to start the sit and go. Otherwise, we're just going to sit here. And people were. People were having to grease him to get the sit and goes going. It was crazy. So Michael Borowitz was there, saw this happen, and went and posted it to 2 plus 2. A few idiots on 2 plus 2 were actually defending it, too. Most of the people were pretty outraged by it, as I was. But a, a few idiots were going, no, no, that's just the way Vegas works. You know, that's the way the guy makes his living. You can't fault him for that. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's not the way Vegas works anymore. You can't do that crap. So, of course, uh, this got back to Caesars pretty quickly. And uh, Seth Polanski announced shortly thereafter that the guy was fired. And they, uh, they verified it was really happening. They looked at it on camera. They was, they, I, I don't know if the guy admitted it. Whatever it was, 100% the guy was guilty, and they fired him, and that was that. We never got the guy's name. Uh, a celebrity lookalike to him was posted. I forgot. I think he was uh, looked similar to someone who was on Frasier or something. I think Frasier's dad. I, for, I forgot who he looked like. But anyway, so Mike was a hero for the moment for exposing this, and, and action was taken, and this guy who was demanding Greece to run sit and go to the World Series was no longer there. He got fired thanks to... Michael Borovitz's report. Only to find out that Michael Borovitz turned out to be a scammer himself. 
of a completely different type. Michael Borovitz was hanging around the Las Vegas McCarran Airport and giving people these stories regarding why he needs money. It was always some convoluted story, but he's here on business and uh, um, something happened with his flight and something's wrong with his credit card. Now he, he his flight's not till tomorrow and he has nowhere to stay and he's stranded at the airport. And he would show them his ID, his real ID, and say, look, I just, I just need the money. I'll write you an IOU. Just give me $200. He'd he'd show them fake business cards for uh, this company he's supposedly working for. And he tricked a lot of people into giving him the $200. The whole thing was so detailed and seemed so legit, like this poor businessman who got stranded there at the airport and and something wrong with his credit card. Now he has nowhere to stay. He just kept doing this over and over and over again, and then he would go gamble the money. So he had a gambling problem. He was actually a winning poker player from what I could see, but he had a bad pit gambling problem. So he'd take that money and then gamble with it and lose it. Eventually he got arrested. This actually came out on 2 Plus 2 because one of the members there happened to be a potential victim of the scam. The guy didn't give the money, but the guy asked him enough questions and uh, soon it was learned that it was the same person as PSU Mike 1999. Now Michael Borovitz came on this show... And he admitted to the whole thing. He didn't make excuses. He didn't say, no, people had it wrong. It was a misunderstanding. Nothing like that. Yeah, I did it, he said. Yes, it was a scam. That's all it was. I wasn't really stranded. I scammed multiple people. I did it because I had a gambling problem. This He admitted fully all of this stuff on our show. And there, there was no mystery to the whole thing. So... Uh, the amazing thing is that he keeps doing this over and over and over again. So it was in 2016 that it came out that he was a scammer himself. And ever since then, or sorry, not to, it, was, it was before that. It was, it was, I was reading someone else's, uh, I think it was 2013. I think that seemed too, uh, too recent. 2014, there we go. That he ended up... Uh, being caught doing this, but he has been caught in so many different places. So many, always airports. It's always airports. Again and again and again. Always airports. He just runs the same scam repeatedly, and the amazing thing is every time he gets caught. It's not like he gets away with this at certain airports, and just once in a while they get him. Every time he spends any length of time at the airport, they get him. Because he shows his ID... Um, he's done this before. It, it's very quick for the police to figure out what's going on and arrest him. Even if he hadn't, like, he's there long enough. He doesn't do, like, a quick hit and, and, and get $1,000 and run off. Like, he, he comes back again and again and again until eventually he gets busted. Not just once, but over and over and over and over he keeps coming back. And when he came on our show, he swore he's turned over a new leaf. He's not going to do this anymore. He's learned from it. He, he's conquered his gambling addiction. No, he hasn't. So the latest... Arrest was in Detroit, and I think we talked about this on our show in, in uh, August of this year. At uh, Wayne County Airport, at Metro Airport in Wayne County in, in, in Michigan. Same thing. Approaching passengers with some BS story, asking for money, he'll pay them back, write to them an IOU, blah, blah, blah. And 
they arrested him. I don't know how long he was doing it there, but they arrested him. He was described at the time in the media as a professional poker player who has been convicted multiple times for fraud at several airports. I don't know about the professional poker player part, but uh, yes, that's he was convicted several times for the same scam at multiple airports. And they said that his criminal history spans 13 states. So he was arraigned at the time on a $100,000 bail and was still in custody. And that was all we had heard about this for a while. We didn't know uh, what had happened there. I was surprised that he was getting out as quickly as he was. You would think that when judges see the same guy over and over and over, even if it's a different state, once they see he has a history of just doing this repeatedly and just never learning from it, you think you'd give him the maximum at that point. Like, like, where, why would he ever get leniency from that? Even if he's got a gambling addiction. Like, why, why would anyone get leniency when they've done this so many times in the last five years? Clearly, he just doesn't stop. The second he gets out, he starts again, it looks like. So, he, uh, that, that was the last we'd heard, but some news has come out. Michael Borovitz on October 3rd pled guilty and following the guilty plea's acceptance he was uh, given uh, probation and he is going to have to appear in court on December 12th so uh I have to assume he's out of jail right now, but maybe he's on some monitoring thing where he can't leave. But whatever it is, he's uh, he's got to go back to court on December 12th to be sentenced. And he did spend a number of weeks in jail, which will count towards whatever sentence he gets. So since... Uh, I don't know when he actually... you know, Provided he left jail... He, he still spent several weeks there. So if he gets something like 60 days, then he's pretty much out already. In fact, you know how the sentences go. A lot of times you they pretty much get cut in half if your behavior is good. So even if he gets like 120 days, he could be out right away without serving anything further. It is possible that they will really throw the book at him, given his history. And he could get years for this, but who knows. Uh, it's also not clear if there's been any compensation at all to his victims in this case. I have to imagine no. <laughs> he probably has no money. He talked about on our show that he, he's also had huge run-ups before. With, like, he'd, he would, sometimes when he'd be gambling, run it up to large amounts of money, but he, he would just keep gambling bigger and bigger until it was gone. He was pretty much guaranteeing himself a loss very quickly because he just couldn't stop. He would just keep upping the stakes over and over and over again until eventually variance takes hold and he loses. It sounds like it's just such a sickness that he can't fucking walk into the airport. Even if he's like just going to visit his grandma or something, he probably starts jonesing. Yeah, and I, I think he just goes there. On, I, and I just He's at the airport anyway. I think that he has the Jones to gamble and thinks, okay, well, this has worked in the past. This is how I get money in the past. Okay, I'll get money this way. And 
whatever compulsion he has to gamble overrules the logical part of his mind that, hey, I'm going to get arrested for this again. I'm going to go to jail for this again. I, I never get away with this. All he's thinking is, well, I will get immediate money to gamble with right now. And somehow he reasons himself through why that's okay to do. It, it is obviously a sickness. Unlike other scammers we've talked about here, like Peter DC and others, I don't think he's getting pleasure out of the scam. I think he, I think this is like a, a, a massive gambling sickness, and this is something he feels compelled to do. And he goes back to these airport scams because they they work in the short term, even though in the medium term he's arrested every time. What I don't understand is is why he keeps returning there. Like why why not at least diversify and, and, and hop to a different airport if necessary hop to different airports all over the place, never spend too long at any one place. But it seems like he just, he keeps returning to the scene of the crime and doing it again. And eventually uh, he gets caught every single time. And I, I don't understand that methodology here of why he's doing the same thing over and over and getting caught over and over and not modifying his tactics. But sometimes criminals are just like that. You, they just do nonsensical things at a hiking trail around here there was a problem with cars getting broken into. In fact, I wasn't even aware this was happening. Well, I kind of was aware. I saw Coming back from a hike, I actually saw a car window was broken, but I thought it was an isolated incident. But it turned out this was like happening all the time. And uh, apparently the guy doing this just kept coming back to that same location over and over again to break into cars. And the dumbest thing was he would mill around there suspiciously. So it's not even like he'd quickly jump out of his car and break a window and steal something and run away. Uh, he would you know, walk around, walk around, walk around. And after the word got out that cars were being broken into a lot, like people are like, okay, who's this dude who's always walking around here? So this one female hiker uh, stupidly left her purse and other things like sitting out in her car, which is not very smart took a hike, but before she took a hike, she saw this guy kind of just walking around there with no purpose, comes back, sees her windows smashed and the purse is gone. And she reports it to the police, comes back, hikes again the next week. Who did she see milling about there again? So she's like, okay, there he is, calls the police. And uh, even though uh, I think she even confronted him and he ran off, but by then she got his car license plate and police knocked on his door with a search warrant and that was that and they found all the stuff he had stolen so this was a guy who just kept coming back and back and back and back for months just repeatedly breaking into cars there and somehow thought this wouldn't eventually get him caught especially milling about there he was just he was guaranteed to get caught with this methodology but the guy was a meth addict so i guess he wasn't thinking very clearly what's also interesting is that his Girlfriend who he has a kid with, actually, I think two kids with. His girlfriend actually works at a pizza place that I frequent for takeout, and I've actually spoken to his girlfriend to order pizzas a number of times. And she was arrested, too, because they found meth on the premises, even though she wasn't involved in the in the thefts. But uh, some of these criminals, you just scratch your head going, what the hell were they thinking? Why Why keep returning to the scene over and over and over again and doing the same thing and hanging around there? What, you're just It's like you're begging to get caught. So Borovitz, we'll see what happens to him on December 12th. But uh, he did plead guilty and he's going to be sentenced. And we will see how tough they are in Detroit on Michael Borovitz. If I were a judge, even though it's 
due to gambling sickness, I, I would have to give him a long sentence. Something has to make an impact here. Whatever's been happening has been no, made no impact. He, he has not reformed one bit. So clearly something more needs to be done. Even if it means you just have to lock him away, because if he's not locked away, he's going to keep scamming airports. That might, as, as sad as it might be that this is gambling addiction fueled, if he just if he absolutely will not seek help, and if you let him run free, he just keeps scamming at airports, eventually you just have to lock him away and say, okay, if this is what you're going to do, you're not getting out. Moving on here to our next topic of interest, Liv Boree and Igor Kurganov have left Poker Stars. They're the latest pros to have exited the company. Most of them, including these two probably, were not voluntary. Poker Stars has been cutting costs ever since Amaya bought them. And I, I know that there's been a, another sale since then. But uh, Poker Stars has realized that the sponsored pros are not really translating into the equivalent revenue for what they're paying the sponsored pros. The original model that was established by uh, Isai Scheinberg, and then even with sites before his, like, for example, uh, Planet Poker, one of the very earliest online poker sites, had Mike Caro and Roy Cook as their celebrity spokespeople, kind of their poker celebrity sports people, spokes, spokespeople. Uh, poker stars did a lot more of this, and then Full Tilt really took it to an extreme. But the 2000s model of the sponsored pro bringing in business, I always thought that didn't make a lot of sense. I thought really big name pros can help. Like, for example, Negranu, I thought, probably brought in people. Maybe not as much as uh, they were paying him, but Negranu being the face of the site, yeah, I can see where there's value in that. He's a very well-known player, and there's a lot of people that like him, even post-Doug Polk. There's a lot of people that like him, so okay, fine. Hire Negranu. Uh, Helmuth, even though I don't like what he did with UB, you know, at least it makes sense why you'd hire him. People of that stature, it makes sense why they would be hired as sponsored pros. Because they're very recognizable to the average poker player. Not just recognizable, but a lot of people admire them, want to be like them, and it, it, you can see where that could translate to direct business. But people like, I don't know, just most other pros... They're just not really resulting in a lot of additional signups, especially when there's a whole lot of them. So it, I thought it was insane when a site has like 50 or 100 pros. So what, someone's going to go through the list of pros and go, oh, look, look at this person, this uh, minor C-grade poker player. Oh, they're a sponsored pro here. Oh, I like them. I'll sign up for this site. Like, there's there's no chance. I, I, don't, I, I wonder if so many people even resulted in one signup that otherwise wouldn't have happened. I'm not kidding. I think that some of these players really had like zero value to the sites they were representing. But this model persisted for a long time. And Amaya, to their credit, I, I've criticized them a lot, but to their credit, they said, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, Isai Scheinberg, he was obsessed with poker and poker pros, and he didn't care if it directly translated to money, but we're just a business here. We don't really care about poker. It's just a business. It's an end to the means for us. So if these poker pros are not translating into profit for us, we need to get rid of them. 
So they started slowly dropping the poker pros or lowballing them on renewal so much that the poker pros would leave. And it was interesting to see the reactions of these poker pros as they would leave poker stars. Some of them were bitter. Some of them said nothing. Some of them went out with uh, mutual adoration back and forth and uh, uh, kind of what looked like a, a phony display of mutual respect and goodbyes. But where you know that the pro is actually kind of not very happy he's getting fired and maybe a little bit bitter about it, but is trying to make it look like they're walking away at their own terms. So like Jason Mercier was one. Jason Mercier supposedly walked away to go uh, spend time with his wife and new, and new baby. Like they, some of these players would create a backstory as to why they were leaving. So it didn't look like they were fired. It would look like they're moving on to bigger and better things or other more important things. Others were a little bit bitter on the way out and others would say nothing or just say something very simple like, I'm leaving. Daniel Negreanu, who eventually was let go, he just kind of just revealed matter-of-factly, I'm leaving, without revealing why. And you could tell... You know, he, he was praising a lot of different individuals there when he left, but he didn't praise Poker Stars itself. You could tell he, he was bitter, too. So in his farewell speech, it was, uh, I liked working with this person, that person, this person, that person, but not thank you, Poker Stars, thank you, Amaya. Nothing like that. He was specifically not saying that. So I think it's very simple that the company makes a business decision to separate with these people or makes a business decision to greatly lower their compensation, gives them this insulting lowball offer, the player says no fucking way, and then they come up with a decision on how they're going to handle the public announcement. Sometimes they can come up with something, sometimes they can't, sometimes it's very simple, sometimes it's a complex backstory, but, but the truth is it's probably a form of what I just said in every case. Liv Bory and Igor Kurganov were both poker stars pros, and Liv actually got Igor the position there. Igor is the much more accomplished player. Liv, uh, she has some uh, poker accomplishments herself, but uh, she mostly came into notoriety because she's a pretty girl with some success in poker. It's unclear to me what they were making. I assume that a lot of their compensation came from events they were bought into by poker stars. I know that's even what Negreanu was compensated uh, to some degree. That's the method that a lot of them were paid, where they'd be representing the site, but uh, keeping all the money they make and not risking anything. But uh, they made an announcement that they're leaving. And they did it in kind of a wannabe comical way. I'll read this to you. They made the announcement on Twitter, which I had up and I lost here. Here we are. They tweeted. This is from uh, Igor. Liv and I are splitting up. It's been some fun couple of years, and I'm thankful for the experience. The great support to RegCharity.org and the people I've worked with. 
Sorry, splitting up with poker stars, not live, but the above is all true for both. So he was trying to play with people's heads for a moment there. That was on November 13th. That uh, he and Liv were splitting up. Oops, it's not actually Liv, it's Poker Stars. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Okay, Liv was just more direct. She said, it's been an amazing nine years, but now it's time for Poker Stars and I to part ways. I want to say thanks to the incredible staff and my fellow teammates for all the wonderful memories. I'll miss you all. There's zero chance that these two just said, you know what? Uh, we don't need Poker Stars money anymore. We, we don't need to go to their tournaments or their events that they make us go to. Screw these obligations we have. It's not worth it. Uh, we're leaving. No chance. They definitely got either fired or lowballed. And this is their their statement. Looks like it's not super bitter because they're yeah, kind of semi-positive in what they're saying. But there's been a lot of people who have been uh, let go there over time. And they're just the latest ones. She has uh, $3.8 million in cashes. But keep in mind, a lot of these were through nosebleed events where the cash is always going to be very large. So that's a little bit misleading. She also has been uh, PokerStars sponsored pro for over nine years. So she probably got a lot of free buy-ins to rack up these caches. Uh, Was she a winning tournament player? That's a good chance, even with the $3.8 million of cash, is that she's not. It's impossible to tell, but she has been getting buy-ins from Poker Stars for nine years now, so you know, figure it out. She said that they are uh, going to still be, quote, firing the occasion, or that she's going to be, quote, firing the occasional tournament. And then she claims that her plans beyond this involve, feel like this, uh, giving talks and creative, uh, giving talks and creating science, rationality, and effective altruism content on YouTube. Come on now. <laughs> now, let, let's let's break this down here. Giving talks and creating science, rationality, and effective altruism content on YouTube. Effective altruism is it's something that that shady guy Hasib Qureshi supposedly got involved in. It, it, it's it's like a form of charity where you're uh, you're basically working to give. So you, you, part of the reason you're working is actually to make money to give to charity. But what I've seen is a lot of this effective altruism is kind of a cover for scamming, or a lot of times it's not what it appears to be. A lot of times there's a lot of narcissism involved, where you're making it look like you're giving a lot more than you are, so people pat you on the back. So even if there's not an actual scam, it's kind of a lie. I'm not saying all of it is, but whenever I hear about effective altruism, I go, oh, okay. I've... How come it seems like everybody involved with this has always seemed like – they always seem like a narcissist. They always seem like someone who wants a lot of attention. Like That seems to be what I've – Observed effective altruism is about in what little I've seen. Now she actually has done TED talks, believe it or not. Uh, apparently, she did a TED talk in Manchester, UK. And let's see, what was the uh, the subject? She said it was called "A Number Speaks a Thousand Words." And when was this? I'll play it. What? 
try that again. Boyfriend Igor and I, we were... There we go. Well, that has to be fairly recent. She's talking about her boyfriend, boyfriend Igor, which this relationship's only like a few years old. So, a few weeks ago, my boyfriend Igor and I, we were hanging out on the sofa, and he turns to me and says, Lev, what do you think the likelihood is that we'll still be together in three years' time? Okay, see, this is February 2018. Uh, what do you think the likelihood we'll still be together in three years' time? The, the, the actual, I know the answer to that. Uh, she said, said, well, what's the likelihood that you'll still have money in three years' time? <laughs> Liv Moree was subject of some accusations, including by ex-boyfriend Kevin McPhee, who is or was a listener to this show. Kevin McPhee actually came up to me at One World Series and told me he listens and that he wanted to meet me. But uh, there were some accusations that Liv was very opportunistic and that she was just basically jumping from one poker pro to the next and just wanted to hook herself up with successful poker pros and, and didn't really care about anybody. So that's I, I mean I'm not totally joking here that if, if Igor was broken in three years broke in three years time and, and and wasn't getting staked that that would probably be the end of the relationship. I don't know for sure, but that's that's the impression I've gotten. So naturally, we both took a pen and paper and wrote down our three-year predictions and threw in our one-year and ten-year ones for good measure. And these are the results. Before I continue, can you hear this, uh, Trader Risky? I can. It's fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't know this existed till today. But uh, here, so here's the results. I have to read it to you because it's on the screen. One year, she thought there's a 94% chance they'll be together, and he said 98. Three years, she said 85%. He said 92. Ten years, she said 75%. She said uh, he said 80. Notice that he's more optimistic about the relationship than she is. That's that already speaks volumes right there. But let, let's go on. Fortunately. We are pretty much aligned. And because we're both professional poker players, we're very much used to thinking about all kinds of things in terms of probabilities, even potentially emotional topics like this one. But I certainly wasn't always rational around probabilities. For example, the very first time I played poker. It was 2005, and I just graduated university from here in Manchester. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life yet, so... Naturally, I started applying for game shows. And the first show I got on, <laughs> yeah, first show I got on turned out to be a reality show that took five beginners and taught them how to play poker. And, well, I was one of those beginners, and then we would compete for a winner-take-all prize of £100,000, so huge money, especially for a graduate with a ton of debt. So, in one of the first games, we start playing, and I get dealt two aces, which are the best starting hands in poker. And before I knew it, I'd gotten all my chips in the middle. And then, my opponent, they get really lucky and hit a miracle card, and I'm out of the game. But it's fine, because I handle it with a calm, stoic dignity. Or so I wish. No, in fact, I end up having a complete meltdown, cry at the tables, and embarrass myself on national TV. <laughs> and why did I do that? Well, I did it because I was shocked. Even though I've been told to expect that aces will lose around 20% of the time, my internal dial just very much didn't feel like a 20% could actually happen. Hmm. This reminds me of Annie Duke's speech we played on here. This reminds me a lot of this. 
the probabilities about making decisions based on probabilities, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I'm, I'm already kind of bored after two minutes. This has been like a long two minutes. I, I feel like I've been watching this for half an hour. It's only been two minutes. <sighs> okay, let's, let's see here. Let's see a little bit more. <laughs> it quickly flashed on the screen something about Donald Trump's chance to win the election, and then she laughed. They laughed in the audience. So fortunately, I've gotten my act together a bit more since then, and that's largely because, well, poker teaches you to get used to bad luck. If you play the game often enough, you'll expect to see maybe hundreds of thousands of hands over a given year, and so you'll see all these crazy one percenters and freak events happen with the cards over and over. And that's because probabilities compound. While the likelihood of one individually unlucky event happening to us is small in a given year, like getting our phone stolen, or being made redundant, or having one of our five closest relatives die. If you start thinking about all the events that you could consider to be unlucky, then actually the chances build up and up until it's quite likely that one of them happens. And while this might seem kind of depressing, I found that remembering this mathematical fact has helped me manage my expectations better because then I'm less shocked. And when we're less shocked, then we're better able to reason through a tough situation and not spend so much of our time thinking about negative, unhelpful thoughts like, why me? Why am I so unlucky? This sounds like life coaching to me, to be honest. Um, The problem with TED Talks is you get things like this this isn't really teaching people anything. This is this is kind of just like philosophical. It's uh, TED Talk started as something different than this, and it it developed into in some cases a lot of psychobabble that uh, doesn't really fit into its original intent. Originally, uh, TED stood for a Technology Entertainment Design, and it was where some expert in some field would show up. And speak about something they're knowledgeable about for about uh, 12 minutes or so. And the audience would feel enlightened in some sort. And it was always in front of a crowd. I don't, I don't know how she managed to get on there. But I don't know. This, the whole thing kind of smacks of narcissism again to me. Like, uh, just it looked like she got on there because she just wanted to to do a TED Talk. She just wanted to have that on her resume. She wanted the news that she's given a TED Talk. She wanted her face to be seen more out there. And, you know, I, I guess I can respect the hustle to some degree. There's nothing illegal about any of this or even unethical that you you want to appear on these things and you go out and try to do it and use the fact that you're an attractive female poker player to give yourself a little bit of an edge or a big edge. But uh, anyway... She has been fired from Poker Stars, or at least uh, lowballed, as has Igor. And I, I don't see them really signing with any other site. It seems like this model is mostly dead, as far as sponsored pros, unless you're really a big name. And even though Igor is a good player and he continues to be successful, he's he's not a giant name in poker and he's not all that charismatic so I don't see him getting any kind of real sponsorship of any size it is interesting how she says oh you'll you know you may occasionally see me in a tournament that that seems to really imply that poker stars has been buying her into tournaments the whole way like that's that that sounds to it kind of seems to me like it's the only way she's been staying in action 
has been through the poker stars buying her in. That is is very interesting. Let's look at her Hendon mob. It's three point eight million in winnings, as I mentioned. Last time she cashed was at the Poker Stars PCA, surprise, surprise, in January of 2019, the main event. She finished actually in sixth place. I don't know if it was the main event. Maybe it was a 10K event. Maybe it was a different event. It says 10,300 No Limit Hold'em, event 38. I don't, it may not be the main event. Whatever. She finished sixth for 57K. In 2018, the EPT Barcelona, again, another Poker Stars event, shock upon shocks. She finished sixth for uh, 70,000 euro. She had two World Series caches for five figures each, one at the, uh, this is an 18, one at the main event, 379th place, and one in the 5K 30-minute event thirty for uh, 11K. Her last cache before that, the PCA, two caches of the PCA. Uh, everything I'm seeing here in recent years, except for these World Series caches, has been Poker Stars associated. Poker Stars Sochi, Poker Stars Barcelona, Poker Stars uh, Caribbean Adventure. So that, that's pretty much all I'm seeing here, with a few outliers, but not many. And then there's some World Series catches. Uh, she did. Memorably win first place, sort of, in the tag team event. That's where she won a bracelet in 2017. But there was some criticism that Igor did a lot more of the playing. That there just isn't any kind of requirement in these tag team events for the World Series. That uh, anyone has to play a certain amount of time. And in fact, uh, like Ryan LaPlante, for example, revealed that there were some businessmen who approached him who said that they basically wanted to buy a bracelet and that they would pay the entire buy-in if Ryan would just do almost all of the playing and give them credit for, for the bracelet if, you know, if, if they win the bracelet together. Ryan says he turned it down, but that uh, he was offered that, and I believe him. That's, that's the big problem with the tag team event, is that there's no minimum percentage of time that the other person in the tag team has to play. I, I don't know exactly what percentage she played, but I, I, I heard stories that it wasn't very high. She did cash the main event two years in a row. She also cashed in 17. Uh, actually, sorry, it's three years in a row. She also cashed in 16. So that's uh, I'll give her credit for that. That's pretty good. She did not cash in 19 at all at the World Series. So assuming she was there, which I have to think she was, then uh, that was not a good series for her. Maybe she skipped the series, but uh, every year it looked like she had like two caches. It's funny. Like I'm scrolling down. Every year it's like two caches. I see three here, but every year it's like two caches. Uh, the one in 2015. But I, I'm really seeing a lot of Poker Stars events that she's cashing in. So it really looks like that's part of her compensation. Someone on the forum said that she was getting 500k a year, which I thought, okay, there's no way she's getting 500k a year. But now that I'm seeing all these high buy-in events she was playing, I think, okay, may, maybe she was getting 500k a year in tournament buy-ins. Maybe that was the deal. She gets 500k a year in tournament buy-ins, and whatever she makes, she keeps. 
But you can tell that it's very, very heavily Poker Stars events. And I think there's a good chance the World Series they were buying her in, too, even though it's not a Poker Stars event. That's probably why she's suddenly saying, oh, well, you may not see me much anymore, but I'll, I'll play a tournament or two. Now, I, I might stop by it once in a while and play a tournament. Yeah, why is that, Liv? Why, why, why would you stop playing tournaments just because Poker Stars is not your sponsor anymore? Uh, because they, they give me money, and uh, that's the way I buy in. Can't do that, can't do that anymore. I'm uh, rather skint at the moment without uh, the, the assistance. Now, Igor Kurganov, I, I, he is a, a very good player. I'm not saying Liv is bad. I'm just saying that the $3.8 million in cash is, could very well mean a losing record, given she's been there nine years and they've been buying her in. Uh, Igor Kurganov, let's look at his Hendon mob. Uh, he's pretty well respected for his play. Yeah, he has, he has $18 million in cashes. And he now he is playing high stakes events, so he's he's in, like he entered the hundred k high roller at the World Series and finished fourth for eight forty k. He entered a three hundred k event on uh, in December two thousand eighteen at the Super High Roller Bowl. He entered a fifty k high roller in, at the World Series. And these are ones he just cashed. There's plenty I'm sure he's entering and not cashing. Uh, I I think he's a winner even. Though he's entering these nosebleed events. He's from Russia, but lives in London. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that she is with the all-time Russia money leader. And a guy who has cashed $18 million, And a guy who's entering events that are as high as three hundred k buy-in. And I think you know, he's putting up money... To enter these events, I don't think Poker Stars is putting him in all of these. They were probably helping, but uh, I eh, let's think about this. If Igor Kurganov was just an ordinary tournament player, let's even say a, a winner, but just not not eighteen million in cashes, not entering hundred k, three hundred k events, not the number one casher all time in Russia. Would she be with him? Do, do you think that they would have fallen in love the same way? And the answer is, I think, very strongly no. You don't know. Maybe, maybe she would have, but I don't think so, especially given her history. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with a woman seeking to be with a man who's financially successful. I'm not saying that every woman is shallow if she choose, if she dates someone partially because they're financially stable or, or rejects someone because they're broke. That's fine. That's... You know, uh, there are stresses that come with being with someone who is broke. In fact, the number one reason for all divorces is money. So it's not cheating, believe it or not. It's actually money is the most common reason for a divorce. And if you marry someone who has persistent money troubles, or even worse, persistent money troubles and a gambling issue, then your marriage is probably going to fail. So I, I won't hold anything against the woman who says, hey, I'm not going to marry some guy who's who's broke or uh, won't be able to support a family, whatever. That's fine. That's fine to seek out someone who's financially stable. But there's that, and then there's searching out people who are actually rich. Searching out the 
top echelon in those who make money and valuing that over everything else. If you happen to fall in love with a guy who has a ton of money, fine. But if you're valuing that on top of everything else, well, that's a different issue. And especially if you don't have an immediate need for the money, then that's even worse. Where, you know, Liv is single. She doesn't have kids to support. It's just her. So, or she was, she's not single, but she was single prior to being with him. So this really looks like, to me, just kind of a relationship for money. That's really what it looks like. She's just attaching to, to a super successful, very high-stakes poker player. And there's been accusations before that she does this. And everything she does is just kind of cold and calculated. So it could be haters. It could be just people who are bashing her because she's a pretty girl in poker and they resent that. Could be that, too. I know there's some of that out there as well. So I I don't want to say I'm going to believe everything I read on the Internet. There's been a lot written about me on the Internet. That's not true. That people have repeated. So I, I don't want to be a hypocrite here and say, oh, I believe every rumor that's stated about her. But just from my observation, I mean, just, just looking at the whole thing, I go, if he, he was just kind of a moderately successful tournament player where he's financially stable but not $18 million in cashes, I don't think she's with him. Even if she had the same opportunity to meet him and get to know him, I, don't, I just don't see it. So, uh, interesting that he gives a higher chance that they're together after all this time. I, I don't believe that there's a 75% chance they're going to be together in 10 years. Though maybe, you know what, if if he continues to do well financially, uh, and, and he seems to be really into her, if he's giving such high percentages, they'll be together in, in all this time. And and she's pretty. So maybe, maybe they will be together in 10 years. Maybe both will just be happy with the situation. Maybe I'm selling it short. I don't know. I I just think any relationship that's purely for money isn't that healthy. And it can't be healthy. It's got to be more than that. They're no longer with Poker Stars, and she won't be getting those free buy-ins anymore. I guess she may try to get uh, Igor to buy her into things or uh, whatever money she has herself remaining. But who knows? I don't know. Something always kind of rubbed me the wrong way with her. She just doesn't seem genuine at all. There's too many, too many stories I'm hearing. Compare that to someone like well, Droth, Doesn't she have like a PhD in physics or something? Uh, does she? See, I don't even know much about her background. She says like, see, I think she does. I think she has a very high degree. I think it's a PhD in physics. Okay, well, she's probably. So I certainly think she's smart. I would not compare her. Put it on the converse, same conversation as Annie Duke. Oh well, no, actually, Annie Duke I think is smart too. Believe it or not, I, I just uh, um, she doesn't have a PhD, and I, and I, I never doubted Liv Bory's intelligence. Notice in this whole speech here, I haven't said that Liv Bory is dumb. Uh, I, I don't think she's dumb, uh, and and if she has a PhD in physics, she's definitely not dumb. She definitely you have to be very smart to be able to achieve that. Um, but I was just more speaking of the, the relationship she's had. And it's, I see a lot of, like, opportunism there. And I, I was about to com- compare her to Vicky Corin, who was uh, another Poker Stars pro who actually quit because she didn't like the direction the company was going. She just felt she didn't like the way they were uh, uh, 
aiming the way they were treating the poker pros, the way they were trying to make the site more and more about gambling and not about poker. And she just didn't like the direction of the whole thing, didn't feel good about promoting it, and said, okay, I'm, I'm quitting, and, and stated why. Just walked away from the money. This wasn't a case where she was let go and then came forward later with sour grapes. Oh, I don't really support this. It's terrible. Uh, Vanessa Selps kind of did that. She, when, when they let Vanessa Selps go or lowballed low her, whatever caused that departure, then she started putting out some like passive-aggressive stuff there about how, how the site's changed. It's not the same way it was. The rec players don't have a chance anymore, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Vanessa, rec players never had a chance. <laughs> they, the, rec players have always uh, struggled, which we're, actually, we're going to talk about this later in the show, by the way about rec players and whether they have a chance. But I, I thought Vicky Corrin was an example of someone who really had high moral character. And I, I don't see Liv Bory the same way. I see her more of like an opportunist. I don't know her well, though. This, this, is, this is just impressions from afar. So I will say I don't have any personal experiences with her. I've never interacted with her. In fact, I'm sure if – I wouldn't say I'm sure, but there's a good chance if you ask Livery who is Todd Wittellis or who is Dan Druff, she'd go, who? Like I, I think she's, she's – there's certain poker players who are self-centered to the point that they don't see very much around their immediate bubble. And therefore, unless others in poker are either very big names or directly affect them, they just don't ever know who they are. And and I've put her in that category. Phil Ivey's another one like that, by the way. And so there's it's interesting because I and I've thought about that too, especially when people bring things up to me who aren't really in poker but just know about it. And the people go, so so do you know this pro? Do you know, do you know Daniel DeGranu? Do you know Phil Helmuth? And they're asking me these names like, do you know them? And like then I said, well yeah yeah I know I, I'm not friends with them, but you know they they know who I am. I know who they are. Whoa, they know who you are, and like they're shocked. I go, yeah, they, they do. I. I, I'm a poker pro. I've been around for a while. Yeah, they know who I am. Uh, but then there's, but then I actually think, well, which name poker pros probably still have no idea I exist? And the names I always come up with are the ones who also are like very, very just self-involved. Where all the pretty much like whatever's on their mind the entire day tends to be only what relates to themselves, and and not just general happenings in the poker world. Where. Say what you will about me, but the fact that I even do this show shows that I take an interest in what's generally going on in the poker world. Most things I talk about on this show, including this topic about Liv Bory, have nothing to do with me and, and have really nothing that I've personally experienced. Sometimes they have some kind of side story somewhat related, but I, I'm talking about things that are going on in general in the poker world. And in fact, most people in the poker world, especially on poker social media, are like that too. I'm not trying to say I'm special here. Most people in poker kind of observe whatever's currently going on, whether it involves them or not. But then there's a certain subset of players that just really narrowly focuses on themselves and nothing else. And I think Liv is kind of one in that category. So I'd be very surprised if she had any idea who I was or even heard my name before. Okay, well, not much more to say about that. You'll, you'll see more and more departures from poker stars like this over time. There's a few untouchables, like Chris Moneymaker is one. They're, they're not going to let him go just because he's Chris Moneymaker. And he kind of – they kind of mutually put each other on the map. But – see, I'm looking at their website. I'm not even 
well, it's forcing me. Oh, it's, it's forcing me to a different site, like a free money site. I was trying to see who their sponsored pros are, but it's trying to force me away from PokerStars.com, probably because I'm in the U.S. But whatever. I I'm not even sure who the current roster is, but there, there's certain untouchables who will never be fired. But there will be more to come that get let go. Seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. That's our phone number. You can text that number if you want seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. You can call the Mount Charleston line seven zero two four three zero eighteen zero eight. If you wish to reach the show, if you do call, try to call between segments. Like right now, would be a good time to call. Otherwise, if I'm in the middle of something, there's a good chance I will not answer the phone. Our next topic has nothing to do with any people. It has to do with a company known as Caesars. And it has to do with a rewards program called Caesars Rewards, once known as Total Rewards. There is going to be a change which takes place on February 1st, 2020, but in a way it also is going to be taking place on January 1st, 2020. Caesars has long had four levels of their rewards program, which was originally called Total Rewards and is now called Caesars Rewards. And you earn your levels by earning tier credits, which you earn through play. You can also earn tier credits through uh, hotel stays and restaurant expenditures, blah, 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 but let's just focus on the number of tier credits it takes to get to each level. So if you have fewer than 5,000, you're a gold member. You don't need to play at all to be gold. You can just go and sign up your gold immediately. I used to laugh at this because when I had first signed up and hadn't played at all, and then I'd call to book rooms, you'd actually get a much better rate just by having a card, even if you never played. And I'd have them say to me, well, Mr. Wattellis, we see you're your gold member, so congratulations for that. <laughs> I felt like saying, well, what are you congratulating me for? I, I just went to the desk and signed up. That's all I did. So less than 5,000 tiers is gold. 5,000 through 14,999 tier credits is platinum. Platinum used to be... Uh, it used to have some use, but it's it's mostly garbage now. You get very little for Platinum. For a little time, you actually got out of resort fees with Platinum, but then they made that diamond and above. So Platinum is pretty useless now. It's got a few little benefits, but really the only thing Platinum is good for now is free parking in properties where they charge for parking. You can get Platinum for free, by the way, by signing up for the Caesars Rewards credit card which also is free. So I suggest you do that if you need to park at Caesars Properties. Don't don't ever pay for parking. Sign up for that damn credit card, and you'll get free platinum for as long as you have the card. 15000 through 149999 used to be diamond. Diamond was where most people would stop. Because it's a big difference between earning 15000 and the next level up 150000 for 7 stars, which is the top level. So what would happen is people would get to 15000 and they'd kind of ease off their play, unless they were enjoying playing anyway. But as far as what they were shooting for, a lot of people are shooting for Diamond and not much else. Now, Diamond has a few benefits which are important. Number one, it gets you in the best line in most things. 
such as for restaurants, such as at the cashier, such as to get into cash games playing poker, such as to register for the World Series in the special room, such as to uh, get valet when otherwise uh, the valet is closed for everybody else because it's full, such as to pay no resort fees, which is a big one now. That If you're diamond or above, you pay no resort fees. And you also get free internet access in Caesar's properties. So diamond is really the the big one that you'd want to shoot for. If you play at the World Series for any length of time, I don't mean if you just come there for an event and leave, but if, you, if you're there for any length of time at the World Series, I really suggest you get diamond. Because uh, that's important to have. And I'll, and I'll tell you during this segment how you can get it for over two years straight with just one session. In one day... You can earn diamond, and there's also a way to earn diamond without even playing at all, which I'll tell you. And then you'll have it for two years. At least if you earn it through play, it'll be for two years. If you do it through some other methods, it'll be uh, one year. But diamond is very good to have at the World Series. You can skip the line in cash games. You can skip most of the line at the World Series and use the special diamond room to register. They'll give you... Priority regarding your room location If you want to pick a specific room location At the Rio You'll save on resort fees Which keep going up every year You just won't pay them So resort fee plus tax You're saving every day And uh, that's a lot of money you're saving If you're there for a long time So Diamond definitely worth getting But the change they've made this year Is that there are now two additional levels Within Diamond That actually have a separate card For the first time ever there will be a separate card for the levels within Diamond. They did before, which they did away with for a little while, have what they called Diamond Aspirations. And these were informal additional Diamond levels where if you earned 40,000 tiers and then 80,000 tiers, you'd get additional benefits. But these were things that were just benefit-related, but your card just said Diamond. Well, now there are two completely separate tiers, Diamond Plus and Diamond Elite. And if you earn these, your card will actually say Diamond Plus or Diamond Elite. Diamond Plus starts at 25000 Remember, regular Diamond starts at 15000 Diamond Elite starts at 75000 And then, as always, seven stars is 150,000 tiers. So what does Diamond Plus get you that Diamond doesn't? And what does Diamond Elite get you that the other two don't? From what I can tell, Diamond Plus doesn't get you that much more. They haven't gone through the full list yet of what you're going to get there. But Diamond Plus, the main benefit for it will be that you can get into the Diamond Lounges, which are now called the Laurel Lounges, for free. You used to be able to do that with any Diamond card, but now if you're between 15000 and 24999 for regular Diamond, and this was like this, was like this, uh, this year as well, and I think 2018 also, even though they didn't have what they call Diamond Plus, you would have to pay like $30 to get in, which isn't worth it, by the way. So to get into the lounges for free, and I think you get to take one guest with you, you need it to be 25,000 tiers, and now, same thing, 25,000 tiers, except it's just called Diamond Plus. There may be other benefits, but they haven't announced them yet. At 75,000 is Diamond Elite. So in addition to accessing the Diamond and Laurel lounges... You also now get what they call the Las Vegas airfare benefit, 
on a one-time basis per year, they will book a flight for you to and from Las Vegas for up to $600. And if your flight is more than 600 then you will pay the difference. And you can either do this through their own travel agency who will just book it for you and there's no out-of-pocket cost, or you can book it yourself and then show them a receipt and then they'll give you the equivalent in reward credits as uh, compensation back, which of course isn't as good. But this is only airfare to Las Vegas, a round trip to Las Vegas. Well, what if you live in Las Vegas? Well, I don't know. (laughs) They, they didn't say what happens then. What if you live in Los Angeles and the flights are all cheap, which they are? I don't know. That's actually a lot of people. Take the whole Southern California area and Vegas area people. Like, what does this benefit get them? Now, maybe you can go from Las Vegas somewhere else. I don't know. Like, maybe you can. I, I, that would be a question for them. Can you Can you leave from Las Vegas and fly to, say, New York and come back? I would guess no. I bet it's only to Las Vegas, and if you're living in Las Vegas, then just tough luck. I don't know if you can redeem it. There is some chance. Sometimes they'll let you redeem this and turn it in for the equivalent of uh, rewards credits. So they might let, just let you turn this in for $600 in rewards credits. I don't know. They haven't specified that yet. This was announced fairly recently. Like I think a few weeks ago. Somehow I missed it. This will take place... Officially on February 1st, 2020, which is when the Caesars Rewards year starts. But you can start earning towards it on January 1st, 2020. Which brings me to my very next important topic. Well, it's the same topic, but uh, my next point about earning Diamond or Seven Stars or any level at Caesars. You should do it in January or February. You should do it early in the year. Do not, do not, do not do it in December or even November because you will not get good value out of it. Why? Caesar's Rewards, and it's worked this way for as long as I can remember, goes by calendar year. So when you earn a status at Caesar's, no matter which one, platinum, diamond, seven stars, whatever, that status is good for the current calendar year, the next calendar year, and the first month of the following calendar year. So any status earned in 2019, you will stay that status throughout all of 2020 and throughout the month of January 2021. And this is true whether you earned it on December 31st, 2019 or January 1st, 2019. So in which way do you get more value if you earned it on January 1st, 19 or December 31st, 19? Well, I think everybody listening knows the answer to that one. So if you earn your status at the beginning of January, you will actually get more than two years, even if you don't play again. So if I earn Diamond, for example, on January twenty on January 1st, 2020, I will stay Diamond all the way through January 31st, 2022, even if I do not ever play again anything at Caesars Properties. I will have earned 25 months of Diamond just from earning it in January 2020. So always earn these in January. You'll get two years instead of one. Now, if you're going to play so much anyway, you're going to earn it. You may think, well, why does it matter? Well, because your tier score resets to zero on January 1st, no matter who you are. You could have three million tier points. On January 1st, you're back at zero. 
right when midnight strikes, right? Actually, it's probably not midnight. It's probably like the gaming day. But whenever the gaming day begins at 6 a.m. or whatever it is in each market, everybody starts at zero and has to go from there. So why earn tier credits that are going to be zeroed very shortly? You'd really have to be a fool to play for tier credits on December 31st. The only reason to play for tier credits on December 31st is if you're very close to making that level. So if you're at 14,000-something tier credits, yeah, on December 31st, bring it up to 15,000 so you get the at least diamond for the next uh, 13 months. Otherwise, all that goes away and you get zero. But aside from that, don't do any significant play for tier credit purposes late in the year, including right now, mid-November. That's a, a tip of mine to you. And it's kind of weird because the Caesars year runs from February 1st through January 31st. But you can start earning on January 1st. And you stop earning on December 31st. It's very confusing. So let's say you earn 25,000 tier credits on January 1st, 2020. Will you be Diamond Plus? No. The Diamond Plus benefits won't start until February 1st, but you will immediately be Diamond. And you won't have to play any further. And you'll be automatically given Diamond Plus when February 1st comes, if you have 25,000 tiers. As I mentioned last week, be careful with 7 stars, though. 7 stars is no longer automatically awarded to those who reach 150k tiers, as long as they have no uh, negative remarks in their account, no behavior problems, no money owed, blah, blah, blah. It's not like that anymore. They are denying people now who they feel are not playing enough to be given seven stars. If they just look at your play and go, nah, he's not playing enough. He's kind of just shooting his load in, in a few sessions and earning the seven star and quitting. You screw it. He's not getting it. Or they just keep redeeming comps and not playing on most trips. They're going to deny your seven stars. So, so don't bother putting in the time and money to earn it. You will be disappointed. So these are important things to keep in mind. Now, how can you earn diamond? Well, they came out with something called Diamond in a Day a number of years ago because you can earn 10,000 tier credits bonus if you earn 5,000 in a single day. If you don't want to earn 5,000 in a single day, you can do half that for the same value. If you play 2,500 in a single day, you'll get 5,000 bonus. It's the same ratio. So you could either split it over two days or do it all in one day. But I would recommend playing always either a multiple of 2,500 tier credits or Either 2,500 tier credits or 5,000 tier credits. Exactly. Not more, not less. Because uh, that will earn you the maximum amount of bonus. So if you want to do it 2,500 at a time, you can do it over two days. If you want to do it 5,000 at a time, you do it over one day. But if you do it 5,000, if you earn 5,000 base tier credits in one day, that's what's known as diamond in a day. This is their term. So let's see. Diamond in a day. Let's enter that into Google. Let's see what comes up here. Let's see here. I'm scrolling down. Now, what used to be the first result is now actually the fourth result. But the fourth result down on Google, you can look at these yourself, is a thread called Best Ways to Seven Stars or Diamond in a Day for Caesars. What site do you think is carrying that thread? I'll give you a hint. It's the site you're on right now, PokerFraudAlert.com. It's a thread that I've created that's gotten many accolades from people. I have people who come up to me every year at the World Series and thank me for this thread because it helped them get to Diamond and Seven Star quicker, where I show you all the best video poker games to play, best meaning where you're 
have the best you're going to have the best odds. We just lost Trader Ruski, by the way. But you're going to have the best odds, and you'll lose the least money on average. There's a lot of variance in this, so don't blame me if you lose thousands trying to get diamond. But on average, you'll have the least variance at these specific machines, at these specific casinos in each market, and you can scroll down the thread and see all the different casinos that run these games. Most of it's current. Not all of it is, but most of it is. And I even have links to the strategy for all these games. So you can learn the perfect strategy or bookmark it in your cell phone and bring it up whenever you need to if you don't know what to do in a tough hand in video poker. Uh, Keep in mind that there is variance to this because video poker has the royal flush situation where the royal flush comprises about 2% of return on most machines yet you will hit it on average once out of every 40,000 hands. So the problem with that is you will often go a long time between royals, and when trying to earn diamond, the very, very overwhelming likelihood is that you will not hit a royal, especially if you're playing a one-play machine. If you're playing like a 50-play machine, then you have a better shot at it, but if you're playing like a one-play machine or even a five-play machine, you're probably not going to hit a royal, so you need to keep in mind what the non-royal expectation is, not just what the expectation is of what you'll lose, but the non-royal expectation where if you have completely average luck aside from hitting no royals, how much will you lose? And for Diamond, that's actually about uh, an additional uh, $1,000. So you have to keep that in mind. And then there's variance on top of that. So that's something you need to know is that you could easily lose like $3,000 trying to be diamond. It's not likely, but it can happen. I, I have lost 3000 earning 5,000 tier credits before. I've actually lost more than that earning 5,000 tier credits before. Now, you may win too, or you may break even or come close to breaking even, but the, keep in mind there's variance to this. So just because the expected loss seems relatively low... That doesn't mean you're going to get anywhere near those results. A lot of it is dependent upon how many big hands you're hitting, how many rolls you're hitting, how many uh, uh, straight flushes you're hitting, how many quads you're hitting. If you're playing double-double bonus, how many quads with, with good kickers you're hitting. Things like that. Now, you may say, well, I'll just play like a 50-play machine. That'll bring down the variance. Well, not as much as you think because those machines are more tied to how good of a hand you're dealt rather than how good your draws are. So those 50-play machines, all they're really doing is transferring the variance to what you're dealt and reducing the variance of your draw. So, you know, when you're playing a one-play machine and you get dealt a Ford or a Royal, and then you draw and get a complete brick, then you get zero out of it. And it's very frustrating. On a 50-play machine, you're not going to get 50 bricks on on Ford or a Royal. You may not get a Royal, but there's a decent chance you will get one. But that's an excellent uh, deal to you, and you're going to do very well in a 50-play machine. So that's so it prevents the draw variance, but the dealing variance, it increases. So plenty of variance on those two. So just keep that in mind if you're going to earn diamond. Now, let's say you don't want variance. Let's say you just want diamond. There's a thing called the Founder's Card. You can Google it, and the Founder's Card is a way you can buy your way into diamond. I think it's like $495. They give you automatic diamond. That's one way you can do it. I think the Founders card you can actually do year after year after year, and you can keep the diamond. I'm not sure, but I think you can. There's also a free way you can get diamond, but you have to have a 
high card at some other property, some other qualifying property that they're willing to match. It's called a status match, and they're doing this. They've been doing this for a while at Caesars, where if you bring in the card of a high-profile property and show it to them and show them that the card is current, that they will automatically give you diamond. One catch, only one year. So you can't go and do that a second year after you get diamond for a year doing that. But it is free if you already have a higher-tier card. Will diamond get you offers, free play, free rooms? No. Diamond does not affect your offers. Once again, diamond does not affect your offers. No tier affects your offers. Your offers are totally separate from that. There are people who are gold, the bottom level, getting better offers than seven stars. Your offers have to do with your recent and semi-recent play. It does not have to do with what tier you are. So keep that in mind. Don't say, well, now I'm diamond. I'm going to get all these sweet offers, and I'm going to get uh, uh, so much free food and so so much uh, free play. No. You may get that separately as offers, but it's not related to being diamond. Why would you want to earn diamond? As I said, if you play at the World Series, if you stay in Caesars Hotels a lot, you automatically save the resort fee, which is very big. If you like being able to skip lines, that can be very convenient and very nice. So that type of stuff makes it worth getting diamond. If you barely go to Caesars Properties, you probably don't want diamond. It's not going to do much for you. What about Diamond Plus, Diamond Elite? I wouldn't bother. The, it, it's really diminishing returns. Uh, some people really like the lounges. I don't really care about them much, but if, if you really like the lounges, then yeah, earn up to 25000 But uh, the additional benefit you get at 75000 isn't worth it unless you happen to be just playing anyway and getting there. So there you go. If you have any questions, I'm an expert on the Caesars uh, Rewards Program and Caesars in general. You can message me 775-372-8355 by text. 775-372-8355 if you've got any questions about this uh, Caesar Rewards program. I'll try to answer them for you. And this is not just during the live show, like any time. All right. Moving along here to our next subject. Now that I'm alone with no trader Ruski. I want to talk a bit about run it once poker. I think I'll do a run it once topic, then I'll take a little break. We kind of forgot about run it once for a while, didn't we? Run it once is Phil Galfon's poker site, and it has been a fail site. It has not been working out. We did some features on this over the summer, and then we kind of stopped after September because Mike Postle became the topic at the moment, and everyone kind of turned their eyes away from run it once, which was failing. And Phil Galfon basically admitted it was failing. He admitted they were, quote, burning through money. He said that on the 2 plus 2, I keep saying 2 plus 2, on, on the Dat Poker podcast. That Negranu and Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan do. So he said they're burning through money. And it's not clear how much money is going to keep flowing in there until they have no more to burn. It's very clear the traffic is very low. The site has not been anything what Phil Galfond hoped it would be. Doesn't surprise me. There's been many, many ways they've mismanaged it. And the entire plan for the site has been flawed from the start. 
not from the very, very start. At the very, very start, they had a lot of good ideas in general and then just did everything wrong from that point forward. But there's some news about Phil Galfon's Run at Once site, and I wanted to let you guys know this because it's interesting. It's something I discovered yesterday. Phil Galfond, it looks like, has opted out of being listed from PokerScout.com, which means PokerScout, which ranks the traffic of like every poker site you could think of, no longer lists Run It Once as a site where you could view how much traffic they have. Oh my goodness. I can't say for sure that Phil Galfon requested this, but I can't see otherwise why Poker Scout would have dropped them. Poker Scout lists everything, even when they have no traffic. Even if you have no players on your site. Even if you're running a site and the number of players on is... 0.0. You will be listed. I see four sites listed right here with no traffic. I see another site listed with two players online and no games running. I see another site listed with four players online and no games running. So for sure, they will list you even if your site is pathetic. So what happened to run it once? Why are they not on there? Well, they were on there all the way through November 13th. Today is November 15th. I guess it's now technically November 16th because we've past midnight, but let's just call it November 15th. How could they not have run it once on there when they were just there on November 13th? And they have every other site I can think of. Hmm. Well, I looked into Google Cache and I found that they were listed as uh, 54th rank, which is not very good. And they were shown having 95 players online, but 20 playing at cash games. I'm not sure exactly when that was taken, but it was sometime on November 12th, that snapshot, which I actually screenshotted. Uh, sorry, I, I said that wrong. Let me correct myself. It's 95 people were online. It was at its peak at the moment, but their, their seven-day average was 20. That, that's what I was I, – I was misreading it. But still, not very good, right? That, with, with all the money and time and effort that Galfon's put into this, you think he wants uh, 20 average players on and 95 at the peak? So that's obviously not what they're looking for. It was, it's been a fail site. It's been losing money. And it's not getting better. It's not like it just started. It, it, it's suffered this problem ever since it launched. It just has very, very little traffic. People report going on there. They don't find a single no-limit or PLO game going at any stake sometimes. It's it's a disaster. And now it's gone from Poker Scout. And I thought yesterday when I saw this, okay, maybe it's a glitch of some sort. Well, I checked again today. It's not there either. I have a feeling we're going to check a week from now. It's still not going to be there. I have a feeling that Phil or someone working for Phil emailed Run It Once and or not emailed Poker Scout and said, "Take Run It Once off, please. We don't want to be listed." And I'm surprised Poker Scout obliged because, as far as I knew, they wouldn't do things like this. But it's gone. It's gone. And go go to PokerScout.com yourself and look for it, and then try to think of any site that is running that you know of that's not up there. You'll see them all. 
You'll see every single one that you can think of that has any kind of traffic, even if you with zero traffic. And for some reason, Run It Once disappeared on November 14th. Really weird, huh? Really, really weird. Is it out of embarrassment? I don't know. Are they afraid that this is preventing uh, others from signing up? Maybe they thought that people go to Poker Scout and see this and don't want to sign up. I don't know, but they, they took themselves off, which kind of goes against the whole transparency thing that he claimed that they were going to have when he introduced the site a few years ago, when he introduced the plans of the site, that is. One of the big things was transparency. This is, this is anti-transparency, opting out of Poker Scout listing you when they're listing everybody else. But maybe desperate times call for desperate measures. Maybe they're almost out of funding. Who knows? The run-at-one situation is very fascinating to me. Players on 2 plus 2 are begging Galphon. They're begging him. They're on their knees begging, please, Phil, please stop with the anonymous tables. Please just let us see who we're playing. We don't like this. It sucks. But it's falling upon deaf ears. But it's really holding the site back, as well as the multi-table tournaments being absent. There are no multi-table tournaments, or sit and goes on there for that. There's no tournaments, all cash. So the site has been a, a complete failure. The site is fascinating to me because the project actually had potential and people were excited about it. And I, I really thought, I thought it was kind of too late in the game to be developing a new poker site, but... Phil's plans were pretty exciting, and it looked like he knew what he was doing. It looked like he had the right idea, and then it just went off in the weeds. It had so much potential, but they got so many basic things wrong. They stressed innovation and gimmicks over the just established basic requirements, such as a site that has multi-table tournaments and a site that you can see who you're playing against. Uh, They had a poor marketing plan which lacked any kind of marketing budget in case that plan didn't work out. They basically had a let's market through streamer plan. They were going to do it through a program they call streamer, where they give additional rake back to those who stream poker play on there and just assumed, hey, look, it's like free marketing for us. We don't need to spend on marketing. Oops. Yes, you do. (laughs) Oops, that's not going to do it by itself. Oops, no one's going to stream the site if there's no games running. Oops, didn't think of that. They didn't do any kind of real market assessment, to my knowledge, regarding what players were really looking for. And they completely ignored the advice of industry veterans, including myself, who were providing this advice for free on 2 Plus 2 and other places. Right to Phil, saying, hey, Phil, this is what we want. No, no, I think this is the right way to do it. He just did what he thought would be cool, what he thought would be good, what he thought would be successful, and didn't listen at all to what the players wanted. They also put the cart before the horse. They were solving problems like HUDs, like bum hunting, things like that, which are only faced by sites that already have substantial traffic. But they didn't bother to think of that of the fact that in attempt to solve these problems which don't exist for them yet, they were strangling the growth of their site to get to that point in the first place. They're actually making it less appealing for people to play on there to start to where nobody wants to start in an attempt to solve a problem which doesn't exist yet. It's like making all these obnoxious uh, crowd control plans for your business 
when nobody's walked through the doors yet. And then people walk through the doors and there's all this obnoxious crap in the way that, that's meant to control the crowds. And you go, I don't want to come back to this place. What's all this ridiculous crap that I don't enjoy here? Other businesses aren't like this. And you leave. And then you ask the owner, why would you do this? Well, I expected huge crowds, so we needed to control them. Yeah, but you don't have a crowd yet. Well, but that's why we're trying to control them. Yeah, but this is driving people away, so you're never going to get a crowd. Oops, didn't think of that. That's pretty much what happened over at One and One, Run at Once. Then they had an improper reaction to the site's initial failure. Instead of saying, okay, this was poorly conceived. A lot of our ideas were wrong. A lot of the ways we approached things were wrong. The anonymous table thing has been a failure. People don't like it. Let's look at what people really want. No. Instead, Phil Galfon seemed to have focused upon customer blaming rather than true introspection regarding their ill-advised plans. And you could see this in one of the blogs he wrote where he was passive-aggressively blaming the regular grinders for not being adventurous enough to understand that he was providing them a great opportunity and that this was their failure for not realizing that the grinders would miss this which is like a very insulting to say it's like saying oh this is all my fault for not realizing how stupid you are (laughs) but he really wrote a blog like that also they had an inability to see from the start that the site should be built for and aimed at recreational players, not the pros and not for Phil himself. The pros will come if the games are good. And if you get a happy player base, a dedicated player base of regulars, then you can start innovating and putting in things that may not be popular at first, but people will get used to. But you can't just start with things that you think are cool, but that the average player is not going to like, especially the average recreational player. So they didn't even gear the site toward recreational players, and that was a huge mistake. And they had a poor software testing procedure leading to a very buggy launch, which drove a lot of people away as well. So the whole thing has been a disaster, and the amazing thing is they still don't get it, and they're still repeating the same mistakes. Yeah, they have a few better promotions now, like they have this stupid one where like the for this week only, the first 50 people to win a hand get 50% extra rake back, but... Like, who cares? That's not going to drive new people there. It's just not. They don't have a marketing budget. They There's really no reason to play there. There's no activity. There's no marketing budget. There's really... Uh, the, the rake is high. There's like there's not really a reason to show up there and play unless you're just trying to be nice and support Phil. It's a tremendous failure, and I don't see really anything significant changing. It's crazy. And now they're off Poker Scout. Now they're off Poker Scout. Yeah, that's that's the solution. Hide. Hide from Poker Scout. That's going to make things better. At some point, the investors are going to jump ship. The investors feel like they're pot committed. Somebody asked me this week, why is anyone still investing money in this? It's clear they're totally on the wrong path. It's clear they're burning through money every month. Why would investors keep throwing good money after bad? And that is because it is a functioning poker site. You can deposit. You can withdraw. You can play. It's got running software. Like, yeah, it's missing a lot of things, and it has no traffic, and the whole thing's been a fail, but it is a functional poker site. So if you've invested this far and the the site is functional, it, it feels silly to walk away at this point. 
and not wait a little longer to see what plays out. But eventually, the investors are going to go, look, you know, I'm jumping ship here. I can't, I can't put any more into this. And eventually, we're going to see that blog from Phil Galfond about how it was a rewarding experience. He, he learned a lot. But unfortunately, this has to come to a close. It, it didn't uh, succeed like he hoped it would. Uh, his idea for what players wanted was a little bit different than what they actually did. And that uh, he'll, pro- he'll probably mention a few passive-aggressive jabs at, at the grinders who, who didn't take to his site, that they didn't realize what a great opportunity it was. Probably something similar to what we already read kind of in the intermediate failure stage where they haven't closed it down, but they're, he's already admitting that it's not going well. We'll see something like that, and then kind of with a pseudo-positive spin to it, but where you can tell he's kind of pissed off and irritated. I'm not saying this could have been a success for sure if it was run better, but I'm saying the way it is being run, the way it is being managed, and with the approach they've been taking, it was 100% guaranteed to fail. 100%. Not even 99%. 100% guaranteed to fail. And the amazing thing is I just don't see any change. I don't see any change. I don't see, like, the light bulb going over Phil's head, going, oh, well, no one likes this. No one likes the the anonymous tables, the lack of traffic, the lack of marketing, the high rake, which is offset by this high variance uh, splash the pot thing, which by itself the splash the pot thing some people think is cool, but not coupled with high rake. Like, Like... at some, they don't have tournaments. At some point, say, you know what? We're going to make the tables not anonymous. Everybody can have their own screen name. And we're going to put in tournaments. We're going to devote every resource we have to unanonymize it and put in tournaments. And we're going to lower the rake. And that's that. In fact, someone on 2 plus 2, some European posting there, said something very wise. The guy said something that really sums up everything I've been saying about Run It Once for months in just one line. I don't even remember who it was, but the guy said, what the players wanted all along was a site similar to PokerStars with less rake and a proper rewards program. Correct. That's that's right. I can't argue with it. That, that's correct. That's totally correct. What the players wanted all along was a site similar to PokerStars with less rake and a proper rewards program. That's it. Why? Because people liked Poker Stars, except they didn't like the customer service anymore. They didn't like the general attitude towards players and towards grinders. They didn't like the fact that the rake was increasing and that Daniel Negrano said more rake is better, which he really didn't say but kind of said, and that the rewards program went to shit with a stupid chess thing they released. So people are like, oh, I wish we could have Poker Stars of old. And all Phil had to do is say, here, here's kind of Poker Stars of old. And develop good software, and charge low rake, and give a good rewards program, and say, here it is, guys. And I think it would have been far more successful without any of this anonymous table, changing emotion avatars, gimmickry, and splash the pot, and and the misleading rake back. None of that. Screw that. Just make kind of a PokerStars clone with less rake and a proper rewards program. Right. That's what he should have done. Hire that guy. <laughs> I'm going to admit something. My, my attitude towards Run It Once has kind of changed over time. When I first saw it appeared, I was excited about it. 
enough to where I offered to work there. And it was kind of shot in the dark offer. I wasn't going to be bitter if he said no. And I understood why he said no. They had a team in place already. So whatever. I wasn't mad or bitter. So I still wanted to succeed. I, I thought it was uh, would be good for poker. I thought Phil got it, what people really wanted. I thought he was presenting kind of an abstract idea that sounded good of a nice balance between things for recreational players and things for pros. I, I wanted it to work. I thought this was a great idea for poker, and I thought Phil was a good man to lead it. I was skeptical about uh, his experience or lack thereof, and the team he put together, I wasn't convinced really knew what they were doing, but uh, you know, I, then that's why I offered to help. But I was still hoping it would succeed. But then, as I've been watching, and I've seen such little introspection on the part of Phil... And actually some arrogance regarding the whole thing and, and this blaming of the customer. and uh, I, I, it's, it's been kind of off-putting. It's kind of changed it from where I was rooting for him to succeed to kind of neutral to kind of... I, I'm not rooting for him to fail, but I'm, I'm kind of laughing at it now. And I shouldn't be, but I am. And I am because it's right in front of his face what he needs to do if he wants to have any chance for it to work. And he's stubbornly refusing to take everyone's advice. Not just mine. I'm saying, okay, fine. If it's just me saying something, you can just say, well, Todd's wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's He's got an incorrect opinion on this. But when the whole freaking poker world is telling you this and you're dismissing them, saying, no, 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 I know better. No, sorry, grinders who've been around for 20 years and are all giving me the same advice. No, sorry, I know better than you guys, even though my site is failing then you have to chuckle at the guy with that attitude, especially when he's putting out blogs mocking those grinders for not enjoying his product like they were supposed to. So when you take an attitude like that, uh, you kind of deserve to fail, to be honest. I'm not going to cheer the day it goes down, but it's not going to succeed. It's got a very small chance of success if the tournaments get going and they find someone to give it a marketing budget. And then they do a marketing campaign and get some traffic on there and get tournaments running. And it becomes some kind of like medium-sized European site. Maybe, but a long shot at this point. Very, very likely it's just going to disappear one day. But a fascinating story nonetheless. Well, I'm going to talk about another online poker site, one that I do play on, but I'm going to take a break. But before I do the break where I'm going to uh, play the Eric Benzamokin ad, I want to do an ad for myself. I don't usually do this here, but I actually have an ad for myself, and this is serious, this is not a joke. And something that I'd like you to consider, especially if you want to support the show and if you have an interest in cryptocurrency. Well, I don't have a sponsor, but I do have an affiliate link. And I actually, I signed up for a, a cryptocurrency exchange, which... I actually have decided I like for the most part. It's not flawless. It's not perfect. 
And the reason I'm playing this music here is because you also get an affiliate code when you sign up where you get $15 if you sign up anybody else. And they also get $15. So I figure we can both be good Jews here, even if you're not Jewish. And you can sign up and get your account verified and you will get $15 to buy cryptocurrency with. And I will get it for you signing up. So we both win. I'm talking about Binance. Uh, if you use cryptocurrency, mainly Bitcoin, but any other coin, they Binance supports tons of different coins. If you use them, you probably run into the issue of how do I get the coin in the first place and how do I cash it out to real U.S. dollars when I'm ready to sell my coin? And the answer to that, for the most part, is you have to use an exchange. Now, yes, there's other things you can do. You could, yeah, you, know, you see somebody around commerce. Hey, you need 2K of Bitcoin? Yeah, I do. Okay, here's your Bitcoin. Okay, here's your cash. Okay. Well, then you don't need anybody except that person in commerce who wants the 2K of Bitcoin. But aside from that, unless you're doing that, which is, is tough to do for a lot of people or impossible to do for a lot of people, if you want to either buy Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin, the best way to do it is through an exchange. And there's certain exchanges that operate legally in the U.S., that you can use. And the two that are known best in the U.S., I think, are Coinbase, that's the best known for sure. I think the second best known is Gemini. Gemini is actually owned by the Winklevoss twins, formerly of Facebook. Well, the problem with Coinbase and Gemini is they charge bad fees. The regular trades on there cost uh, 2%, would you believe, and even if you use something like the Gemini Active Trading Platform, you're still paying 0.25%. So I was I was looking for something with the lowest fees that takes U.S. customers. And that's that's honestly what I was looking for a few weeks ago. I, I put some effort into finding this. I said, screw these other better-known uh, U.S. exchanges. I want an exchange which is going to suit my needs the best, which is basically it has to be reliable and it has low fees. That, that's all I need. I need it to be reliable where they're not going to steal my Bitcoin or my money and have low fees. And of course, it needs to work and, and function decently. That, that's pretty much it. Because if you got that, then you've pretty much got all you need. So I searched around and I found Binance. Now, I had always thought Binance was not available to the US, but starting fairly recently, it has become available to the U.S. And their fees are by far the lowest. But I was the guinea pig here. Without pushing this on you guys, I signed up for Binance on my own in late October. And I got approved. And then I did a Bitcoin transaction for some substantial money. Not huge money, but I'm not talking about $100. I did it for uh, thousands. And everything went very smoothly. So if you want to get cryptocurrency or sell cryptocurrency, and not just Bitcoin, you can also go on there and, and you can trade your Bitcoin for other cryptos or you can buy other cryptos for real money. There, if you want, There's so many different cryptos you can get on there. So that's that's another great thing about Binance. It's not just Bitcoin or not even just Bitcoin and the other few Big cryptos. There's so many different cryptocurrencies you, you can buy through Binance. Just do this. Go to Binance.us. Binance is like the word finance, except with the word, the letter B starting it. B I N 
B-I-N-A-N-C-E, Binance. So go to Binance.us. And then when it asks for a referral code, enter this number, 350-291-65. 350-291-65. That's the referral code you should enter when you sign up. Once again, 350-291-65. You go to Binance.us, and when you sign up, look for where it's asking for the referral code. And you can also just... uh, There's a link on the Flying Stupidity Forum Bitcoin thread on page... What is it? Page 327, where you can just click through directly, and it'll automatically input the... uh, the code, and if you, basically once you sign up and get verified, you don't even have to make any trades yet. You, you, you just have to sign up and get verified. It will give you fifteen dollars to trade with, just for free, and then I'll get fifteen bucks too. So that's Binance.us referral code three five zero two nine one six five. If you don't enter the referral code, then you won't get the fifteen bucks, and I won't get the fifteen bucks. We're both going to get screwed there. So don't uh, make sure you remember the referral code. Uh, the three five zero two nine one six five. Now, if you are outside the U.S., don't do this because this is only to U.S. residents. And there are thirteen states where you also can't do this because they are not legal in thirteen states. Those states are Alabama, Alaska, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, New York, North Carolina, Texas, Vermont, and Washington. If you're in any other state, you can use Binance legally, just not those. Alabama, Alaska, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, New York, North Carolina, Texas, Vermont, Washington. Those are the 13 that you cannot use it. But all other 37, including California, including Nevada, including New Jersey, you can use it. And it's totally legal, provided you're in these 37 states where you can do it. So there's nothing to hide. You don't have to worry about the government finding out and busting you. Totally legal. Totally legal and licensed and regulated and all that. And Binance has a good reputation. They've been around for a long time. They were serving other countries prior to the U.S. And you you can trust them as much as you can trust any of these exchanges. I did a review of them, and I'm not going to go through the whole review, but in short, the fees are excellent. The fees are 0.075%, not 0.75%, 0.075%, meaning you could trade 10K worth of Bitcoin for cash and your fee is $7.50 for 10K. So you, you sell 10K worth of Bitcoin, you're paying $7.50 in fees. Great. It's like negligible. So the fees are excellent, the very best in the US by far. Their reputation is excellent. The number of cryptos supported is excellent. The transaction speed is good. I got my money in my banking account pretty fast. The website, a little confusing to learn at first, but it's good. It's functional. It it does what you need it to do, which is a little bit of a learning curve. But I'll be honest, it's not a perfect website. It could be more more user-friendly, but it's uh, it's usable. You can figure it out. The ease of sign-up, they're going to claim you can get fully verified in like 10 minutes you probably won't. The thing, the first, there's three steps you got to go through. The first step will probably be very fast. The second step might get stuck, and then the third step will probably be fast. That's what happened for me. So you you may want to sign up like the day before you're going to want to do trading because uh, you're going to want to let a day pass at least for the sign up process and the verification process. Customer service, I will admit, is not very good. 
See, I'm, I'm being honest with you guys here. Even though I, I get my Jew $15 if you sign up, I don't want you to sign up if you're expecting good customer service because it sucks. Uh, when I've emailed their customer service, I've gotten uh, slow responses, sometimes no responses. So fortunately, everything kind of runs itself there. But the customer service kind of sucks. However, it's not very good on the other exchanges either. So it's not, it's not like you're going to get much better at Coinbase. So that's the only thing I really don't like there is the customer service. But uh, overall, by far, this is the best place to sign up. I wouldn't be telling you this if I didn't believe it, if I wasn't using it myself. So that's Binance.us, and that's a referral code 3502965. Ask me any questions about signing up if you want. And this is a way to get Bitcoin uh, on and off, or convert it from Bitcoin into real cash money, or vice versa. That's, that's my little ad here. They're not a sponsor, by the way. They, they have no idea I'm doing this, but uh, I'm allowed to do this because they, they, they're, they're going to give you a referral code too, by the way. You can refer your friends and get them $15 and get $15 for yourself. But the only thing I ask is you do not post your referral code on Poker Fraud Alert because then you'll be competing with my referral code, and it's my site, so I'm not going to let you do that. So I, nobody can post referral codes on Poker Fraud Alert except me. But if you want to post them somewhere else, your Facebook, your Twitter, whatever, of course you can do that and get your friends to sign up and get 15 bucks each. Everybody who signs up gets a referral code once they're verified. So I'm, I'm actually uh, happy with Binance so far. Not perfect, but uh, the fees are great, and I am very happy I found it. I'm happy I put the time into finding it. And keep in mind, I would never do this. I'm never going to steer you guys towards something that sucks, that just gets me referral money from signing up. I'm, I'm honestly doing this because I use it myself. I think it's the best choice, and... Because I get you money when you sign up. I probably wouldn't mention this if I wasn't getting the 15 bucks for you signing up. I'll be honest. I wouldn't waste time on this show. But since I'm getting 15 bucks for you signing up, I am going to waste time on this show. I think I'm going to make my own commercial for it, too. You're going to be stuck sitting through when I take breaks. I'll still play Eric Benzamokin's ad, though. He, he deserves it. He deserves it after all he's done here. And continues to do. He did. Look, he gave, 50, he gave 25 bucks tonight. We got 25 bucks from him uh, next week. So, Eric Benzamokin definitely deserves it. Okay. Uh, I, I want to make one other announcement, actually. I meant to do this at the beginning of the show, but I forgot, so I'm going to do it now. If you play fantasy baseball or want to and are interested in a keeper league, which means you keep uh, 12 players each year, between 7 and 12 players each year, it's a National League only. If you like the American League, then tough luck. It's National League only, Keeper League for fantasy baseball. If you know what I'm talking about, just ignore this. But it's we, we need another owner. We're short one owner, and this is a unique league where there's only five owners, each of whom get two teams. And it's a $500 total entry fee. So you get two teams for $500 total, and then the prize pool is around 2500 It's a little bit more from... Factors I won't get into, but uh, it's around $2,500 prize pool that five people are competing for with two teams. There are two teams that need to be taken over, and we have our draft live in Las Vegas. And the, the other four of us have all been part of it for a long time. And a big and here, if you join it, you will get to meet my brother because he's part of it. He's one of the people involved. So we're actually looking for a, a fifth owner. So if you can come to Vegas during usually what would be the second 
weekend of baseball, or the first, it's usually the first weekend following opening day is when we do it. I think this year it's like April 3rd. So you have to do this in person in Vegas. So if you live in Vegas, it's best, then you can just drive on over there. But uh, if, if you like to visit Vegas and join the league on that particular weekend, you just have to make sure you can make that particular weekend and you can afford the $500 entry fee. Then uh, let me know. 775-372-8355. This is open to anybody. You don't have to know me well. I, I do hope that you would want to do this long term, not just do it for one year and then have me have to search for someone this year. But we, we're we having trouble with with keeping a consistent fifth owner. People uh, sign up and then they flake out after one year. So we've, we've had four of us that have been around forever, and then this fifth person we we have a hard time. But it's a unique league because... You get to manage two teams, and there's no trading. So it's it's not even a lot of time burden. Once you get the draft established, all you really do is sign free agents, and that's it. And we have no trading, so this way you don't get screwed by people making lopsided trades. Because I, I had that one time where I was uh, winning the league, and then I ended up uh, not winning because someone made some awful trade with someone else, which really strengthened the first person's team, and they passed me, which they wouldn't have if they hadn't made that trade. So we just we outlawed trades, so it's it's pretty simple. It's a national league only keeper league, and once the draft is over, which is a live draft in Vegas, then there's not that much to do for the rest of the year. And you kind of just once a week look what free agents you want to bid on, and it's all through an automated tool, and you just watch your results from there. So if you're interested, please let me know seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. Text me there. Again, it doesn't matter if I know you or if I've met you. If you're interested in doing it, then please let me know. Okay, so those are my own little announcements that I'm making this week. And let me... Uh, and by, by the way, it's a, it's a very... It's not a cutthroat league. I saw some tweet this week that Jesse Martin was having trouble with his old college buddies that someone clicked the wrong button and made an obvious wrong move and they wouldn't let him back it out an hour later. Like we're not like that. We're if, if something's obvious that there was some misclick or something would everyone would totally be laid back and say, no problem. So it's a, uh, it's a very friendly league. It's not a cutthroat, super competitive thing. In fact, all four people in the league, uh, obviously myself and my brother included, uh, are financially secure to the point where the $500 buy-in is not, uh, Big money to us, so we're doing it for fun. That's it. All right, so I'm going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad, and then we will finish off our final three topics on this fine Friday night, Saturday morning in the middle of November. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money... Or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally. 
and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. During the break, not only did I go to the bathroom and rinse out my throat as I always do, I actually turned on some heat. You know that winter is coming when I'm having to turn on heat during the show. I was actually getting cold as I'm doing this show here, but I feel the heater on, feels better, and we will complete now our last few topics of the evening. Still got some interesting stuff to talk about here. Okay, so I want to talk about the change that's happening with Bovada and Ignition, or it's already happened. It's not a change that's happening. It's a change that has happened. It hasn't really been announced, but I discovered it, and to me, it's bothersome, and to me, I don't like it, but... I brought it up on 2 plus 2, and I got a lot of people attacking me. So I wonder how you're going to feel when you hear this. As you probably know, Bovada and Ignition, which it's the same network, so it's the same games running on both, they have anonymous tables and have for quite some time. And you also can't see which games are running, which I think is stupid. I think <clears throat> there should be some visibility into at least what games are going, so you can choose from that. Because it's it's frustrating to both pros and fish to have to find a game that's running. And people will just give up. But putting that aside, the way you would do it before is you just open up tables that you want to play and see if anybody's waiting there. And often, you would find one guy sitting, who's obviously a good player. It's very rare that a recreational player is sitting and waiting for someone to sit with them heads up. Recreational players just like to start playing. They don't like to wait. So anyone sitting heads up is typically good. So I I don't have an interest in playing a very good heads up player, who might even be a bot, by the way. You never even know. I I, I don't want to play heads up against either a bot or someone who's a really good heads up player. I, I just don't. So what I would do is I'd open the software. If someone's sitting alone, then I would sit out and I'd wait. And as soon as a third person would sit, of course, I can't see who they are. It could be a recreational player. It could be another pro. I don't know. But I'd sit back in. Why? 
Because I'm willing to play three-handed, even if it's three pros. Now, I don't want to play three-handed for a long time against two other pros, but I'm willing to play for a little while to get a game going, even if it's against two other pros, as long as it's three-handed or more. Heads-up is a different matter. But three-handed or more, I'm willing to play, even if the game's not good. Even if it's a terrible game, I'm willing to play three-handed. And... There's others I've seen that have had that attitude there. A lot of other people who will play provided that there's a minimum of three in the game who are willing to sit in. That is the original guy sitting, who usually take on anyone who'll sit with him, or and, and then two others. So I'm willing to be one of those three. The problem is you can't do that anymore. And before this was good, because then sometimes as the game is going, a fish would open it up, and there's an existing game running, and he sits... And then you've got a good game. Then sometimes the second fish would come. It's even a better game. But now you can't do this anymore because they only let one person, they only let anyone sit at the table if they are sitting in or if a game is already running. So if there's no game currently running, you either have to sit in and be willing to play right now or they kick you off the table. So let's go back to the scenario of what I had been doing before. I open a table, and there's only one guy sitting there waiting for heads up. So I sit out. What happens? Now, instead of letting me wait for a third guy to come, it kicks me. And there is no way to sit and wait for a third guy to come without getting kicked immediately. My only other option, well, I have two options. I can just leave, or I can choose to play this top, maybe world-class heads-up player, heads-up for an extended period of time till a third guy comes and sits in. So I'm not doing it. So I just leave. And I try again later. Well, what happens? What about others like me? What about others like me that also will play three-handed but not heads up against a good player? Well, they open it. And because I'm no longer waiting there, they now have to decide if they want to play heads up or leave, and they leave. So what happens? Games don't get going. What happens is that the same guy is sitting there constantly waiting to play, and... Only when a fish sits with him who is actually willing to play heads up or just some guy who's willing to play another very good player heads up is when games get going. And it's really frustrating. So I thought that was a terrible change. Now, why would they do this? They're doing this to fight what they call table camping. Table camping is when people hog up tables, sometimes several tables, sitting out, waiting until an obvious fish is playing. So people just sit out there. They watch someone who sits in, maybe someone especially who sits in with a weird buy-in amount, like $535.22 is often, like that's the sign of a fish. They watch a few hands. They see the guy seems like a fish. They sit in. If it's someone sitting in who seems like a pro, then they don't sit in. So that's called table camping. They'll just leave several tables open and, and, and sit out and wait to see if the game goes and who it goes, who, who the players in the game are, from what they can tell. They, it's anonymous, but they can tell the skill of the players. If they, if they don't think the game's good, then they, they, they leave. So, in order to stop this, and there were some complaints about table camping, that people will show up, and it's like one guy sitting in, four sitting out table camping, and then you, in a six-handed game. And people are like, look, these people have to stop taking up room here. They need to either play or leave. Otherwise, fish can't even sit in. So I understand the complaints. The problem is that this is not the solution because this creates the opposite problem. 
So I brought this up on 2 Plus 2, and I had people jumping all over me, calling me a bum hunter, saying that uh, I, I'm just a pussy afraid to play anyone good. And so I clarified it. I go, I'm not a pussy afraid to play anyone good. I will play two excellent players in a three-handed game. I will. I will and have. So explain that one if I'm a bum hunter or a guy afraid to play anyone good. I just don't want to play a great player heads up. I just don't want to do it. Most people don't want to do this. So if I'm willing to play two good players three-handed to get a game going, I should be able to. And this prevents that. Oh, oh, no, you're, you're just a bum hunter. Oh, no, no, you just want to wait for a fish. Oh, you're, the, you're what's wrong with poker. Blah, 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 blah. It's, it was like they were intentionally not getting it. I say, again, I'm trying to get a three-handed game going no matter who the other two are. Oh, you're a bum hunter. So, and these weren't even trolls. These were people who really felt this way. They were just like so invested in hating the table camping that they couldn't understand the logic I was trying to present. In fact, one of them had the nerve to demand that the mods ban me. They said, well, you know, I, I know he hasn't actually broken any rules, but if you could just bend the rules this one time and ban, you know, ban this guy and one other one, this is one other guy agreeing with me there. If you can ban the two of them, that would be great. Then I'll never ask for anything again. I'm like, what the hell? They want us banned now for suggesting they reverse this stupid change? So, yeah, this is a total mistake. It's, it's killing the traffic there in these games. But a lot of people support it because they hated the table camping so much. They think that this is going to help matters, but it won't. It prevents games from getting going in the first place. But that is currently happening on Bovada and Ignition. Well, let's speak about Bovada and Ignition or any other site. And what would you do if, what do you do if your money gets frozen? What happens if a poker site you play on actively and often and have a good bankroll on there does not let you log into your account. What if you get a message saying your account has been frozen or suspended or banned? What do you do? Obviously, that's a very disturbing message to get. I've had it twice before. I had it once on Cake Poker where I was falsely accused of colluding, but then they would refuse to provide me any evidence of such. And it turned out that it was just a a fish complained that he lost a lot of money to me and assumed he was that we were colluding when we totally weren't. Finally, they realized I was right and released the money. That was in 2007. And a few years ago on Bovada, I had 56K frozen because they felt I was abusing bonuses, which, by the way, I wasn't. I They offered me a bonus for a Bitcoin deposit. I called in. I said, well, I've got 46K on the site. Is that okay? Can I still deposit? Yep, you sure can. You sure? Oh, yeah, you can. Okay, thank you. So I deposited, and then I get suspended for that. <laughs> then I won a little bit more money. Then I get suspended is what really happened. That's why I had 56K when it was done. Boy, was I nervous about that one. And the cake poker one. The cake poker was worse because they claimed they had already decided and that I couldn't appeal. At least the Bovada one, they just wanted to talk to me, and then they wanted to give me a tongue lashing for the uh, bonus abuse I had supposedly committed, which I proved to them I did not, and they even pulled the call and conceded I was right that I was given permission for this. But anyway, forget my situations. Let's let's talk about what if this happens to you. What are you going to do if your favorite poker site bans, suspends, or freezes your account? 
And I thought about this because I was reading a post on 2 Plus 2 where someone on Bovada is having this happen. And I don't know if they were deserving of it or not. There are bands that are good bands, such as bands of cheaters, colluders, bots. Those I'm happy get banned or suspended. But there are people who get banned or suspended for bad reasons or for false positives. So what do you do if this happens? Well, first of all, I want you to understand this segment is aimed at people who are following the rules. This is aimed at people who have no idea what they did wrong or who at worst committed some minor infraction. I'm not aiming this at cheaters, at botters, at colluders, nothing like that. So if you're doing stuff like that and you get suspended, you're on your own, and and I hope they keep your money. I'm talking about just normal players like me who just log in one day and find your account's been frozen, which is very unnerving, especially because you really don't have recourse. These sites tend to exist in little third world countries without any kind of real gaming regulation, and you really have just about no power to sue them and get the money back. So you're really at their mercy. So what do you do? What, what's the first thing you should do? Well, first of all, if there is a phone number to call, then you should call it. I can tell you Ignition and Bovada both have a phone number to call, even if they don't publicize it very well. Ask around and you'll get the number. So if it's something that has a phone number you should call that you can call, you should definitely call because you'll get a lot more done quicker if you can call and speak to a live human being. But I know some sites do not have telephone support, and you have to email them. Even PokerStars has never had telephone support. So sometimes it's always by email, even with big sites like PokerStars where the customer service was known to be good. So what do you do? Well, first of all, If you find yourself banned or suspended, be honest with yourself about why you think it happened. Of course, first check your email to see if they emailed you about why it happened. But try to figure it out. Did you recently make a deposit? Was there a bonus involved? A lot of times the suspensions happen because of that. Did you play from somewhere else other than your home? Maybe you played at a friend's house, your parent's house. Maybe you played while you were traveling abroad. Is it perhaps somewhere that you played that was different that triggered a, a suspension out of suspicion that your account was hacked? Uh, is it possible that some of your play might be considered suspicious even if it wasn't? For example, did a new account sit with you and play horribly and lose chips to you at such a rapid rate that it looked like they were chip dumping even though they really weren't, even though you didn't know the person? Did, could it possibly have looked like chip dumping? You have to think about everything, and you have to come up with your in your mind, if you can, a reason why they probably suspended or banned you. But if you can't, or even if you can, the next thing to do is to find out why if you can. So contact them either by the telephone if that's possible or by email if that's the only way, and tell them about your accounts being frozen and ask them why that is and what you can do to correct it. Make sure to write in your email that you are very surprised to see this happen, that you've always followed the rules, that uh, this is very unnerving to you, and if they could please give you a quick resolution to this, you'd really appreciate it. Be polite in your email. Do not suggest anything that you think it might be about. Let them tell you, because what if it isn't? What if you're admitting to something new they didn't know about? So, So do not ever volunteer to them what you think this is about. Let them tell you. 
Now, if they absolutely won't tell you, then at that point you have to try to play a guessing game and say, well, you know, could it possibly be this because I'm traveling, whatever? Then, then you can say it. Otherwise, let them tell you. Be polite in your email, but be firm and make sure to use language like, uh, I always follow the rules. Uh, I, I've always been careful not to do anything wrong here. I'm just a regular poker player. Things like that. You don't have to be obsessed with writing that over and over, but but make sure to get that language into a lot of your emails with them. When they ask you questions, be honest about it, even if the answer doesn't sound very good. So let's take my situation with Bovada, where they weren't happy that I was redeeming a bonus when I had 46K on the site already. Why, why am I depositing to a site when I have 46K on there? With a bonus attached. Obviously, I'm doing this to just get a bonus. I don't really need to deposit because I need money on there. So that pissed them off. What's stupid is they gave me permission. I called up and they gave me permission. But uh, that's what pissed them off and made them freeze my account. And at first, I didn't know why I was frozen. But then as soon as they mentioned about why did you deposit for when you already had 46K, then I knew exactly what this is about. So... I could have tried to bullshit them and said, well, I play for high stakes of 46K. It seems like a lot, but it's really not that much. I could have said that, but I would have looked like an idiot. I would have looked like a liar because at the stakes they run there, you never need 46K for one session. 46K is more than enough to have on there. So there's no way I would want to deposit with already 46K sitting on that site. So I couldn't say that. I wasn't going to insult their intelligence by saying that. So I said the truth. I said, I deposited because there was a bonus that was offered to me that looked good and I wanted to redeem that offer. But I was a little concerned that maybe because I have so much money on the site, this could be breaking the rules. So I even checked with the site by calling up and asking if if uh, this was okay and I was told yes. So notice in that answer I gave them, I was 100% honest and I didn't try to sugarcoat the bonus thing. I didn't try to say... Um, oh, I needed the extra money on there. No, I was honest. I wanted to redeem a bonus. I, I wanted to get that bonus. So admit the truth, even if it doesn't make you look perfect, but don't outright admit to anything blatantly against the terms of service. Even if it's not like cheating, something that they, you know they really won't like, don't admit to that. Um, and that's what, like when I admitted to the bonus thing, I would make sure to explain why explain that it was offered to me explain that they gave me permission not just hey i wanted to redeem a bonus and uh, they knew that would piss them off but you got to stick pretty close to the truth next uh whatever you're accused of provided you are innocent keep asserting your innocence and even if you're not 100 percent innocent but if there's some reasonable explanation sort of like my bonus situation then explain that do not admit to wrongdoing. Always have a reason why you did what you did, which doesn't make you look shady. So even if you're admitting to something which you know they'd rather you didn't do, explain it. Now, of course, you can't explain collusion or botting or cheating of any kind, but but you know something like what they call bonus abuse, that type of stuff you can explain. But make sure the explanation is fairly close to the truth and is plausible. The people who suspended your account tend to be more intelligent than the average customer service rep, so they're typically not going to fall for your BS. 
If you're falsely accused of something you absolutely didn't do, try to bend over backward to disprove the allegation. For example, let's say they accused you of botting and you were not botting. You can say, I've heard some sites let people play on camera. Can I do that for you? You'll see, I play the exact same style. I'll play on camera. What do you need me to do? Volunteer ways, ways that aren't super burdensome, but volunteer ways to where you can prove your innocence. Let's say they think, uh, they say, well, we're not sure this is you. This account is coming on from a location we weren't familiar with. Then offer to send their ID or offer to... uh, to go on a webcam session with one of their managers, whatever. The, the more confident you seem that you're willing to prove you're innocent, the more likely they are to unfreeze your account. Keep in mind that you'll be communicating with a human being who can just make a decision either way. There's not always a real protocol they follow, so if you impress them in some way, they will often reverse what they did. Do not insult them, even if they're being really stupid or stubborn or difficult. Don't say, hey, moron, it's obvious I wasn't cheating here, or I can't believe this. This your security is so terrible. I can't believe you're so stupid to think this. Don't ever write things like that. Always keep it businesslike, polite, but firm. You, you don't kiss their ass. You don't have to beg them. But uh, you know, don't say things, oh, I really need the money. Please, please, I'm not going to make rent. They're, they're not going to be impressed by your sob story. So don't, don't beg. You've got to act like you're firm and tough, but not a jerk and not insulting. And do that for a while and don't even bring up any threats of any kind until 100% certain that they've made up their mind against you. And I'll get to the threats you can make shortly. I'm not talking about physical threats, by the way. I'm talking about uh, threats of things that can be unpleasant for them but yet are legal for you to do. And I've utilized these myself before, which I'll explain some of them to you. But these are only to be brought out if the site is just completely refusing to budge. So let's say you're accused of something you just didn't do and they won't let you disprove it. And they've just said, well, sorry, we've, we've come to the conclusion. You've done this. Tough luck. We're seizing your money. One final ditch attempt you can make is say, look, At least give me the money I have on the site. If you don't want my business anymore, that's fine. I'll never log in here again. But can you let me withdraw, please? Sometimes they will do this. Again, don't beg, but sometimes they'll let you do this as long as they think you'll be out of their hair after that. You can even write things. I keep my word. If I say I'm not going to come back, I won't come back. I just want the money in my account. I didn't do anything wrong, but since you don't believe me, uh, at least let me take my money and, and I will never come on here again. But let's say none of this works. Well, before you get to the threat level, you also need to make sure that you've been communicating with the highest possible person you can communicate with. Highest meaning in the hierarchy at that site. So you should not be having this discussion with the basic customer service person who's going back and forth with you initially. You should be asking to speak to a supervisor, a manager, And if you're not getting satisfaction from them, ask for another manager above them. Often the lower level people are very stubborn and they don't listen to logic and they're very confused and they just won't ever deviate from the initial decision. Whereas 
higher up, you'll get a lot more of that where they'll be more helpful and more reasonable. So make sure you're getting someone who's in authority and make sure you're understanding what their position is and who you can talk to above them. Eventually, you'll get to a point where they'll say, well, whoever's above me is not customer-facing and you can't speak to them. But keep pressing even if they initially say that. So if, you, if all you're dealing with is customer service reps and they won't give you anyone above them, don't settle for that. Keep pressing. Okay. So what if none of this works and you just can't get your account unlocked and they're very stubborn and very difficult? And you're 100% certain that you've gotten as high as you can talk to as far as the level of rep there and that they've already made up their mind and won't change it. Well, that's when you have to bring out the threats. We've got to do it carefully. And there's different levels of threats you can use against them. Now, first of all, don't ever threaten violence. That, that's never going to end well. That's something you should stay away from. But there are other things you can threaten which won't get you in any trouble that nevertheless will scare them. Number one, the first level is you have to say, I'm going to publicize this everywhere. I post on 2 plus 2. I post on Poker Fraud Alert. I post on a lot of other forums. I post on Pocket Fives. I'm going to I'm going to put this all over Twitter and Facebook, and uh, you can start naming Facebook groups like Real Grinders or whatever, and say that you're going to put this everywhere that they are improperly seizing funds and stealing from people and not giving you a chance to prove yourself right. Whatever the situation is. But say, I'm going to publicize this. I, I'm going to make this so public. I'm, ne- I'm never going to let this go. I'm going to keep pressing, pressing, pressing. So you're really, you really have to deal with this. You, you can't just push this aside. You absolutely need to deal with this because I'm going to make everything public. And then call their bluff. If they are okay with you doing that and don't care, then do it. Then make it public. If you make it public, you're only going to help yourself. You may think, oh, it's going to piss them off. Now they're never going to help me. No, it's actually the opposite. If you make it public, they will be ashamed and feel like they have to do something. Well, not always, but a lot of times these get resolved because they are made public and because they don't want the PR nightmare. It's They don't go, oh, well, screw that guy. He made it public. We're not helping him. So that's something that you need to think about too, that making it public is often the solution. But first, threaten to make it public and see what they say. You are welcome to say that you're going to come on this show to discuss it. I will let anybody come on here. I'm telling you this in advance. I will let anybody come on here to discuss about how a site screwed them. The only exception, I'm not going to let someone come on here and just, you know, with stupid cheating uh, conspiracy theories. Oh, you know, there's so many river beats. It's got to be rigged against me. I'm not going to allow that on here. But anything short of that, anything that's a reasonable story as to why you can't access your money on these sites, I will let you come on here and tell your story. So you can tell them, I'm going to go on Poker Fraud Alert. I'm going to go on this show. I'm going to go that show. I'm going to go on Chicago Joey. I'm going to go on, uh, I'm going to post it on 2 Plus 2, post it on Poker Fraud Alert, post it on Pocket Fives. And then do it if they don't budge. That's level number one. Number two is... You can threaten that you're going to report their payment processors. Even if you've never gotten a payout there before. You can say, look, I, I, I would never otherwise do this. I don't like snitching on people. I don't like getting anyone in trouble. And I don't want to hurt the industry. However, if you're going to wrongly keep my money, I know all of your payment processors. I know who it traces back to. And I'm going to report all of them. And you're not going to be able to process any payments. 
And I know this because a lot of my friends have used these processors, and I can see. And even if it involves Bitcoin, you could say you have uh, you know who's processing their Bitcoin. And you're going to report these, and you're going to make life hell, and you're going to keep doing it if they, if they seize your money. So you're never going to get away with seizing my money without me being a tremendous headache for you. So please reconsider it. And believe it or not, that threat can work. And you can keep repeating, I just want you to be reasonable and reopen my account and don't take my money because I didn't do anything wrong. Is it legal to threaten that? Yeah, totally. It's totally legal to say, don't steal my money. And if you do, I'm going to report illegal things I see your business is doing. That's, that's not extortion, by the way. And, and by the way, the, the quote victim here wouldn't even be in the U.S. The, they wouldn't go to the police or anything. But even in the U.S., this isn't illegal. Um, you know, let's, let's say, uh, let's say a guy stole, uh, $5,000 from me and I, and he, let's say he owns a restaurant and I go into his restaurant and say, Hey, you know what? Uh, give me my $5,000 back. Otherwise I'm going to report, uh, nine different health code violations I know are in this restaurant. Otherwise I, I won't, otherwise I won't get involved. That's not considered extortion. Why? Because number one, I believe that it's not extortion or blackmail. Uh, number one, I, I, I this is money I can show was really owed to me. So I'm, this is not just trying to squeeze someone to, to pay me off money they don't actually owe. And number two, the threat is actually a threat of reporting something to a government body that's factual. So there's um, to be asking to be made whole when someone cheats you in some way and say, hey, I'm going to report such and such violation of the law that I've known you're committing if you don't make me whole, you're never going to get in trouble for that, especially with an offshore site. So you don't have to worry about that. Basically, reporting payment processors and getting them in trouble, uh, you can do that if you want. Because who do you you be reporting this to? You'd be reporting this to a, a government entity who would investigate them. So this is a lot different than, hey, give me my $5,000 I'm going to burn down your place or I'm going to shoot you or I'm going to beat you up. Like that's, that's a different story. That's a crime. But saying, hey, I'm going to report such and such wrongdoing that I know you've been engaged in to some kind of government body if you don't pay me the money you stole from me, uh, th- that's, you're never going to get in trouble for that. But only bring this out as a very last resort and only after you've publicized it and they still won't budge. After you publicize it, wait with that second threat. After you've publicized it, Wait for a little bit to see how they react to the publicists, the the, pub, the the publicity of it. Okay, wait, give it at least a week, and then if they don't budge, then bring out the next level of threats, which is about uh, ruining the payment processors or other forms of uh, reporting. You can even say you're going to report them to the Department of Justice that they're that, that they're going to start getting investigated. You're going to get others to do it. Anything that it can start becoming a headache for them. Because remember, these sites are breaking the law by offering you poker in a jurisdiction where they shouldn't be offering it. Now, if this happens with a regulated or legalized site, then ignore all of this. Then, then you just need to uh, go to whatever regulating body and complain if they won't play ball. So like kind of WSOP.com if you get screwed. Don't do any of this. Just go to Nevada Gaming. 
I guess you can do the first part, but you, you, you don't, there'd be no threatening payment processors. And I mean, you can, I guess you can also threaten to publicize it. Nothing wrong with that. But the whole time you need to remain calm. You need to make sure you're reaching the right people. You need to basically tell the truth. You need to give an explanation for anything that may seem that's questionable. And you should never beg. You should never make yourself seem pathetic. And you need to stand tall and threaten to publicize it and even threaten to ruin their payment processors if they're operating illegally and to report them operating illegally if they are absolutely shutting you down and not giving you the money that they've frozen. These are things you can do. These are things I have done before and done successfully. Though I will tell you, in the few cases I've had to do this, I was always falsely accused of something. I've had other ones where it wasn't my account getting frozen, but I got screwed in some other way and I had to bring out the, I'm going to, publicize this with my radio show, things like that. And then they back down. They meaning one of various poker sites I've dealt with over over the years. But one other thing here is not to worry so much about what they call terms of service. Even if they can point to what they claim is a terms of service violation, just ignore it. That's If you know you're right, then you're right. Don't worry what's buried in the terms of service. There, there's some basic responsibilities you have as a poker player on these sites like uh, you, you don't share your account you are playing from a jurisdiction that uh, they allow you to play they meaning the site if they say don't play from the state and then you play from that state then you're screwed but you know, provided you're playing from a place they want you to play from and you're not sharing your account and you're not committing any kind of credit card fraud and you're not colluding or soft playing you're not botting. As long as you're just playing normally and then you get frozen, no matter what terms of service violation they claim you've committed, don't worry about that. Terms of service is not the law. That's just their own internal terms of service. That is not the law. And I, that's a real pet peeve of mine is when people say, well, you, you committed a terms of service violation, so that's what you get. No. A lot of times unfair action is taken for a supposed terms of service violation and often terms of service violations are just made up on the fly in order to cheat someone. So don't ever let that intimidate you either. If you have further questions and you're in this predicament, you can always text me 775-372-8355 and I'll try to give you advice and I'll give your problem exposure if necessary. Finally, I have a topic about a Florida man. It's always out of Florida this type of stuff occurs. It seems like the most brutal, nonsensical, and just cold-hearted crimes come out of Florida. Not always, but far more than what their population is compared to the rest of the country. And this one is no exception. In this case, a Florida man who was 21 years old murdered a poker opponent who had beaten him out of $3,500 during that past week. So apparently, on October 30th, Michael Salkis, I think that's how you say his name, P-S-I- 
A L K I S. I like to say Pisalkis. I like pronouncing that P. If someone's saying Pfeiffer, I like to say Pfeiffer. I don't like the silent P. It just seems weird to me. If you think about it, the silent P, it makes like no sense. Why? Why a silent P? Where else in English is there a, a silent P? P always says something. Why? Why in these names is there a silent P? Like this, uh, this uh, Pisalkis. I think it's Psilacus. Psilacus, I guess. It's a P-S-I-L-A-K-I-S. See, I have to forget the P's there, then it's easy. Psilacus. But the P confused me. That's why I was saying, what, Psilacus? I don't know what I said. But uh, Psilacus, Michael Psilacus, who's 21 years old, on October 30th was with another person he played poker with. It's not clear where they played. I'm not sure if they played in a card room or, or a home game. It kind of sounds like a home game, maybe even heads up. But they played two poker sessions, and Pisilakis first lost a thousand, and then the next day played and lost again at twenty five hundred. So he was down thirty five hundred. I guess it wasn't heads up because uh, there was at least one other person. Is the, there's at least a third person in the game. And the third person in the game who was in contact with uh, Pisilakis said that Pisilakis texted him after losing the $2,500 in that second session and said he was thinking about killing the winner. And the last person to be seen with the victim, whose name I don't know, was indeed Michael Pisilakis on October 30th. When they investigated uh, Michael Pisilakis, they noticed that there was blood seeping through his socks. And then when they pulled down his socks, they found there was a burn blister on his shin. And then they interviewed his mother, who admitted that she had found blood smeared in her garage. (laughs) His mother wasn't really interested in protecting him, was she? Maybe she was happy to get him out of the house. And to show you this genius criminal, this Michael Psilakis, during interviews with the police, he said, uh, can I call my mom, please? So they let him call his mom on a recorded line, and they recorded the call. (laughs) What he told his mom on the call was that he burned his legs when gas he threw on a car blew back at him. Well, guess what, uh... A burnt-out car was found there. So he was pretty much admitting that he threw gas on a car to burn it and that his uh, legs got burned when the gas blew, blew back on him. And then he uh, drove back to his house, and the police were there too, and they were waiting for him. Searched his vehicle, and they found a handgun, and they arrested him on weapons charges. Then they confiscated his cell phone and looked through his search in, his search history, and it actually had in his search history the phrase, "Can you shoot through a seat?" Jeez. By the way, the U was abbreviated the letter U. Would wouldn't that make the search worse? Wouldn't you want to type "Can Y-O-U shoot through a seat?" He actually typed "Can letter U shoot through a seat." <laughs> 
They were able to match a shell casing found at the scene of the murder to the handgun, the handgun that was in Pisilakis's car. So then they charged him with murder. The first set of charges were on uh, November 2nd, and it all went from there. So it really looks like that uh, Pisilakis uh, killed this victim here who he... Uh, Lost 3,500-2 over a period of two sessions. This really looks like it was a home poker game of some sort. I have always wondered if something like this would happen. I don't know if it's happened before, but I've wondered if this type of thing would happen. Because some people get very emotionally tied to when they lose, and they get really, really angry at the person beating them. Even if it's not the person's beating them fault, the person's just got lucky. A lot of times there's a lot of like anger and resentment towards someone beating them, especially if it was their case money. So, obviously, this Michael Pizlakis, that was probably his last 3,500. He probably thought he could win in this poker game. Probably was the worst of the two players, or the worst, three, or the worst of the three players. And he went busto after two sessions and decided, hey, you know, screw this arrogant piece of shit who beat me. I'm going to teach him. Pretty sad. They haven't named the victim yet. This is also why you have to be careful who you will play poker with in a private setting. You have to be careful that they're not a violent person that's going to hurt you if you end up beating them. In a card room, it's much less of an is of an issue, but in a home poker game, you never you never know what's going to happen, even after the fact. So this is stuff you always have to be concerned about. Anyway, that's it. I don't have anything more for you guys. And to be honest, I'm getting tired. I think I have like a sleep deficit this week. I'm I'm just getting kind of tired, kind of out of energy for the show. I bought something today, though, that I'm excited about eating. Do you guys remember the cookie vanilla sandwich with chocolate on it called It's It? I remember this from the 70s and 80s and then it vanished. I had forgotten it existed. And today at the store, and it wasn't a very good deal, by the way. I I paid a lot of money for this, comparatively, for probably what it cost. But I bought a pack of 12 It's It sandwiches, which is the only size they sold. And I, the first time I've seen this in decades And I remember the weird name It's It And the, the I remember the logo Everything looked like very 70s And it still does But I remember trying it and thinking it was really good But then I, I didn't get to have very much of it back then So I'm at the store and I see this And I think ah, This is kind of too expensive Just to, for ice cream sandwiches But I go, you know what? Screw it I don't care if it's not cheap. I remember this being good. I'm kind of excited to eat it. And I'm going to buy this. And I, and I bought it. So, and I said, after radio tonight, I'm going to cool my throat with an It's It cookie and chocolate vanilla sandwich. And I'm going to do that. And some of you may say, well, I thought you were trying to lose weight. Well, yes, but... Yes, but no. (laughs) 
I have to have my It's It sandwich. I'm very excited to sink my teeth into one for the first time in decades. And I'm surprised these are still being sold. I thought this was one of these products you just had to remember from your childhood, but you're never going to have again. Well, we will be back probably next week on Friday. I don't know what it's going to be like on Thanksgiving week, but at least next week we'll be here on Friday. It's the most likely day we'll be there. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for details. You can text me if you want, 775-372-835, about anything we talked about tonight. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Trader Ruski. Thank you for all the free-roll donors and... Shalom. <laughs>